Greetings, everyone, and good afternoon. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, The True Planetary and Galactic History Herstory, and True History Herstory of Nasara. It is January 22nd, and there's a lot of twos in the date. Just think of February when we hit that uh, that mark of seven twos in a row. So welcome, welcome. We are grateful that you are here, and we are going to open with our meditation and cover a lot of territory as we call in the frequencies of transformation for all of life. So take a deep breath and go into your heart center, going into your sacred heart portal to all that is. As we once again call forth for the full emergence and integration with our soul, our higher self, our monad, our muddy I am presence, and all of our magnificent multidimensional being through to our God presence, our goddess presence. See your mighty pillar of light fully expanded, fully anchored into the heart of Mother Gaia at the same time it is anchored directly to source and the heart and mind of our Mother, Father, God. It is filled with the most exquisite frequencies of gold, the gold of the new golden age, the gold of peace and abundance, the gold of illumination and wisdom. We call forth all of these gifts and more every aspect of this new golden age. And we ask everyone to join us in this work of anchoring heaven on earth as we connect heart to heart, soul to soul, cosmic heart to cosmic heart, all connected to the cosmic heart of all that is as we Connect through the I am presence to every man, woman, and child. We do that through the following prayer. Please join me. I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of every man, woman, and child. I am one with the I am presence of all of my family members and loved ones. I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. And thus we invite them to join us, to participate at that level, that sacred Christ level and beyond in order to do this work of ascension. So we invite in for one and all, all soul extensions, planetary and galactic, all of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage, our ancestral lineage, all the generations past and forward, our spiritual lineage, soul families and soul pods, 
we welcome for one and all, all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council, our mission council. We welcome at this time the assistance of all the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the diva kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature, the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. We welcome all of the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim and all angelic healing teams. We welcome the ascended masters, the brotherhood of light, the sisterhood of the rays and rose, the order of Melchizedek, the radiant ones, all of the enlightened masters, all divine mother emissaries, divine father emissaries, all of the planetary and cosmic hierarchy of light, and all ascended master healing teams. We welcome as well our brothers and sisters from the Galactic Federation of Light. We welcome those that we work with most closely, Lord and Lady Arturus, the Arturians, the Arturian healing teams and healing technologies. We welcome Lord and Lady Sirius, the Syrian Archangelic League of the Light, and all of their healing teams, including Dr. Lorfin and his healers. We welcome Lord and Lady Pleiadian, the Pleiadian Emissaries of Light, all of the Pleiadian healing teams. We welcome as well Lord and Lady Andromeda and the Andromedan healing teams. Lord and Lady Chiron and the Chiron Healers, Lord and Lady Venus and the Venusian Healing Teams. We ask at this time for the assistance of all cosmic, galactic, universal healers that can be of service. And we call forth our Mother, Father, God to overlight all that we do and magnify, magnify, magnify it in divine order. The maximum each can be receiving individually and collectively for both personal and planetary ascension. We call forth at this time all of the rays, all of the flames, all of the universal laws and ascension waves. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and evocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level, and within every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of our orc field, multidimensionally, in divine order. The maximum that each being can receive individually and collectively through their mighty I Am Presence. We call forth all those and and everything in the circle of support. From the very first name that created to each and every individual, each group, each organization, each corporation, each business, each institution, each government, each nation, all governmental leaders, 
each weather pattern, each situation and event, each meeting and summit, everything that's been placed in the circle and everything that we have in our circle through our divine intention. We call forth the energies of this time to work with us. Anything that people are putting a lot of attention into, we call that energy forth to work in our collective cup of consciousness for the transformation of humanity and the full anchoring of heaven on earth. We ask that we receive this with the greatest of ease and grace. We call forth Archangel Sandalphon. We call forth Mother Gaia to assist with this process. For each and every individual and for us as a collective to open and receive this, to easily digest and assimilate, ground and anchor, integrate and embody these frequencies, the maximum that we can receive ever expanding to perfection. We ask that Gaia receive all that we receive through her chakras and meridians and layers of her orc field multidimensionally. Through every ley line and song line, every uh, all the grid systems, the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids, all of the multidimensional grid system. Through every portal and vortex and monument and sacred site, every place of power, every stargate, every city of light. As this planet goes through a total transformation, really anchoring every aspect of heaven, and we hold strong and hold firm as we ride, take this incredible ride up the spiral of evolution with Gaia, as she takes her rightful place as Freedom Star. As we call in all the rays, we especially invoke at this time the golden flame of illumination. We call forth the yellow gold of divine wisdom, Christ consciousness, Illumination and enlightenment to fill us and surround us, as we say. Golden glorious flame of illumination from the heart of God Goddess in the great central sun. I invoke the presence of beloved Lord Lanto, Master Gatumi and the brotherhood and sisterhood of the golden robe, the god and goddess of Maru as well into my heart, mind, and soul. I ask you to flood my being with the precious oils of illumination poured over me in limitless radiance to transform all that is less than the divine, than the divine perfection in my consciousness. O flame of light, so bright and radiant. O flame of God, so wondrous to behold. Ceaseless fountains of wisdom, love. Bring me back home to the heart of the sun. Come now with the fullness of thy power. 
take thy hand, my hand and lead my pathway. Open my eyes and show me the visions. Flood my life with thy wonders. Blaze illumination flame through me. Blaze illumination flame through me. Blaze illumination flame through me. Therefore, I choose to walk with God through the fires of love from my heart. I declare that I am that God goddess in manifestation. I open myself to receive a mighty river of radiant golden light of illumination flowing through me. I declare that I am this river of light. I am this river of golden peace. I am this river of illumination. As I call this forth for myself, I call this forth for all humanity, and we give thanks for this as we say, so be it and so it is. Beloved I am, beloved I am, beloved I am. See this golden light anchored in through and around you as we continue to work with that frequency and bringing in illumination and wisdom and spiritual understanding for ourselves and for all humanity. Most high within, I come before you this day to release everything that is holding me back from spiritual understanding. I give up all judgment and criticism. For to judge and criticize another is to pass sentence on myself, and I choose to be free. Blaze that golden light as we say this. And give yourself permission to do this as well. I surrender my closed-mindedness, my opinionated views, my inflexible attitudes, my unyielding personality. For I have bound myself in the mire of projecting my own expectations and convictions upon others. And I choose to be free. As I free them, I free myself. And we shall now walk the path together as holy brothers and sisters in the light. I am a seeker of truth. I open my mind to the divine inflow of spiritual understanding. I feel the magnificent energy of knowingness filling me now. My very consciousness is being initiated into the mysteries of life. And in this sacred ceremony, I ask you, my divine radiant presence, to mold me to the divine will and let me dwell constantly in the realization of who I truly am and in the eternal oneness of selfhood. Breathe and receive as we say, I now accept the mantle of understanding. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. 
we give thanks for this. We call forth the company of heaven to work with us on this. And thus, as well, to work with us on all of our relationships. With Venus retrograde, we're going a lot, going through a lot of review. And so we are asking the angels of loving relationships to work with us. And we affirm God, God is infinite love. The great identity in all relationships. The eternal essence of all forms. And this absolute all that is, is my very unconscious. I lift my mind and to be aware, to understand. And to know that the divine presence of him is the source, cause, and quality of every relationship in my life. I am conscious of the inner presence as my loving experience of fulfillment as a in every connection with another being. I am conscious of the constant activity of this mind of total goodwill and joyful unity. Therefore, my consciousness is filled with the love of right relationships. Through my consciousness of my God self, as my source of companionship, friendship, and the quality of every love experience, I draw into my mind and feeling nature the light of spirit. This light is the essence of every bonding with another. Thus my consciousness of the master self I am is the cause of every good and perfect relationship. My inner light draws to me now those with whom I can relate in love, peace, and joy. Because it is the principle of right relationship in action. My desires are beautifully fulfilled my needs easily met. The divine consciousness I am is forever securing the bond of harmlessness and harmony between me and everyone else in my world. Therefore, I am totally confident to let God, Goddess, appear as each and every relationship in my life. When I'm aware of my divine consciousness as my total fulfillment, I am totally fulfilled. 
I am now aware of this truth. And I relax in the knowledge that the activity of divine attraction and right relationships is eternally operating in my life. I simply have to be aware of the flow of that creative energy that is continuously radiating from within. I am now aware. I am now in the flow. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this as we invoke this for not only ourselves, but for all of humanity. We once again focus on the golden flame of illumination. As we call it in for our government, as well as all life. And the government of each and every nation. Through the supreme eternal mercy and compassion of the cosmic I am, all that is, I accept the divine fiat that the golden flame of illumination, wisdom, understanding, enlightenment, and truth shall now rule, guide, and protect all humanity. God's will for the United States of America and all of the countries of the world shall manifest. And every country's divine plan will be fulfilled. Every nation will reflect the will of God, Goddess, and the reverence for all life. Divine government will be the order of the day on the new earth. I so decree it and accept it done. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. When we work with divine government, we automatically work with the sapphire blue and violet rays. And we call them in, as well as the flame of illumination, as well as all the rays, flames, universal laws, and ascension waves, as we do the following decree for the earth and all of her nations. In the full power and authority of the beloved presence of God, Goddess, I am. We, the children of earth, humbly come to the throne of our Mother, Father, God, to invoke into the physical plane of earth the most intensified activity of God's will ever manifested in the history of time. We invoke the legions of light serving this blessed earth to absorb this divine essence into every fiber of their beings and projected into the heart flame and conscious mind of every person associated with the governments with the politics, with the policies, with the elections of this planet in any way, shape, or form. Blaze the cosmic flame of God's will 
through each of these souls and clear away any destructive activity of their own will, which might rush in to try and impede their conscious desire to do God's will. Help them to become and remain obedient to the law of harmony and to be God-Goddess in action at all times. Seal all governmental positions, individually and collectively, in the radiance of God's will. Reveal through illumination's flame the divine purpose and plan for each office and each individual. And give to each person the spiritual courage and desire to fulfill that plan perfectly. Let the will of God, Goddess, be manifest in, through, and around all the governments of the world, now and forever. Let the light of God, Goddess, that is eternally victorious, illumine and lead all humanity everywhere. We consciously accept this manifesting now, even as we call. So be it, and so it is. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Take a nice deep breath. Now, this is a decree from the I Am work. From the Ballards, the Ascended Masters and Hose Decree for America. So hold the space for this. As we say, in the name and by the power of the Ascended Hosts, and the Ascended Master, St. Germain. I voice their decree for the blessing and protection of our beloved America. America has been brought into being by the Ascended Hosts as a radiating center to all the world for the light of God that never fails in the age which has now begun. Unto this end, there has been brought into existence a sacred document upon which the government of the United States of America has been founded. This is the sacred constitution of the United States of America. Therefore, it is the decree of the ascended host that every official in our government shall uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States of America unto the best of his ability. So help him, God. Thus America shall go forth unto greater glory, glory than has ever been known on earth. The ascended host, who are all-powerful throughout the universe, have decreed. America shall remain at peace with the world. To those who have sought to draw America into the destruction unto which the rest of the nations of the earth continue to seem determined to open themselves, the ascended hosts have issued the all-powerful command that America and her people 
Those beloved children of God who have sought the light shall be protected, and that glory which they have earned shall go forth into manifestation. Thus speaketh the ascended hosts unto the children of earth. Their decree goes forth unchallenged into manifestation from now on, henceforth and forevermore. In their name I have spoken. Take a nice deep breath as we see the golden light of peace and illumination and divine wisdom and enlightenment fill everyone here and across the planet. The golden light of eternal peace is also the golden light of abundance. We're going to call in the money, the financial gifts that we are entitled to as a child of God. And then we are going to seal this, working with that golden light of abundance and eternal peace. So clothe yourself in this now. Flood yourself with the golden frequencies. As we do what is called the Huna prayer, it came from Jokul, and um, it is um, Joshua Stone that shared this prayer. And it's about the manifestation of money for light workers on the planet. So take a nice deep breath as we call this in. Beloved presence of God, goddess, all that is. And we'll say this first part of the prayer three times. We hereby ask and humbly pray with all our hearts and souls and minds and might for divine abundance made manifest through personal fortune and success. We are willing to move beyond fear in order to fulfill God's plan on earth and beyond. I personally pledge to open myself to financial wealth in order to fulfill my group and individual service commitments. In God's name, we accept our divine heritage right now and thank Thee. We thank Thee for the timely answer to this prayer. God's will be done. Again, beloved presence of God, Goddess, all that is, we hereby ask and humbly pray with all our hearts and souls and minds and might for divine abundance made manifest through personal fortune and success. We are willing to move beyond fear in order to fulfill God's plan on earth and beyond. I personally pledge to open myself to financial wealth in order to fulfill my group and individual service commitments 
in God's name, we accept our divine heritage right now and thank thee for the timely answer to this prayer. God's will be done. Beloved presence of God, God is all that is. We hereby ask and humbly pray with all our hearts and souls and minds and might for divine abundance made manifest through personal fortune and success. We are willing to move beyond fear in order to fulfill God's plan on earth and beyond. I personally pledge to open myself to financial wealth in order to fulfill my group and individual service commitments. In God's name, we accept our divine heritage right now and thank thee for the timely answer to this prayer. God's will be done. And so it is. Our beloved subconscious minds, we hereby ask and lovingly command that you take this thought form prayer to God along with all the manna and vital force needed and necessary to manifest and demonstrate this prayer. And so it is. See yourself breathing this prayer to God and then open to receive the blessings as we say. Lord, let the rain of blessings fall. Lord, let the rain of blessings fall. Lord, let the rain of blessings fall and feel that energy coming directly from God, Goddess, Source, Creator, all that is, back to you. Soak it in as we seal this with the Om. Please join me. Continue to breathe and receive the golden rays of eternal peace and abundance from the causal body of God, Goddess, that are now flowing through the cup of my consciousness into the heart of every evolving soul. This golden light is pulsating with frequencies of the fifth dimension beyond anything humanity has ever experienced. Contained within the essence of this flame of eternal peace is God's infinite abundance. And contained within the essence of God's infinite abundance is the flame of eternal peace. I breathe in deeply. And I become one with this golden light as I enter the secret place of the most high living God within my heart. As I enter this sacred space on the holy breath, I am open and receptive to the impulses pouring forth from the heart and mind of God. The hour has at last arrived, and the divine fiat has been issued from my mother, father, God, for the divinity pulsating within my heart flame to be given full liberty and freedom of expression. 
my I am presence rejoices in this divine edict and will now give me every possible assistance in manifesting the patterns of perfection from the causal body of God, Goddess on Earth. I become a keeper of the flame of eternal peace and infinite abundance in accordance with my divine destiny. My earthly bodies are brought into perfect balance and latent powers encoded within my heart flame are released. The abilities I have developed over eons of time that will assist me in co-creating the new earth are brought into a balanced state of true mastery. The immortal victorious threefold flame within my heart begins to expand and expand. The blue flame of divine power from my Father God empowers the golden flame of eternal peace and abundance in the hearts of all humanity. The pink flame of divine love from my Mother God directs the flame of eternal peace and abundance through every heart flame and floods the earth to bless all life. The yellow gold flame of wisdom from the sons and daughters of God Goddess enlightens every mind to the divine truth that eternal peace and abundance are inseparable aspects of God's perfection and all as well. I realize these are days of great acceleration due to the influx of divine consciousness that has been flooding the earth. The vibratory action of every facet of life is being stepped up the maximum that cosmic law will allow in every 24-hour period. The golden flame of eternal peace and abundance now pouring through my heart assists me in maintaining balance through this process. It allows me to experience the bliss and joy of this activity of light involving Earth's ascension into greater perfection. I am now reaching into a new octave of my godhood, and my mother, father, God are easily able to move through me. My eyes become blazing rays of light through which the light of God, Goddess, blesses all life. My hands become mighty conductors of God's healing power. My lips become the instruments through which God's words are formed and directed into the physical plane of earth. My feet walk the path of light. My life force now becomes a vehicle through which God, Goddess, enters the world to love and serve all life. I realize and accept my unlimited ability to do whatever I desire in order to establish and expand God's perfection in my world and the worlds of all humanity. Through my thoughts, words, actions, and feelings, I am a mighty balancing activity of light, pulsating in through and around all life on earth now. And we say... In the name of the infinite presence of God, Goddess, I am. I call to my I am presence and the I am presence of all humanity as one voice, one heartbeat, one breath, one energy and vibration of pure divine consciousness, I affirm, beloved I am presence, enfold me now in God's peace and abundance as I become an eternal golden sun 
of this divine light. I am an eternal son of God's peace and abundance, now made manifest and permanently sustained by holy grace. I am an eternal son of God's peace and abundance, now made manifest and permanently sustained by God's holy grace. I am an eternal son of God's peace and abundance, now made manifest and permanently sustained by holy grace. And so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. So we seal this light in through and around everyone and everything on the planet. Through every molecule of life, molecule of soil, molecule of air, molecule of water, molecule of fire. Through the chakras, meridians, layers of our auric field, each individually and of Gaia herself. As we see this golden light blazing in through and around the planet, in through and around everyone. Bringing forth that wisdom, that illumination, that enlightenment, that understanding. The golden frequencies of infinite abundance and prosperity and eternal peace. Through each person, through each mind through each heart, through each soul, through each being, through each nation. And again, we give thanks for this opportunity to serve as a bridge between heaven and earth, the anchor for the new golden age, and the open door that no one can shut. Please continue to hold this vision during this week for this planet, for all upon her, for all nations, all governments. Peace, harmony, abundance, wisdom, illumination, and enlightenment for all. And we give thanks for this. I wish to thank you for joining me in this divine service here today. I thank each and every one of you for being on the planet at this time and being a part of this divine service of bringing heaven to earth. We want to take this time to invite you to come for further divine service each and every Sunday and Monday evening for the Ascension Meditation and Activation Calls. Again, our anniversary on February 1st, will be 12 years, so we'll be celebrating those two days before the first and the new year, the Chinese New Year and the new moon, and the Imbolc, such a very powerful and special time. So we begin at 8.45 p.m. Eastern, 5.45 p.m. Pacific time, with about 25 minutes of greeting. Then Tar and Rama come in for a brief update, and then we begin our work of bringing heaven to earth in earnest at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Pacific time. 
the main phone number. This is a teleconference call. Please take down the number if you haven't joined us before. It's area code 425-436-6260. Again, area code 425-436-6260. The access code is 946-7441-POUND. 946-7441-POUND. We'd love to have you join us. Let us know that you found out about it from the Saturday program. And I wish you an infinitely blessed week. Again, filled with divine peace and wisdom and abundance, illumination and enlightenment on all levels. Hold that vision of the planet and all upon her receiving this in each moment ever expanding to perfection. And so we give thanks to you for this divine service. We give thanks to Tower and Rama for their divine service. And it is uh, with great thanks I give thanks to Rainbird as well for her divine service as I pass this very, very bright golden frequency talking stick filled with all of these amazing qualities of the golden light including the Christ light and filled with great peace and harmony and joy to my sister Rainbird. Infinite blessings to you all. Thank you. Uh, Take that talking stick. Thank you. Thank you, Cheryl, for that talking stick and for your divine service. So grateful for the way that you bring us here together each each Saturday. So lots of gratitude. Um, yeah, I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are a listener-supported radio program. It's all of us that make it happen. So each week we need $300 to cover our expenses with DBS Radio, and that's what we need this week. So lots of gratitude for all of you who pitch in and, and help us keep it up to date. We're grateful to be Eden Steven and uh, lots of gratitude to be able to gather this way each week. So uh, here's how we make a contribution to our account at BBS Radio. You go to bbsradio.com and you click on radio station 2 or you can scroll down on the homepage and you'll find the menu for radio station 2. We're looking for our listings on the menu, which are Thursday, Friday, and Saturday at the 6 o'clock hour, as these are Pacific time. On Thursdays, it's the night at the round table with the panel. And as you click on that icon there, you will be taken directly to our account where you can make a donation in any amount using your bank card. So um, thank you for taking that action. And the same is true for the Friday night show, The Hard News with Tara and Rama on Friday nights. And that icon there will take you to our account. And as is true with this program, at the 1.30 hour, the true history, history of the Sarah and our galactic origins. Any one of those three icons take you to our account. So thank you for making that contribution and keeping this going each week. We're so grateful for all that BBS uh does to keep up to date and technologically advanced and making it happen and lots of gratitude for all of you for showing up and, and making it happen this way. So 
lots of gratitude. And then we're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs. And this week they need, um, Rama's got a doctor's appointment on Wednesday. So before Wednesday, he needs $108 in his pocket to go to that appointment. So um, also they need uh, living expenses, $250 to do it for their living expenses this week. And uh, and then, of course, rent will be coming up next week on short order as it's just 10 days away. So um, keep those contributions coming as you can. We're grateful for all all the ways that you contribute. Here's how we make a contribution to Ramas and Tara and their PayPal account. So you go to the web address, which is rainbowroundtable.net. And there on the home page, you'll see the menus grid up there. Just click on that, and that'll drop down the menu items. And near the bottom is the donate button. As you click on the donate link, that'll link you directly to Rama's PayPal account. And you can make a contribution there in any amount using your bank card. So thanks for doing that. And if you have your own PayPal account and want to access the friends option, you just need Rama's email at PayPal for that. So that email for Rama at PayPal is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999, that's 49, and that's at Hotmail.com. So that will link you to the friends option by doing it that way. And... Um, so either way is perfect. We're grateful for your contribution, your participation. So much gratitude. So also, as we're sending something, let's let Ramam know. Send him an email. And his personal email is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999, at Comcast.net. And, uh, and then, as you need it, the mailing address is as follows. Ron D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, and that's at Post Office Box 280-280 in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, and that's the code in Santa Cruz, 87567, and again, 87567 is the zip. So there you have it, all the information. And I'll also give you the pre-mart information. Bill was on the conference call last night telling us how good the, <laughs> um, one of their budget programs is going and uh, was very excited about it. So go to Fremart and check it all out. Here's the address to go there and take a look-see around. And um, from there, you can open your own account. There are no monthly issues, billings, or anything like that or commitments. So here it is, HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash www.shopfreemart.com forward slash T-A-R-R-A-M, as in Tara and Rama. So that's where you get to the 2013 Rainbow Roundtable site with Freemart, and uh, it's a quite an adventure and they have very good products for uh, dealing with our immune systems and our human situations, our environmental situations. I'm sorry, I'm on the phone right now, Avery. Um, excuse me. 
And uh, what else? That's it. That's it. So, 13 thank yous, honey in the heart. We're grateful for all your contributions and all the ways that you show up. And I'm casting this talking stick, and it's just full of light, and it's got the abundance all over it, and uh, the the light of the universe is right with it. So greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes the talking stick, and it's loaded with a bunch of fairies and feathers and fireworks all happening at once. So greetings, Tara and Rama. Here's that stick. Greetings. Greetings. All you commanders, eagles, and angels. Thank you. We are so grateful. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, Rainbird. Hello, everybody. We're kind of in some kind of a paradise here, I'm assuming, because, I mean, it's almost like spring. Don't you think, Rama? Yeah. I mean, what's, I don't know, it's not quite spring, but it's like... In the 50s. High yeah. 50s. High 50s, sometimes it hits lower 60s. That's weird. No chemtrails. <laughs> it's all well, sunny. Well, that wasn't true yesterday. It was... Okay. Yes, <laughs> yesterday, but we're happy. No chemtrails are showing up today. Um, yeah, I we were talking to our sister... Um, Cheryl and Rainbird before the show, and both of them were getting some some kind of snow, right, Rainbird and Cheryl? And um, I'm just looking here on the TV, and uh, 500 people near Big Sur were evacuated t- today because there's this immense oh, wildfire running right. around. So... We're all grateful for what we have, but uh, that's the Circle of Support weather report. <laughs> all right, so Rama, you have the word. I'm going to pass the talking stick to you. Um, I got a text message from Mr. X today, and he said there is a skirmish going on on the Syrian-Kurdish border kind of connected with Iran, and the Kurds, along with U.S. support, are supposedly fighting ISIL, and when we heard the word ISIL, all C-I-A, duh, and uh, both sides have suffered heavy casualties, and he just called to or texted me and said, put all of this in the circle of support. Who were you talking to again, Rama? Mr. X. Okay. And just to blaze the violet fire. And the rest that I've heard is a swirling pot of the Matrix. I don't know where to go with it, but Send harmonious vibrations. Well, as we heard last night from Max Kaiser, he said, and he said the right on thing, that Russia doesn't want to go into Ukraine and have a a physical war. That's not the situation. And the United States, as usual, are just full of hot air. 
And, you know, uh, it, what it has to do with is that the United States with NATO want to encroach upon the border. They want to go in Ukraine. And Russia is just making it very clear that will not happen. And uh, so they're doing their 100,000. Uh, we were told it's not 100,000, 50 to 75,000 at the most. They're exaggerating that too. At the border, they're doing military uh, exercises, what we're saying. Um, in the meantime, uh, uh, the first American shipment of what is being called lethal aid to Ukraine has touched down in the capital of Kiev. From here, from the United States, tensions with Russia continue to escalate. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and his Russian counterpart, Foreign Minister Lavrov, had a meeting in Geneva yesterday. There were no, though, significant breakthroughs in diplomacy talks. Uh, we're the bullies on every block, everybody. COVID cases topped 70 million they say, and we know we've already got 65 million, and that's been a figure that I just didn't stop to inquire any further already, not here from the United States. So just the situation is, they're saying, appearing to have peaked. So we'll go with that. Uh, 500 residents about 150 miles south of San Francisco were evacuated just a little while ago. And there's this huge, monstrous fire just a little bit uh, not close to Big Sur. So we want to let that one go, too. Right, Rama? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to have you tell the rest of your story. I told my story. Tell it again, so I got it in my head. Mr. X called me and said that there was a skirmish going on on the Syrian-Kurdish border. Right, and there's heavy casualties on both sides. And they're saying that it's ISIL, that the Kurds are fighting, and when we hear the word ISIL, all CIA, duh. Yeah. And the Kurdish people, I mean... I've been to Kurdistan... It is kind of a non-country anymore because... It's part of the northern third of Iraq, right? Yeah, and this has to do with the dirty deeds done dirt cheap by the U.S. military and our State Department where Kurdistan is slowly dissolving into the sands of the Middle East. Because the United States wants to get rid of them. Uh, yeah. Even though they call them the allies. I mean, when... Yeah. When, when it's Trump, got to Trump, do with Erdogan, too. Well, when Trump was president, he bombed the heaven out of them. Yeah. And they were supposed to be our allies. And they were our allies then. And he just did it anyway in Syria, anyway. Um, Empire, be gone. Right? Yes. Okay, let's go on then. So, Rama. Oh, I think we'll start with uh, John Pilger was on. John Pilger was on. I got to figure this out. Yes, I know. 
Let me just go to John Pilger. I'm going underground this morning. Um, okay, let's just... Just a moment, everybody. I think I go to the first one here. Just a moment. Okay, here we go. so-called mainstream media declares Johnson's premiership all but over after alleged coronavirus restriction violations in the country with one of the highest COVID death tolls in the world. Well, who better to join me now for a special edition of the show from here in London is filmmaker and legendary journalist John Pilger. Thanks, John, for uh, coming back on the show. Lots of COVID about, so uh, it has to be remote this time. You know, one Johnson critic said uh, it's a bit like Al Capone being done for tax evasion, but uh, headlines... All over the world, uh, UK PM Boris Johnson uh, apparently relaxing restrictions amongst the worst death numbers in Western Europe, sends troops to Ukraine, and uh, apparently his career is over. What's your take on all of this uh, hubbub here in Westminster? Well, it's just that it's hubbub around Westminster uh, political reporting in this country and in, and the United States as well is is based around the parliament. It's that narrow focus of, of what parliament does. And, uh, I never understand what the Tories, why the Tories are complaining about the BBC, because if you watch the BBC, all it does is report parliament, seldom reporting the wider issues. So what we've had in this country is, uh, a great deal of, uh, um, uh, anti-Johnson stuff. He deserves every bit of it, of course, but it's focused almost entirely on him and on, understandably on the, the scandals of parties in Downing Street when Downing Street was, was telling the country to, uh, to lock down. But, you know, all these scandals are, are only a facade for serious War making, and that's what's happening in uh, certainly in the Ukraine at the moment. Um, it's it's probably one of the most distorted stories I can ever remember. I mean, first of all, if you look at it, the Russians who are said to be the aggressors and about to invade, Russian troops are actually in Russia. Uh, U.S. missiles surround uh, Russia. Uh, British troops are on the borders of Russia. NATO troops are on the borders of Russia. NATO troops surround Russia from Slovenia all the way down. So the the aggression, the potential aggression, appears to be almost certainly on one side, but it's it's never reported that way. Uh, and that's why propaganda is so important at the moment. We've had nothing but propaganda of Russia about to invade. It goes straight back to the old Cold War when the Russians were coming. And, of course, they weren't coming. As we now know from all the classified material, the Russians had no serious intention 
of invading Western Europe. And yet that was the propaganda all the way through. It didn't make any sense from their point of view. This doesn't make any sense from their point of view now. Well, the BBC, which, uh, you're right, has sort of been attacked this week about uh, defunding it by, by the government uh, through its curious uh, mechanism. That, that doesn't seem to have happened, actually, arguably. The BBC say it is committed to achieving due impartiality in all its output. The commitment is fundamental to our reputation, our values, and the trust of audiences. You don't think BBC journalists would uh, similarly allow China, say, if it had bases in Mexico and Russian bases in Canada uh, for them to say, look, the United States has to change where its troops are within the United States? No, that's, that's a satirical version that you've just read out. Uh, and uh, it's always worth a good laugh among those who actually take the trouble to deconstruct the news. Unfortunately, most people haven't got time to do that. And so the BBC has an entirely false reputation of objectivity. There's no objectivity. BBC represents uh, uh, British imperial foreign policy. It does it right through. It's doing it at the moment uh, with uh, the so-called uh, Russian aggression in Ukraine. Uh, on domestic policies, there were two landmark bills uh, in 2012 and last year, which effectively uh, set, a, set out a privatization of the National Health Service. The BBC barely reported these, and these bills have um, a critical effect on almost everyone in this country. Um, and what, when during Thatcher's time, when one of her advisors uh, advised her to privatize the great public institutions like the NHS by stealth. Well, that is what is happening now. None of that, none of that is, is given to the BBC's millions of viewers, uh, as it really is. Uh, the, the headlines represent, uh, um, superficial changes in the health service and the same the same is true when um, media words like austerity are used. I mean, austerity, what does that really mean? It means the impoverishment of millions of people, and that's what has happened in this country. I mean, it's interesting that there has been, effectively, and I, I use this expression not as as an accurate description, there has been a class war in this country against the people, the majority of people, uh, who cannot keep up with the uh, kind of growth policies, neoliberal policies that have been imposed on them ruthlessly. None of that. We have no real perspective of the political meaning of austerity. Even the the human meaning of austerity in terms of the numbers of people who are being, um, whose lives are being abandoned every time that the Chancellor of the Exchequer stands in front of the check, the, uh, the dispatch box. Um, the, these, these are serious failures on behalf of the media, though 
Though the more cynical would say, and I think probably correctly, they're not failures because that is the media role to present um, power from the top down, never from the ground up. Well, if philosophically that is just meritocracy as considered by those journalists and policymakers and those in power, I will return to foreign policy in a second, but there were these uh, almost hidden announcements about further privatization beyond your film on the NHS, which people uh, can watch. I mean, you believe that the decanting of uh, COVID-positive old people into care homes, 28,000 dead maybe, uh, it was... They, they were killed, and that the, I mean, we're now here with numbers approaching, I mean, it's debated how many people were killed by COVID in this country, but it seems to be more than those killed by the policies of bailing out the city of London after the uh, financial crash of 2008. It's, it's very interesting that, you know, uh, distinguished academics like Professor Danny Dorling at, uh, uh, at Oxford can... Uh, talk about the tens of thousands of people who have died as a result of the austerity policies and the, the people at Amnesty, an organization really not given very much to, I think, uh, seriously undermining the policies of government or power even, uh, was in, I think, 2020. That the that Amnesty came out with a study which showed that something like 28,100 people, mainly elderly people, sick people, had been expelled effectively from the National Health Service into care homes where they die. Now, uh, it wasn't I who dreamt up the term state murder. It was another study that came up with that. And, you know, we, the, the number of lives that have been lost because of the, the callous, it's wrong to say carelessness, because it has been callous, ideological, and driven. And that is <clears throat> reaffirmed by Johnson's announcement this week that on January the 26th, his so-called Plan B would end, and that all restrictions will be off, and those who don't wear masks will not be legally required to do so. Uh, and you have a virtually travelling petri dish of, of COVID. Um, unless we're, we're all going to fall into... Um, the fanatical area when people say that COVID is no different from the flu. But that's, in fact, what the Prime Minister of this country is saying. He says, he's saying that we can now regard it as an epidemic, like there are flu epidemics. But I've got a very close friend at the moment who is in hospital. Um, he's a man in his 70s. Uh, and I'm worried about it because his uh, condition has been has been deteriorating for some time. He's fully vaccinated. He has a booster, and I guess he's just unlucky. But he's picked up the Delta variant. So how often is this going to happen? You know, tell his family that he has the flu. But that's what Johnson 
is telling the country. It's an extraordinary, it's like, it's like a eugenicist speaking, not a prime minister, that all these lives will be sacrificed, even those younger and fitter, and many of those have actually died from, uh, from this thing. Um, but those who fall ill will fall ill with it, though, even if they, if, if they recover from it. Uh, it's, it's uncertain whether it'll be serious or go on to being something else. But where to accept all that? Where to accept that no longer is our supermarkets bound to ask people to wear uh, a mask. I should say the London government claims that actually they will have jurisdiction over some of the transport. Obviously Boris Johnson's government are, uh, would categorically deny a state uh, murder as a reason. You, I mean, and if anyone thinks you are uh, a big uh, hawk for uh, uh, those uh, wanting lockdowns, that hasn't been true. John, I'll stop you there. More from the legendary journalist and filmmaker John Pilger after this break. <laughs> Ignorance is not bliss, everybody. Send good vibrations to wake people up. Rather than on that... Welcome back. I'm still here with the filmmaker and legendary journalist, John Pilcher. Do you think this change of policy about uh, suddenly freeing up the whole of Britain and just allowing things to take their course is is a political decision based on his own uh, desire for political power rather than on medical evidence, which I have to say hasn't uh, properly been produced, arguably. This man who appears to treat the the political body politic in Britain like the the common room at Eton College, uh, <laughs> everything is kind of a bleak laugh. Uh, and so we've seen, we now have concrete evidence that parties have been going on in Downing Street right through the worst of the, the COVID pandemic in this country, while people were, uh, were burying loved ones, couldn't go to their funerals, people couldn't get married, uh, elderly people were uh, uh, were on their own, couldn't be visited in care homes. Meanwhile, there's been party time in in Johnson's domain in Downing Street. Uh, I mean, that's the truth. Now, if a prime minister allows that to happen, um, what else will he allow to happen when he he's now throwing away, abandoning? The most basic restrictions, I mean, I don't agree with lockdowns, but basic restrictions such as wearing masks, social distancing, being careful of others, common sense, but often common sense has to be legally enforced or legally required. He's throwing all that away. It's so irresponsible. Irresponsible is a pointless word. It's worse than that. Well, his opposite number, Sakia Starmer, also pictured, uh, it should be said, although he uh, similarly said that it uh, wasn't a breach of the rules. His opposite number, Sakia Starmer, uh, now leading in the polls, of course, says he would have preferred to be talking about Russia than Johnson's uh, uh, alleged parties. Um, what do you see as uh, as this uh, 
prevalent view now that uh, war is inevitable, as it were, even while the rest of the world uh, sees this is not really about the protection of ordinary Ukrainians. Um, why not sanctions against Saudi Arabia for human rights abuses, for instance? It's being presented as a human rights issue that we need to protect Ukraine from Russia. What you just said, the whole risk of war, and war with the second biggest nuclear armed power on Earth, um, the whole possibility of that, I don't know whether it's inevitable or not, certainly starting to look like that, but the possibility, the fact that that is not an issue, uh, an issue before the country with all the the ramifications with all the uh, uh, the components of it spelled out to people so that they understand exactly what's happened so that they understand the deception that has led to this and all wars all certainly all major wars have started following deceptions. We don't have to go that far. Uh, the invasion of Iraq was based on a major deception, a lie. And if there is any kind of war with Russia over Ukraine, or really over its right to defend its borders, the very same borders through which Hitler stormed uh, in the 1940s, whether it has that right or not, uh, there's no, there's no discourse, there's no dialogue about, there is between us, uh, but wider on the media there isn't. It's a terribly dangerous time. And if this danger passes, the danger which is almost like a movable feast will then go to China. Uh, because anybody who really studies the so-called foreign policies of the United States and its allies through vassals, such as the United Kingdom, will know that an enemy is essential. Whether or not they're an enemy is beside the point. They're not. There's no, there's no real enemies of the UK and the world, and there's no real enemies of the United States. But an enemy is needed. So we'll move from Russia to China. We, we really have to understand that. We have to understand the, the profound cynicism that works in geopolitics. It's not a sort of academic game. It's something that affects all our lives. And we have the right to comprehend it. And, you know, ordinary people whose lives are filled with all sorts of other things also have the right to understand it beyond headlines that give only one side, one view. And you need to still know that it, it works, that imperial idea, but relies on propaganda, the threat from the other. They have to minimize, I don't know, the Azov battalion now integrated in the Ukrainian army with its views about uh, Hitler and against Jews. And, of course, uh, the, uh, the idea that China brought 800 million people out of poverty. These ideas, they're not allowed to be put on media in NATO nations as, as a matter of course. I mean, who knows that, that is, among those who vote, as I read in some poll the other day, one of the most popular people in the world today is Barack Obama. There was Barack Obama 
who effectively uh, overthrew the Just to make it clear, that's always got to do with empire on, on the Democratic side. That's called Henry Kissinger and Hillary Clinton and friends. Okay. Thank you. Overthrew the elected government in Ukraine in 2014 uh, and allowed it to be replaced with uh, an anti-Russian aggressive regime. That came as a... And... Joe Biden was very instrumental in that period of time in 2014, along with Mr. John McCain going over there every other day. And a little help from Netanyahu and uh, what was Japan's president's name, Rama, then? Oh. Japan's president back then. Oh. Forgot his name. Yeah. Anyway, you you know. Okay. That came as a result of uh, Obama's people, his vice president Biden, uh, right. one of his senior uh, secretaries, Victoria Newland. Ah, the yuck. all part of actually a conspiracy, which I think it was Newland said the price tag on it was five billion dollars. We got the. Uh, we got the government and Ukraine changed. That has brought NATO, the US, the UK, right up to the border of Russia. Imagine the reverse. Imagine the Russians, uh, a Russian presence right up to the Canadian border with the United States or the Mexican border. Is that, is that, it's the refusal to understand, to reverse it, to put ourselves in the position of a country that lost, I don't I think it was 20-odd million people in the Second World War. The history, whoever's in charge in, in Russia, that's been my experience of being in Russia and in the Soviet Union, that history is like a presence. It, it, it influences almost everything. History has no presence in the United States. Uh, it's a kind of a permanent illusion. It does in this country, which makes the cynicism even more rather desperate in the United Kingdom that it should go along with these dangerous games. Well, there's renewed interest, apparently, in Russian or Chinese uh, uh, placement of uh, facilities in Cuba, in Nicaragua, in, uh, in uh, other places. I should say that, uh, obviously, when it comes to history, uh, the uh, NATO think tanks, the one here in Russi, says there was no deal on guaranteeing uh, Ukraine not being part of NATO. The National Security Archive, people can look it up. Apparently, uh, there were agreements, but not official uh, treaties. And people can watch the Victoria Newland leaked uh, phone call online. I'd probably get to the person that illuminated so much of this, for so much of the world, Julian Assange of WikiLeaks, who, according to the UN, has been tortured here in London and who is detained. Just uh, very briefly, because I know it's lawfare, according to his defenders, uh, is Julian Assange going to be freed, or is he going to be effectively killed in the United States? I can't answer that directly, and it gives me the shivers even to make the choice, frankly. It doesn't look hopeful at the moment. Obviously, 
But just before we began this interview, I checked with uh, Julian's lawyers whether they had heard if the High Court, the High Court was going to effectively allow an appeal up to the Supreme Court or whether it will go back to the lower court. So what we're looking at, I think, over the next year or so, is a more hearings in this country. Um, it will almost certainly go back to the lower court, and, and Julian's defence team will appeal on all the issues that the district judge then um, didn't accept. And that will go all the way up to the High Court again. It's it's like a slow, long torture. It's quite depraved, you know. It's depraved. The whole persecution, well, the whole prosecution of Julian Assange under a 1917 Espionage Act in the United States, when it's clear to anyone who understands anything about the case, that the whole thing is vindictive and it's about shutting up journalists who do their job. With, uh, with implications, therefore, for the editors of The Guardian, Le Monde, The New York Times, and all those that collaborated uh, with WikiLeaks. Obviously, Joe Biden calls them a, a high-tech uh, te- terrorist. In fact, the Pentagon released their own video of civilians being killed by a U.S. drone strike in Afghanistan as they left. Uh, a bit like the collateral murder one, I noticed. The Pentagon are now releasing things a bit like uh, WikiLeaks. But, of course, uh, as part of the campaign to defend him, uh, direct action is being talked about in defense of him, given the uh, parlous nature of the whole legal process. And, uh, what did you think of when you saw a jury acquit those who clearly vandalized the statue of uh, Edward Colston, the uh, British slave trader uh, celebrated in Bristol, Port, a sign that uh, direct action and juries uh, can destroy power in this country after all. That's the good news. That is the good news. And you know the Colston, um, the Colston decision, which was justice by a jury, and the difference between juries and uh, a judicial system that allows somebody like Julian Assange possibly, probably, to be extradited, is that it's a moral decision. It's like people themselves. The juries took a moral view of that. And there'd been a whole, um, there'd been a whole litany of, of jury victories. It goes back to, um, one that I was involved in, uh, in the mid-90s when a group called the Plowshares Women broke into a British aerospace uh, arms factory where they were manufacturing the Hawk aircraft in Lancashire. Then Britain had just done a £500 million deal with Indonesia to supply it with Hawk aircraft, which it claimed were training aircraft. In fact, the Hawk aircraft, and I saw the results of this in East Timor, were strafing and and bombing and causing mayhem. Well, uh, the the uh, the jury in this, of course, found from them the reason the women uh, broke into the uh, factory and vandalised uh, at least one of the aircraft was to prevent, as they put it in their defence, 
to prevent genocide. And the jury agreed. That was a moral decision. And we've seen the same with Extinction Rebellion, with anti-war protesters, people who have gone past the BBC view of politics, past Westminster, who carry with them all the responsibility of, of great issues uh, and get enormous support all over the world. We'll have to get you on to talk about the police bill to uh, a curb protest, of course, in this country. But uh, uh, people can watch Death of a Nation, the documentary you did, which was used in evidence in that trial on your website. John Bilger, thank you. And that's it for the show. We'll be back on Monday, five years to the day that President Donald Trump withdrew the U.S. from the proposed Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement that never came to be in three years since the Trump administration officially recognized the unelected Boris Johnson-supported Venezuelan opposition leader Juan Guaido is the country's president. Mm -hmm. Keep in touch by all uh, social media and let us know if you think you're free to protest in your country. Hmm. Okay. We're going to take a different subject now. We're going to go to Fremart and we're going to listen to the new pure zinc product. And I, without further ado, let's just start. This is a conference call. So, here we go. Okay, Evelyn. All right. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Happy New Year to all those that I haven't said Happy New Year to. Our disclaimer, shop free mark. Products have not been evaluated by the FDA, and we make no claims that our products treat, cure, or prevent disease. It may be a good idea to have your doctor monitor your results whenever beginning any health regimen especially if you on medications for blood pressure or blood sugar, as you may need to reduce these medications as your body returns to homeostasis. Shop Remark shares its products, its profits back with the members. Any profit shares that you receive will be based on your personal efforts of sharing Shop free mark products, membership opportunity with others. Today's number is 1836. I repeat, today's shop free mark number is 1836. 1836. Our wonderful, beautiful storyteller is for today is Beverly North from Kansas. For those of you who do not know Beverly, she would like to take a few minutes to share a little about her. Beverly joined Shop Remark in January of 2016 and she is an ambassador. She is retired but works part time. Beverly is very active in her church and she is a mother grandmother and a great-grandmother and has two dogs that she loves very much. 
and was special to her. Beverly worked 25 years as an inspector in an asset market automobile parts manufacturing. Beverly is a dedicated, reliable person. If you need something done or you need help or advice, you can count on Beverly to be there to help you out. So with all of that, it's my pleasure to present and introduce you to Beverly North from Kansas. It's all yours, Beverly. Thank you so much, Evelyn, and I know you're a very busy lady, as you'd already told us you're on the road to a doctor's appointment. So I thank you for the honor that you show me and give to me by the introductions that you do for me. And I wish you safety on the road, and we'll do this again soon. So thank you so much. And Justina, with you and your uh, issues that you're having right now with your voice, <laughs> it's hard not to talk when you're the moderator of a, of a board like you are. But uh, we certainly hope that you don't overstress yourself today uh, as you need to speak throughout the call. Hello, everyone. Well, just as a little side note, this week is my first year anniversary of being a presenter for Shop Remark. In my first year, I feel like that uh, I have made an impact with my calls. I have appreciated all the feedback that I get from each and every one of you and the help that Justina and the rest of the presenting team has given to me. And uh, it's been a blessing for me, uh, even as I have to do some outside research. It seems to be an act of love for me, and I don't mind sharing. So to start my call today, I found this article in, in my local newspaper. And <clears throat> this person, Christopher Simon, just named his article A Quiet Mind. So as we've been through the busy season of Christmas and, of course, the partying of New Year's Eve, some of us chooses, you know, a much milder New Year's Eve these days. But, you know, there's just a lot of noise and clatter that goes on in our everyday life and struggle as all the preparation and shopping takes place and decorating and undecorating and putting everything away. And, you know, and the kids are excited and still excited about their new toys and uh so they take the first most precedent usually, but then they'll always filter back to some of their older toys, and you get to see their appreciation of the gifts that they received. So just amid all of that clatter that we have, that we always still enjoy that the peace and the quiet that needs to come along and accompany that. Because even with background noise that we deal with on a daily basis from the television or the radio, of course, a lot of us have phones that we have, and it has a ring or certain noises of notifications, and all of this is always going in, going on in the background, and it just kind of keeps us at a moment of constant alert, I think, you know, and we don't really just sit down and relax. So I've given breathing exercises before to help with relaxation, and, and so... Um, I just felt like this article was very pertinent for today, just after the holidays. So what are you supposed to do? Do you know what to do to help quiet that mind and get the clatter out? Well, 
let's just start with our physical environment. Sometimes we're so busy with our holiday season that some of our um, maybe cleaning and decluttering doesn't get done. So as well as turning off your physical environment of the TV and your phones and, and children's toys and whatever brings that excess noise, try to get away from that. And cleaning and decluttering, it's amazing how that can help a person feel. When you get done with that, you already have a sense of accomplishment. You take in a deeper breath because it smells different. And um, when you're not in a cluttered situation, you feel a little more organized, and that also brings peace just from that simple act. But if you need some more, then next you can either sit or kneel or lie down and try to quiet your body. So to do that process, just start whichever position you use and then start with your breathing and just do some simple breathing, not to really overextend because you're trying to calm calm yourself. And just start bringing yourself down. This may take several moments, of course. So don't rush through it. Don't put yourself in that, oh, I've got 10 minutes, so I'm going to do just you know, two or three breaths. Well, that, that's helpful, but that's not the kind of rest you need. So just go into a quiet place and have a quiet mind. But you cannot have a quiet mind without a quiet body. So just start your relaxation and your breathing. Get comfortable. And once that comfort comes into place, then notice and take, take notice of your thoughts and your feelings. You do not need to change one thing. Just notice where your mind is wandering to, what your thoughts are. Are they troubling thoughts? Are you trying to process a problem? Is it something from the outside that you cannot change? If you cannot change, don't give it the benefit of upsetting you. Then lastly, when you're that much relaxed, then, then you can take kind of control of your mind then. And you can take yourself to maybe a very favorite place that you've been to on vacation. Uh, just outside on your step, just listen to the birds chirp and feel a gentle breeze in your face if you can. Or if you would prefer even yet a much quieter place, then imagine yourself sitting in a, an empty room or a your favorite spot in your church or temple, wherever you would like to go. Then try to engage your senses and see if you can smell your favorite scent. Some people love the scent of vanilla or cinnamon or or hear a pleasant sound to you. Some people like the wind chimes outside, the little tinkle of the bells. You are now taking control of your mind. Such an amazing thing our mind is that God gave us. And that you can take yourself through your mind to anywhere you want to go. You can go back to that favorite place of vacation. You can set yourself in that quiet room. And that is next. I mean, that's the best thing you can do besides being there physically. So a quiet mind can be whatever you want and wherever you want to take it. So use your mind and calm yourself down. So that's not really a story, but that's my little <laughs> input for today's call. So today, 
I'm going to be talking about zinc, and uh, I haven't checked on it recently because I did this research about, um, oh, maybe close to a month back now, and it's such a new product for Shop Free Mart, and John is just simply busy and just hasn't uh, taken time to get something in our back office about zinc. So all of this information came from Google searches that I have done. So we all know that zinc has a chemical symbol, which is Z-N. At room temperature, it is slightly brittle. It is a silverish-gray color. It was discovered around 1746 by Andrea McGrath who was a German chemist from Berlin. Zinc is a micronutrient that plays many roles. Zinc is essential for health. Our bodies do not produce zinc. That's why we have to go to outside sources. We have nearly 100 different enzymes that depend on zinc. Foods that give us this mineral are beans, nuts, whole grains, and fish like mussels, oysters, king crab from Alaska. Why they mentioned Alaska, I don't know what's different in their water up there from other cold water, I don't know. And some of the benefits now are it does help a child develop. It helps our immune system stay strong. It builds our DNA and replication of our cells. It repairs skin and other wounds. Zinc supports normal growth and development from gestation through adolescence. Zinc helps your sense of smell and taste. It provides protein structure and support, such as those found in your muscle tissue and cell membranes. It helps to support skin, hair, and nail growth. Also, your eyes and your bones, your cognitive thinking, synthesis, carbohydrate metabolism, fertility, and reproduction. Zinc helps your immune system by aiding in the production of T cells and white blood cells to help your body fight off disease. It also exhibits antioxidant and anti-inflammatory activity. It is absorbed in your small intestine. People who are pregnant, breastfeeding, or following a plant-based diet may require extra zinc. So please check with your doctor about those needs. Research has shown that taking 75 milligrams of zinc at the onset of a cold can decrease the time you are ill. However, taking too much on a constant basis can lead to becoming a hindrance to our immune system. So even though it's, you know, one of those things, it's a good thing when taken properly, but it may have a backlash if you take it improperly. The daily recommended amount is 8 milligrams for women and 11 milligrams for men. It is best to take zinc one to two hours before a meal with a glass of water. Also too much zinc can lower your copper level It can change your iron function. It can reduce your immune function. Reduce the good HDL cholesterol, your urogenital problems, and interact with antibiotic and diuretic. 
So my source came from the general Google search, like insider.com, an article by Jason R. Wright, an MD, as well as a professor at Texas A&M College of Medicine, a site by Holland and Barrett.com, and the medicalnewstoday.com. So Shop Remark Pure Zinc comes into a two-ounce bottle, just like the rest of our liquid um, minerals. It is a nascent zinc. Uh, we recommend, and it is on our label, 40 drops daily for an adult. The price is $49.95. And for those of you who are working the 2 by 2 income matrix, you do receive a $25 BV value. So, Ms. Justina, that's my presentation today. So, if you want to take it for uh, announcements, Q&A, and then back to me for closing. Sounds good. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry. <coughs> take your time. One sure thing, uh, as you were speaking, before we had the shop free mark thing, I was taking the thing that I purchased from another source uh, because of uh, everything that's going out there. It's recommended that we take vitamin D, vitamin C, and zinc. But one thing I'm going to do after this call, I'm going to certainly listen to it again, is uh, how much the women should be taking. <clears throat> and interesting fact, I think you said one to two hours before eating. <clears throat> and uh, I, I say what I've been doing, I've been taking it in the morning and taking it again in the evening. And you don't realize when you take it is a, is a key factor of uh, the results that you're going to have from what you, you're taking. It's uh, coming to these calls, you do learn something every time, and you walk away with an ounce of knowledge. And that ounce of knowledge is really so, so key. <clears throat> if you was open, if anybody would like to share a testimony, <clears throat> greet for the new year. Uh, just hit star six. <clears throat> and I think everybody is baffled by the introduction you gave. I, it was quite interesting. It wasn't a story, but it was quite interesting. Very uh, creative. And you're unmuted, Beverly. <clears throat> okay, we have our first caller. Excuse me, guys. I'm sorry. 5918? Yeah, it's Harry from Australia. I've got to jump on. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Berkeley. Um, thanks a lot of effort. Another thing you've got to focus on in your life to do this, share the love. And uh, yeah, it's interesting that you come through with this subject this morning because probably like lots of us over the Christmas period too, uh, lots of different things have happened this last Christmas where we haven't been able to visit some of the relatives because whatever reason, some people are anti-vaccination, some people don't want to be with people who have been vaccinated, um, and it makes a huge separation. And uh, I think there's been a lot of turmoil in most people's minds over this Christmas too, um, yeah. because of this fact. So uh, it's a great subject to have to sort of say, hey, let's look at the forgiveness and let's look at the uh, trying to bring oneness together instead of the separation. I think that's the biggest thing for this year too. The direction for this year is how do we come together in oneness, not to keep ourselves separated really. As much as they 
want to try and separate us anyway, you know. But yeah, and uh, and in the quietness of our mind too, it's like bringing the Lord back into everything, you know, bringing the Lord into every day and to give thanks and it's uh, like with gratitude, giving gratitude every day for everything we have giving gratitude for the minerals we were able to take for our bodies that we were able to put it into. And I think if we come back to that, and as you say, you know, you sit there and, and the breath is the greatest thing, and I take the breath back to God again because, you know, the breath is God. And um, without the breath, we can't survive. And it's our giving back again too, like we're taking the breath into the body and then the breath is expelled from the body and given back in gratitude back to the trees again, you know, the carbon monoxide dog. And uh, we, it's a round circle, it's just a continual circle of love. And if we can only just look at it that way, um, and how do I, how do I use my services today to, to help somebody out? Yeah, but it's a great topic for this time of the year because I'm sure that even in the audience, that people who are listening, a lot of people have had some heart. Okay. <clears throat> I think that's about what we need here. I just wanted to tell people about the zinc. I strongly brought up uh, on Thursday. And um, there may be in a future time, John Austin, he has um, an extended amount of knowledge that he could share. So we'll... Keep our ears perched for that. But um, we are going to do something that Penny brought up to us. You got it on there, Rama. Yeah. You got it ready? Yeah. Okay, tell us what that says. That is. <laughs> well, I'll just say that uh, it, it is bizarre and ultimately... Goddess is in charge. Well, it's got to do with uh, Fulmic. It's an extended... Yeah. The uh, title of this is Ricardo Bosi and Reiner Fulmic discuss hanging Freemasons prosecuting globalists and defeating China. Hanging <laughs> anyone, I'll just say... You know, an eye for an eye never helps anyone. It only creates more war. We're just going to listen. We're going to remain neutral and see what they're... Yeah. I'm sure it's referring to something. Well, yeah, they want to hang Fauci and the rest. Well, that's not what they said. Bill Gates, yeah, I, I understand. Here we go. Are they all Freemasons? Oh, I'm sure. Oh, if okay. you're in that realm and you got ten million dollars, you get approached by the firm. Remember the movie The Firm with Tom Tom Cruise, and he found out that it's you know like one of those secret societies. You got to kill someone in order to move up in rank. Yeah. Okay. This is 27 minutes, everybody. <laughs> Let's see what they have to say. You know, we watch, we watch you quite closely, and you're a heroic character here in Australia. I'm not being overly complimentary. It's just true. And the fact that you wanted to speak to us was just wonderful, and it's a sign that 
on how much success we as Australians, forget Australia one of the party, but we are having and getting the word out that uh, we can win this and we will win this and there's a way to do it and it's it's, it's a moral a moral solution, it's a patient and measured solution and uh, and we will not compromise our decency and our humanity to win and it's easy enough to do that. It's, it's the difference between killing for your cause and dying for your cause and it comes back to that Christian ethic where Christ, you know, he gave it all on the cross and that's that's the model that Christians follow, whether they know it or not. I think you pointed to an extremely important difference between them and us. It is not us who are polluting this world, who are taking advantage of other people, who are robbing and stealing. It's them. Um, this corona thing is just a diversionary tactic. Uh, we're going to show this in our international criminal trial. It's just a diversionary tactic because they want to get us, they want to distract our attention from what's really going on. How this criminal, highly criminal, um, financial, they call themselves a financial industry, which is a misnomer because they're, they're just robber barons. Um, how this financial mafia has looted and plundering, uh, plundered our public coffers. The first time they tried to do that was 11 years ago when the housing and financial crisis erupted with Lehman collapsing. That is when we should have stepped in. Well, we didn't because we thought that our leaders, our governments would do the job for us, not understanding that our governments are not our governments anymore, but they've been taken over by these uh, globalists, by Mr. Global. Uh, and even then, They tried to distract our attention by making the swine flu, which was ultimately, as Wolfgang explained to the world's public, a mild flu, by making this, by changing the definition of a pandemic and making this into a pandemic. Same thing happened again uh, at the end of uh, 2019. Again, they needed something to distract our attention because, as we have just learned, a brother of mine is a banker. I used to, ba uh, used to be a banker myself. He's an American banker used to work for Deutsche Bank just like myself. And he says, you know what happened uh, when they had this um, uh, global bankers meeting at, what is it, Jackson Hole in Wyoming? There is a, and we have this, we're going to publish this, there's a summary of the, the world's financial situation by BlackRock. And they explicitly said, my, I'm using my own words here, oh, my God. This is going to implode. We're going to have to come up with some drastic measures. Drastic measures meaning we have to distract the people's attention from this. So when this whole picture uh, will come out, and with all the people, in, even in Australia now, um, realizing that they have to have, they have to exercise their own free will, have to ask questions, they're going to understand what's going on. And that is when they're going to know it's not us who are uh, destroying this earth. It's the other ones. They're projecting their own evil deeds on us. Once this is clear, and I think we're very close to this, we're going to do the right thing. We're, all of us are going to rise up. It's going to be in a peaceful manner because, as you said, <laughs> anything else would probably be self-destructive. That's what they want us to do. But um, I'm surprised to see how you're so calmly explaining because you're a former... Uh, special uh, services, um, special forces, rather, uh, soldier. Um, I was a soldier, and I tend not to turn the other cheek. Um, I don't do that. Uh, but I do know that it would be completely counter-effective, uh, 
it, it would be completely disastrous if we now turned um, and, and decided to fight back in a violent way. Well, what we have to do is expose everything. As you said, most people are beginning to understand we have to ask we have to ask, we have to question everything. All of the things that they taught us are probably lies, but we're we're on to them. The big thing is how much power do they have over the police forces and the military? How is that in in Australia? Uh, in terms of the uh, the police force, almost exclusive. The what, what I refer to, and I did this intentionally. I'm quite quite rude. The the Masonic filth that has penetrated the, the police forces and that the state police and the federal police is almost complete. Wow. Certainly there are many, there are many junior, uh, junior police officers who are not quite there yet. But in order to progress beyond a certain rank, say sergeant and above, you've really got to be part of the crowd. Now, as, as we know, many of the, the junior level masons think it's just a, a gentleman's club for pro- progressing your career. But we also know that, um, Depending on how depraved you are, you can work your way up from ped- through pedophilia, through to satanic ritual abuse, and the people at the top are quite quite sick. And so, my estimation is that just about every state police force is, is thoroughly penetrated, and includes the uh, and the federal police as well. And as I explained tonight, that the uh, the good police, and there are many good police in there as well, they are going to have to rehabilitate. The reputation of the police in the minds of the people, because I can tell you, the uh, many of us used to look at the police, and, and we had a very good relationship. They were genuinely uh, there to protect the people. But now you see a cop car in the back of your, your rearview mirror, and they aren't pleasant thoughts going through their head. And yes, I, I turn the other cheek in one respect, but I can tell you, that, <laughs> tell you, Reiner, when the time comes, Nuremberg 2.0 in Australia is going to be. There'll be more than a pound of flesh be taken out because the people will demand it. We'll make sure that we deliver it. They will pay, but the, the police force, the police forces are thoroughly, um, penetrated. The military, um, the way I understand it, uh, the, the three services, army is fully, is, is, uh, to get above a certain rank, you've got to be a mason. Navy has its own depraved little club. Air force is slightly different, but again, they're controlled. They follow orders. The best and brightest don't get to the top because you don't want a strong-willed, a uh, thoughtful, intelligent individual as chief of army, you want somebody who will do what he's told. You need a uh, not too bright, presents well, looks good, and can follow orders. And the orders don't come from government, and the comes from somewhere else. So we're in a, we're in a, a bit of a problem there, but that that can be resolved. That that in and of itself is just another issue to deal with down the track when when the collapse does come. Um, see, from our, from our perspective, anybody that's been a mason is guilty of treason or sedition depending on how bad it is, because they've taken an oath contrary to that to which they should have uh, taken and served the nation and been loyal to the nation. And so we'll be, uh, we've already anticipated how we're going to approach this, and we predicate all our plans on having to do it on our own. But if, if we get assistance from overseas, from groups like yourself, for example, uh, that would be more than welcome to make sure we advance in a measured and lawful and legal way, because, again, we have to deal with this properly. But that doesn't mean we're going to be the least bit squeamish when it comes to meeting out the correct punishment. And one of our first policies is the reintroduction of the death penalty for, for treason and life imprisonment without the possibility of parole for high levels of sedition. And those, both of those definitions have been watered down by progressive governments because they know they're for the high job if they ever get caught. 
so yeah, that, we 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 suspect that both are fully penetrated, and that's why they have failed to respond to what are patently unlawful commands. And the Australian military, like just about every, certainly the, the Western militaries on the planet, they are required by military law to disobey unlawful commands. It's not a choice. They must disobey. And every soldier knows that. And as you said, if you're told to go shoot kids, <laughs> I'm sorry, but that's just, that, that's not a grey area at all. That is not a grey area. Uh, injecting them just blindly, you know, oh, I was doing my duty. It's a common battle cry here. I was doing my duty. It wasn't a defence at Nuremberg 1.0 and it won't be a defence in Nuremberg 2.0. Wow. And um, I have a question. How do you know about this, like, Mason connection? That was the question because we've heard all these rumours from not just Australia but other parts of the world as well, including Germany. Do you have concrete evidence for that? Does it, is it, do you know that in order to climb up the ranks you have to be part of this? Yeah, I can't reveal exactly how I know what I know. Of course not. Yeah, but I, yeah, but I have sufficient personal experience and knowledge of the system to make that statement quite um, quite confidently, as well as my own experiences. Um, intelligence, absolutely um, <laughs> trusted A1 intelligence, not A1 as in our organisation, but reliable and uh, and good. We know exactly how it works. Um, I'm not sure if you remember that I made a, a statement back in October saying you've got till the 1st of November to come clean, join on the good side. If you don't, you've signed your own death warrant. Mm. <laughs> and people say, oh, well, nobody, nobody, that didn't have any effect. Yes, it did. And, and we received sufficient sound intelligence to know exactly how that has been working. And it has worked for years. And by years, I mean decades and decades and decades, and they cover for each other. Uh, and they always have covered for each other. That is um, that is actually quite disturbing uh, because these, of course, we have known that there are these secret societies, in, including the Freemasons, and we have seen in our own party here in Germany, um, we're the we're the um, um, leaders of Vivian, Vivian and myself are now the leaders of this party as a membership of. Um, think some 32 or 34,000 people, which is pretty good for German standards. Uh, and we've seen concrete evidence for some Freemasons having infiltrated this party. However, we've exposed them, which wasn't so hard to do. But, you know, I used to think that this is a minor problem, but it doesn't seem to be a minor problem. It seems to be pervasive, um, not just here, but if you, um, I mean, What you're saying is that both the police and the military is thoroughly infiltrated by these secret societies, in particular the Freemasons. Yeah, at the highest level, absolutely. Mm -hmm. When you talk about commissioners and assistant commissioners in the police, and when you talk about generals, admirals, and air marshals, yes, the secret societies are well and truly in there. Mm -hmm. Well, <laughs> but again. My perspective, it's just another problem to solve. <laughs> and uh, we just look at it logically, dispassionately. How do we, how do we get here? How do we fix it? How do we stop it happening again? We go through those, that three-step process with every policy that we have to design for the nation. Uh, and and, uh, and we just come up with the solutions and we will just progressively make sure, for example, uh, no Mason will ever serve in any government position ever again under penalty of either imprisonment for sedition or death penalty for treason. Mm -hmm. It's really straightforward because you can't, you cannot be a slave to two masters. 
as as an old book says, and uh, they either serve the country, or they don't. And it's it's this the, the game that they've been playing for for decades now. The political parties are the same. It's just a game. Uh, well, that's about to stop. The people are sovereign. And this is a, a concept that many Australians don't quite get because Australians aren't generally politically active and therefore aware. Their general understanding of a, of a good proportion of Australians, many do, but many don't understand the, the fundamentals of sovereignty and the role of a representative government and where the sovereignty is derived. And uh, and so part of what I do when I'm speaking to the crowds is I remind them that they are sovereign, yeah. that the government only only governs with their consent. And this is genuinely shocking to some people. I remember doing a, I was speaking to a group not far from where I am now, a couple of years back, and I was talking about sovereignty. The young barmaid, and I'm telling this story because it's it's quite instructive. The young barmaid was pouring drinks, but had one ear leaning over, listening to what was being said in the the conference room. And she came up to me later and said, "But I'm just a barmaid." And I said, "Yes, and you are sovereign. The government's power is derived from you." And the look on her face was was a revelation. Her eyes were like dinner plates as, as it dawned on her that she was actually the source of the government's power. Because many people actually believe that the prime minister can do what they want. They're not constrained by constitutions or convention or or, or any moderating factor. Uh, and so it's it's a very much an educative process. And we all started ignorant, so it's not like you know, we are better than anybody else. Everyone at some point believed what we were told. And at some point, at different times in our lives, we woke up and realized, hang on a minute, there's something not right here. And so this educative process is, is foundational to our success, in fact, because I spent a lot of time, and so do the, the state coordinators, and coordinators of the organization, spent a lot of time explaining to um, an otherwise unknowing public exactly what's going on and why and what the solutions will be. And once they get it, it's, it's quite straightforward because our party... And, and we want to roll this out to the entire nation. We make sure that the power rests with the people. It's not a top-down organisation. Certainly, you know, we, we have the structure, we drive the policies, and we want to make sure that we have a view for the, the nation, which is sound. And if they agree with it, then join us, but the power let, rests with them. They elect their representatives. They can sack their representatives if they let them down, um, and so on. And so that's something we're going, to, we're going to roll out to the nation when we become the party of government, and I'm confident we will. Because the other parties are, they're fettered carcasses. They stink and, and their members are leaving them in droves. Yeah. And because, because we are not trying to grab their members, what we're saying is, this is your party. Please take control of your country. Take your country back at a local level, at an electorate level, at a town, city, state and nation. And, and they love the message because it's, they're the ones that will be doing the work. Um, that's what it's all about, Ricardo. That's really the main point. It's our sovereignty. It's not theirs. Theirs is derived from us. And if we pull the plug, that's the end of them. Um, that is exactly what we're trying to do in this country, what I know our American friends are doing, and also our Canadian friends are doing. Explain to the people something that should be self-understood, that it's us who have the power. We don't need anyone to give us any rights. We have liberty. Uh, we have a free will. It is nothing that the government can give us. And if they try to take it away from us, they have to give us a very good reason for that. They can't take it away. In some, in some cases, maybe it makes sense to infringe these rights to a certain degree. But um, what is happening right now is they're trying to get rid of democracy in favor of totalitarianism, and that must not happen. So that is, in my view, the most important point to make, that it's us, it's the people. 
it's um, that's how the American Constitution uh, starts. We the people. That is what the East Germans chanted and brought the wall down. We are the people. That's what it's all about. It's not them. They're the ones who are trying to, who have been looting and plundering our public coffers for decades. And this mm-hmm. is this has got to stop. Um, I think it was Margaret Thatcher who, <clears throat> when she was in office, in complete disgust of the EU, and as we now know, she was correct. She she said, "I want my money back. Uh, we should we should get our sovereignty back because these bastards have no right to take it from us." Um, there's one other thing that I wanted to ask you about. What what do you what do you think is the role of the Chinese in this? The Chinese. Um they are the, the test bed for the control system to be rolled out across the planet. A bit of history that most people won't know about China, <clears throat> and it is, it's important. World War II, Chiang Kai-shek was fighting, the, de- the democratic Chinese leader was fighting alongside Mao Zedong, who was known, but there's just a criminal thug that was placed in charge, a murdering criminal thug. And, and General Wiedemeyer was the American general um overseeing the Chinese theatre of operations. And as the war was drawing to an end, General George C. Marshall, the then Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the United States Army, told Wiedemeyer to make sure that Mao Zedong's communists formed 50% of the post-war Chinese government. And Wiedemeyer said, you're insane. Mao Zedong's just a murdering criminal. You know, we've got Chiang Kai-shek. This is the guy we should be backing. Well, deep state as it was back then was still already in operation. And uh, George C. Marshall successfully stripped Chiang Kai-shek of their armaments and their capacity to fight, and then they raced off to Thailand, uh, to Taiwan, as we know, and uh, they effectively handed 600 million Chinese uh, over to Mao Zedong. Now, over the, the course of the post-war period, they refined the Chinese system uh, in order to, to create this... First of all, their primary objective was to create an enemy for them to fight against, so they could create this this fictitious bipolar world where they could create wars and threats in order to do what they do. As you know, wars are big business and uh, you need somebody to be frightened of and scared of, legitimately or otherwise. And so China was was developed that way. And then China was continually developed. And so it was used for many, many reasons. But towards the end, China was developed. And as we know, the Chinese Communist Party is not a sovereign government. It's a criminal cartel. But the, the social credit system has been developed to a very sophisticated degree and tested in China. And so that's the test bed for the control system. You know, we know that communism is not a system designed to, to, to free the, the the worker from servitude anymore, that unchecked capitalism is, is the only way to, to, to free the masses from poverty. But that's what they wanted to sell us. And so China, is it a threat? Yes, of course it is, because it is still a powerful adversary, whether you like it or not. But its main role was to be the test bit for social credit and then the enforcer and builder of the, the, the systems around which the globalists were going to physically control the globe. But as, in terms of are they a national threat to, to our sovereignty, that's not their role in life. Their role is to do the bidding of the globalists. Um, their, their systems, their army is large and, and they don't have to be good. Korea was a measure of that. They would just send human wave attacks. They didn't care how many they killed. They had complete disregard for human life. The Navy is growing uh, quite rapidly, although uh, sophistication isn't their long suit. It looks impressive. 
but like many armies and navies and air forces around the world, just don't press them too hard because they won't function terribly well. So are they are they dangerous? Yes. Are they a threat? Yes. Are they, in a conventional sense, a threat to the sovereignty of the nations? No. They are the test bed for the globalists. Uh, and if you if they are attacked and destroyed in the right way, and I don't mean a, a war against China, a conventional military war, if the control systems are removed, Chinese Communist Party, the leadership of the PLA, uh, the People's Liberation Army, then it ceases to be a threat because a threat comprises two parts, capability and will. Capability can be attacked, uh, will can be attacked, but if we take away the leadership of China, then the, uh, there is no threat. The capability remains, but the threat doesn't, uh, doesn't exist because there is no will to use it against us, if that makes sense. They're trying to convince us it's a conventional bogeyman that we must now rearm and get ready for a, a kinetic war. Complete nonsense, complete lies. They're selling us another nothing burger, to use an American expression. So, in other words, we have to be... Um, we have to be aware of their military power, um, but um, even though it's probably not very sophisticated, but very large. Um, but if you take, if we manage to take away their control system, their social credit system, etc., then this whole house of cards, even in China, will probably collapse. Right? Correct. You cut the head off the snake, and the snake won't want to do. Mm-hmm. It's- no, the, the, it's, it's, it's designed in that way, top-down direction. They need direction. And you've already seen, you, already, you can already see that to some extent because the globalists who have been directing activities in Australia, it's almost like that line is being cut because the politicians, our politicians, I mean, to use an Australian expression, they couldn't organise a... Uh, they couldn't find a keg of beer in a brewery. <laughs> They're grossly incompetent. And so without clear directions from their masters, they don't know what to do. And that, that partially explains the lunatic instructions and inconsistent and incoherent directions that we're getting almost on a daily basis. Yeah. It's laughable trying to understand what they expect us to do next. And so if we cut the head off the snake, the snake is still there, but it's lost its, its danger. So um, the trap is to believe that there's a conventional war threat from China uh, the smart move is certainly to understand, as you say, it is a threat, but it should be dealt with in a completely different way. And certainly don't believe the lies. If, if they say we have to go to war with China, any, anybody's saying that, you know, they're, they're a paid up member of the globalist mm-hmm. organization, or at least taking orders from them. It's complete nonsense. That makes perfect sense. I, uh, it makes perfect sense. If I, if I put this in perspective with everything I've read, uh, of course, I don't have any first-hand experience. The last time I was in China was probably three or four years ago when I uh, went to Hong Kong and then into mainland China in order to interview a witness uh, for one of my cases, a co- corruption case. Um, and um, I got the feeling, for the, the first thing that I was extremely surprised about because I had no idea what was going on in China is if you go into their larger cities, they're no different from any of our Western larger cities. The other thing is, if you go into the countryside, you sometimes feel as though you're moving back a century or two in time. And the third thing is that they're trying to control the entire people in their country by all kinds of different means of electronic sur- surveillance. And that seems to be their weak spot, because people don't like that. That some of them seem to have adjusted to it, but I spoke with some of the people there, 
um, some of the people who um, who uh, have production facilities in mainland China, but really live in Taiwan, and uh, they can they they've been doing this for centuries, uh, not centuries, but for decades now, and uh, they have a much clearer view of what's going on. They're saying, yeah, people seem to have adjusted to it, but under the under the surface, there's lots of people who are in full disagreement with these surveillance um, uh, uh, techniques, uh, which they, which they, if they had a chance, would immediately fight. So maybe we're going to just help them. Sounds good to me. Okay. Well, Ricardo, I don't want to keep you any longer, but it was a real pleasure. Of very important insights we're getting from you. Uh, let's just keep our connection, and then we'll topple them both in Australia and here. It's all of us connecting that'll do the trick. Yeah, no, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. And yes, I will give you a call and we'll, uh, we'll do an interview with you and let us uh, give us a few tips on your book 2.0. That'd be much much appreciated by these Australian people. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you very, thank you so very much. much. And have a great weekend. Thank you, I will. Thank you to both of you. Yes, thank you. Okay. All right, so now we're going to settle in and have a little listen to our brother Matthias. Yes, change the energy fields. How to become the creator of the life you desire. (laughs) Right. Yeah, instead of Freemasons and death and yada yada. Well, there's a little bit to this. What questions do you ask a living memory cell of the universe? Matthias De Stefano is a person I intend to have as many conversations with as possible. In the few days I spent with him, one podcast was not enough. So we invited him to do another podcast live to kick off our Fit for Service Summit in Sedona. In this profound conversation, we dive into concepts of sacred union, the body as a manifestation of spirit, our ancient and current outlooks on death, and so much more. It's such an honor to be to be able to access the wisdom of Matthias de Stefano, and all he has remembered from his cosmic existence. We open the last part of the podcast for Q&A from the audience. And Matthias has answered, had answered that, had answers that will blow your mind. So we'll just go from there. Here, let's get our minds blown today. Okay, here we go. Huh, Rama? Yeah. Uh, there are infinite solutions and infinite possibilities that, uh, change this dimensional reality right now. Yes. When we see the body as something separate from the spirit, it's because we have been living in cultures that made us believe that we are trapped in a body, that our essence should be free from our body. 
In this live conversation with Matthias De Stefano, who I recently released a podcast about the nine-dimensional cosmology, we go even deeper into his knowledge base, a knowledge base that he accesses from remembering his past lives and all the space in between. And that is, when we see the that is called when the we Akash. see the, yes, come on, yeah. okay, the time is very tight. <laughs> all right, I'm right. sorry. No, 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 be sorry. All right, thanks everybody for settling in. Um, this here is Matthias Stefano. And yes, I love, I love that some of you know him because meeting this man has been one of the greatest blessings that I can remember in recent history. His ability to access information from a calm place of knowing. And this calm place of knowing for people who don't know his history, he described himself as if the whole universe and our planet is an organism, and he just happens to be a memory cell. And the memory cell of that organism is able to remember the past lives that he's lived and also have access points as this particular type of cell that he is, that his higher self can communicate and download information. Now, I have to say that... We're here in Sedona. You go to local juicery, you're going to hear horoscope readings, you're going to hear auras. I heard a long explanation of how if you shoot near the sun, there's going to be an orb that arises in the picture. And I'm like, it's not an orb. It's what happens with the camera flare, man. Like, what the fuck are you guys talking about? Like, get me out of here. I always come with a healthy amount of skepticism, and I definitely encourage that here in Sedona as well. And I approached... Matias, the same way. I was like, what is this guy talking about? Talking about Atlantis. He doesn't know. And then I started listening to him and everything he said resonated in my body. Like someone was playing a Spanish guitar that was perfectly in tune. And I'm like, that's a fucking song. And it makes sense. And it resonates. And the truth resonates. And we did a two and a half hour podcast yesterday. And it was absolutely in resonance with so many experiences I've had from 22 years of plant medicine journeys, everything, making correlations, connections, connecting the dots. And uh, so I just want to share that incredible gratitude that I have for you for saying yes to coming out here and not only jumping on the podcast, but coming in here to, to share yourself with, uh, with this community. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so the interesting, the interesting challenge of having this intergalactic record keeper of all things and access of all things is what do you talk to him about? So I'm going to try and talk to him as many times as I possibly can in this life. But for today, because we have this theme of finding the union within the self and the union within all, I want to start there. And I want to start talking with you about union. And I guess a good place to start is to, you give a beautiful explanation of union through biology, through cells, through atoms themselves, you know, being this interconnected force. But I'd like to, to touch on that, but then also talk about why the ancients and why so many people have discussed the Trinity as an important part of the union. So, you know, that will be our jump off point is to understand the universal unity and then the reasons why people have tried to understand unity in the form of the Trinity? Well, uh, I said what? Um, well, um, there, as I told you yesterday, there are many ways to explain um, 
all this. Um, there are thousands of ways, and what I explain is not the truth. Sorry. <laughs> what I explain is just a slice of the truth that I was able to access. So this means that uh, whatever I explain is just an idea for you to understand a little bit and then to keep looking for more so you can complete the puzzle. Um, so basically, um, unity from our point of view is only seen by a trinity because when you have uh, the beginning of everything, which is the nothingness, um, you have one dot, nothing else. That's unity. It's not union, it's unity. So it's only one thing, but that only one thing cannot know that it is unless it observes itself. So in order for the unity to know what it has within, it has to observe. So that's why it goes out and creates duality. Duality is a different point of view to observe itself, so it can have a different point of view. So it can stare like in a mirror. But with that observe, observation, does nothing. You need to manifest it. You need to move yourself to see if what you see is real or not. So you have to change your point of view, which makes us three, which is the movement of duality. And that creates a triangle, which means that the first shape in the universe that ever existed is a triangle because it's the only possible existent, existing uh, being. Because you have one thing that is observing itself and moving around in order to have a different perspective of itself. So that's why the first structure that ever existed in the universe is a triangle. From there, fractalization. From three, you get six, nine, and so on, and it creates fractals everywhere. But the first integration that the triangle has to do is to find the core. So unity goes to duality to find trinity, and by trinity it finds the movement that uh, that when you accomplish to give the whole circle the whole uh, spinning around, you find yourself in the center. You realize that any of those points work real, but all of them make only one. So you return to the unity for the first time, not unity, but union, the unity of, of all the parts with the understanding of what you had within. And that is the triangle with one dot in the middle. And that's the famous image of the triangle with an eye that you have in the dollar and these things. Well, it was not Masons who made it. <laughs> it was very old. Masons imitate that. Um, it is the first triangle with one thing that says, oh, now I see. That's why they put an eye on it. Now I understand. Now I see. And with that vision, actually what you have is a tetrahedron. I don't know if you know the shape. Yeah, tetrahedron is a geometrical shape of four triangles, one in the base and three around. So that is geometrically is the first structure that creates anything that exists. 
from an atom, particles, everything. So that's why Trinity is so important to understand unity. When people were trying to understand the Trinity, they often divided that into what you could call archetypes. And we associate archetypes with genders, but they're really archetypes, masculine, feminine, creative life force. And this was expressed in a variety of different pantheons, different gods and goddesses, different beings that were actually some of them manifested to help explain this idea and yeah. some of them just conceptual. So talk about, you know, why it was divided in, in such a way to have, you know, masculine, feminine and, and the creative force. Yeah. Well, the the feminine and masculine idea is something that we as a species have. It's not something of the universe. The universe doesn't have feminine or masculine uh, has positive or negative. That's the that's the the truth. The the rest is just evolution. And you mean world. positive and negative like magnets. Yeah, yeah. like a magnetism. It's not yeah. bad or good. Right. Uh, it's uh, the negative is the nothing that contains the whole, which is the everything. So we could say that the negative we can call it the feminine because it's like the womb that allows everything to be created. And the everything is the masculine energy, which is the one that goes out and manifests something outside. Um, but that's something from our point of view as humans. Actually, for the universe, is positive and negative. So the negative would be this dot that is nothing, is the point, the unity. And then from there, creates duality. So one negative and the other positive in order to be observed and to manifest something through movement. When it moves, it creates a wave, is the third option. So the wave, the frequencies, creates the third option. So we have now this idea that we have something that is negative, something that is positive, that in the movement creates something new. So this is the basis of what we have as a proton, electron, and um a neutron, for example. So um, that's the first sacred trinity that we could have in our reality, in the third dimension. A little too small for us to see. So yep. gods and goddesses decided, hey, look, let's make this a little <laughs> easier on you guys. Let's make it a, a little bit bigger. So they took that, They no, the universe became itself uh, from that shape as a... Um, as a tetrahedron, and multiply itself by thousands and millions, creating molecule, and from the molecule, uh, components, chemicals, and, and so on. So throughout evolution, everything tried to keep the same pattern that was created with the positive and the negative and neutral. So that gets us to the stars, when you have a sun, and then you have a moon, and you can call moon the negative because it's, it brings you down inside and the sun brings you out to see. So you, you can take this, uh, these options in the, in the reality. And eventually this same creature that was creating once and again said, maybe if I divide myself also in positive and negative, I would be able to create different shapes. So it creates the feminine and the masculine for the first time. And I'm not saying woman and man. I'm saying feminine and masculine, which is energies, totally different from reproduction. So creates this, this two, it manifests this two 
that eventually in evolution, some creatures will need to manifest the uh, female and the mm, masculine to um, to make it physical, to make mm-hmm. to, to make that um, uh, real. But it's not that the that the universe was made like that. It was an option for the universe uh, because for some trees, for the rocks, for some animals, it doesn't work like this. So you cannot put that system in the entire universe like if there is a father and a mother because that's only for mammals. So we mammals start to create the idea that the universe has a feminine and a masculine, but because we are mammals, not because it's the truth. Um, so we are a distortion of the positive and the negative called women and men. And, um, and that distortion was able to manifest and create many things with a negative, which is called the matrix and the positive called the pattern. So all creatures are created through a matrix following some patterns. Matrix and pattern are the origin of the word mother and father in the all languages. So the mother is the matrix, that network that manifests all possibilities. The pattern are the lines that you have to follow. So it's the that that you follow in as an idea in, in, in life. And then you manifest yourself through both as a son or a daughter. Feminine, masculine, etc. So we are just a distortion or a projection of what the universe really is doing, which is creating waves of vibration of positive and negative in order to manifest realities. So we are just one of those experiences that is trying to figure out. Mm. Um, so it's not the complete truth. It's our truth. Yeah. And when you say, we described this on the podcast, you know, the word distortion can have weight in which it's bad, but really this is just energy coming into form. And when it comes into mm-hmm. form, it creates us and it creates this thing that's not the pure energy anymore. It's obviously mixed and that's why it's a, it's a projection of the thing, but that's also mixed with a variety of other different forces to create, you know, a, a manifest being. Yeah, it's... um we usually have this division of trinity also that we call spirit, soul, and body. Um, and it's common for us to say we have a body and inside we have a soul and above we have a spirit. But it's not that. Also, it's, that's a separation that we created like mom, dad, and son. Or the father, the Holy Spirit, I don't know, and, and the son. <laughs> so, <laughs> Strong in Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I've never seen a Holy Ghost having a kid. So <laughs> you've been a lot of places. There is something missing there. <laughs> so um, the father, the mother, and the son. <laughs> I like to say. Um, so this um, these three um, th- these three are the 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 basis. Um, sorry, what were I saying? Well, I think ultimately where, you know, we were talking about how just these energies are oh, essential. Uh, yes, sorry, yeah. I, I, I remember. So, um, so we separate these three, but actually they are the same. It's the same cell, the same species, yeah. the same human. So 
actually the spirit is not something apart from the other two. The spirit just changed its vibration to become a soul. And the soul changed its, its vibration to become a body. So the body is just a projection of the soul and the spirit. Which means that you should not go up above to find the spirit. You should go within in the atoms to find the spirit. You should not go outside or other lives to connect with your soul. You just have to go to your emotion, the hormones, to find the soul. Um, so it's everything connected as that sacred trinity. In ancient times, they tried to explain this in many different ways, like you have one sun and one moon, um, so you have the mother and the father. For the ancient ones, the mother was the sun and the father was the moon because the moon was guiding us as the mother was giving everything. Mm. So it was completely opposite to what we have now. Um, and we were the kids learning and creating and so on. But if you go to Mars, it doesn't work. Yeah. If you go to Sirius, it doesn't work because you have two sons. So two fathers and many moons. So, um, big family, <laughs> big family. Yeah. So this concept of the Trinity as mom, dad is only here in this planet. If you go to Jupiter, the family grew up. <laughs> it's, it's very different, different. So, um, so the concepts of how we started to, to project this into the gods, um, is, uh, into the divine is, is just a mammal perspective. And, um, and all the trinities that in every, um, in every culture they were trying to explain was about that, was about what they were looking at. Oh, we have three things, or they were trying to figure out three main things. You need a mom and a dad to have a kid. So the universe needs a trinity to create something new. Mm. Um, but, um, you have three things. Um, because the kid is not only the one that creates, it's part of the Trinity. So what creates really is love, which is the unity between three aspects. Mm. So that's the main core. So the sacred union is love. Exactly. Um, and love have many ways to be understood, uh, which takes us to another thing. But um, in every culture, this unity of love through, th through three things were seen in many different ways. For example, you have the main trinity in Greek mythology or in Egyptian mythology. You have many trinities around, but sorry for the word, but they were fucking all around with everyone. Why? I hope it could start it again, everybody. Because in order to create, if, you, if the family is always the same, you will have the same results all the time. So they understood. In order to create more food, you have to cross some plants to have bigger corn, to have bigger... Mm -hmm. So uh, they did the same. And that's why in ancient mythology, you see that the gods were fooling around all the time with everyone. And said, so Why? Um, because of that, <laughs> because of creation, they, in order to create, they needed to do uh, many expressions with many around.
Yeah. And I know a lot of you are being like, I knew it. I'm just a god and a goddess. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Confirmed. <laughs> In, uh, you have, you have purview to, experiences in which there was physical manifestations of these energies in a very pure form. Can you talk about any that perhaps you encountered a, a goddess, a priestess, a priest that really, you know, obviously nothing is perfect in the, in the world of distortion, but really tried to embody some of these energies in, in physical form that you were able to either witness or hear about in your stories or um, that came through. Well, the, the, the Atlantean civilization, they were creating a civilization in which they said, we are making uh, people into gods and goddesses. So the main uh, advertisement of that civilization was, we are here to be divine. And, um, and we can be... It's a better. strong marketing campaign. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so... Um, in a in a very different way in which uh, we have been living in the past uh, three thousand years, um, in which we believe that there is a divine there, and in order to be divine, we have to leave this world. Um, in the ancients, in the ancients um, people, the ancient ones, they said, "We are already in the skies. We are levitating around the sun. We are part of the heavens." So we should not leave this world in order to become the divine. We should make that divine here because we are here in the skies. So uh, many of the Atlantean people, they they describe all the civilization in order to become that. And priests and, and priests like Jahut, called Thoth, uh, Asia, which is Isis and all these uh, Usur, uh, Os- Osiris, and all these uh, gods and goddesses were not gods and goddesses. They were people. They were people that accomplished to recognize that they were divine, that everything was in their body was light. We are light. Every molecule that uh, every atom is basically light, uh, energy. So they accomplished to manifest that, to to acknowledge that they were part of every tree, every mountain, everything. So they became an example for everyone. So they embodied the, the divinity. That's why they call them gods, even if they were, as we think about a god. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why gods walked in between Humans. Sometimes it was not aliens, it was people that accomplished to become. Did you ever get to meet any of those people? In this life? Or in no. the, another life? In another life. In another life, yes. What was it like? What was the experience? They were all the time covered in white and you could you couldn't see their faces. So they were actually like <laughs> They were like... very white uh, like the 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 sun would hurt the skin. So they were all covered with a veil. Uh-huh. But could you feel a, a particular energy from them? Yes, it, 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 it was like, you do like this. <laughs> yeah, you would naturally. Just... And you were not, but by culture, you were not meant to see into their eyes. Uh-huh. No. So you always had to do this. Yeah. Interesting. 
Yeah, but just a few times they were there, not many. Yeah. When we're in this world now, in this existence, and there's certainly people that, you know, as I said on the podcast yesterday, I, I met, you know, Don Miguel Ruiz, who, you know, was as close as I've felt to someone who was a being of radiating light, you know, uh, an eighth dimensional being, of, an ascended master here. And a lot, many people who've met Ram Dass have said the same thing. And we see some of these examples that, that do exist, but many of us don't have those encounters. They're, they're very, you know, maybe if we were in Nepal in certain areas that we could find them in certain, or in India, I'm sure they exist in other places where there aren't books being written and, and things, many places. But for us, who, you know, don't have the ability to learn directly and experience directly what that is, because it's a profound impact, you know, to experience that that's possible. It definitely shifted me and it shifts a lot of people. But if we are using our own bodies and each other in relationship to try and understand the union, understand these two forces what would you say is some of the productive ways to use, you know, relationship, to use our bodies to help bring us, you know, more, you know, closer to the state where we're just aware of who we really are? Well, the, the body is the main machine to to create. So it's a generator of energy all the time, um, physically, emotionally, mentally. We are creating energy all the time and that not only affects the world we live in it it's also affecting even other planets um and other systems and dimensions uh every decision every action we do we modify other realities um so um using our body as a way of uh, modifying many things um, is uh, is key to a great transformation um, because sometimes we feel that we are dense in a very dense uh, way that we have to light up and go somewhere in the fifth dimension but we have to remember that uh, we are not where we are here that we are just a tiny little part of our own reality. We are like the anchor of a boat. So the boat can sink if there is no an anchor. So our bodies are like the anchors for the entire being that we are. And if we are not here, present in this, in this um, world, so the boat can think the thing is that we have be we, we we should be connected with the how do you say chain. Rope? chain chain uh to the boat which is our connection otherwise we are there and the boat leaves <laughs> which happens for many <laughs> um many boats going away <laughs> and many anchors here in the sand um <laughs> Um, so the thing is that our work here is to be anchored here and we have tools in this world like food, like sex, like, um, um, exercise, like many things, uh, breathing. practical, yeah, breathing, mainly it, 
that seem silly sometimes, but that they are the key for holding that boat, which is the spirit. Um, so the thing is that we have to, we have learned about this for so long since we are humans about sexuality, food, uh, practical things like doing the initiatic path and walk around the planet and feeling the ground and doing so many things, very earthy things until there was this moment in which people start to feel that we were punished to be here in this reality and that we are trapped in this reality. So they start to look to the skies and try to escape from this reality and leave to the boat, um, believing that in the boat is the real, the, the reality. Um, so um, for the last 3,000 or 2,000 years, we have been denying all the tools that make the spirit exist because uh, we are not trapped here. The spirit created this because the spirit is willing to manifest. For the spirit to be unity is very boring. I told you yesterday. Um, because the, the will of the universe is to create, to manifest, to do things with things it has within. So if we all get enlightened right now and we all go to the fifth dimension and suddenly we understand everything, someone will say, and now what? What do we do? So someone will say, well, let's go back. <laughs> At least there is food. <laughs> so sex, food, sex, laughter, food, whatever, dancing. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, so the thing is, try to live here with the tools that we have here, but not losing this chain that connects us to the to the spirit, to the higher self that we are. Um, so th- this past two thousand years, we have been denying the reality as if it is a punishment and we blame ourselves if we feel pleasure um sorry but we're the christians <laughs> and islam uh semitic people basically not christians but semitic people they suffer so much in the desert that they thought that the only way to escape was to suffer a little bit more um and the people in the rainforest said, I don't know what you're talking about. That's why when you go to Native Americans, they say, why to suffer <laughs> if we live plenty? Um, so we, uh, the, the Semitic people spread along the entire planet a vision of suffering that in 2000 years have been uh, ruling our minds. Um, that's why most of the people start to look at truth in the Amazon, in the desert here, in Native Americans from the South America, Central America, and, or the Australian people, or I don't know, Asia, <clears throat> because there's other points of view that are not about suffering, that are about living this reality as a way of manifestation of the spirit. So um, the ways in which we can really live plenty and be useful for the universe is if we live plenty here with the reality that we have designed for ourselves. Mm. 
you know, it's, you talk about the Semitic people and, and I resonate with that deeply, but there's also in Eastern philosophy and traditions, there's a lot of people who've studied in that way and they will casually use the word meat suit for this body, but it's almost in a denigrating way. Like, oh yeah, this is just the meat suit. The important thing is the spirit. Right. And I think there's some of us here who've found ourselves casually denigrating this. Yeah. Here. This fucking magic portal manifesting incarnation of the soul and the spirit in form. This is it. This is all of the things as well. Like, so there's not only in that, in the Semitic way, but there's also in some other philosophies where it's like, no, 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 let's just meditate out of this thing. Let the body go to waste. The ascetic, the ascetic, you know, attitudes. Whereas really what you're saying, what I've always really felt and believed and, you know, we'll, I'll, I'll, me and Vailana, I'll talk to you guys about some of the tantric path we've been on and really using this, like, all right, let's, let's see what this body is capable of when you unleash the maximum amount of pleasure and energy and laughter and love and sensuality and support. And let's, let's honor this, this vessel in a different way. And so I think it's a, it's a reminder to be like, no, 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 no. Like we got, we got something magical here. Like yep. really, really magical. We won't be able to hold on to it forever, but while we fucking have it, let's go. Yes, is the the body biology is is the most perfect technology ever created by the spirit, and it's like it's like if you um uh like if you have been designing the best car ever, and when it's ready, you say no, I don't deserve this because. I'd rather be in the forest and, you know, <laughs> but, but I did it all my life and, you know, and said, so, so let's drive a little bit. Um, yeah, let's push the buttons. Let's, yeah. let's, let's use the levers. What does this one do? Yeah. Oh, this one's in your, this one's in your anus. Great. Yeah. Push it. You made it. And you will figure out amazing things. <laughs> but really, but really though, it's like, it's this crazy idea. Like, no, no, no. I'm not going to push that button. <laughs> No, but no, no. You, you made yeah. it. You made that button. As as the manifesting principle of the universe, you fucking made it. Push it. <laughs> At least once. Yeah. See what happens. At least you have to try. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yes. The, um. Every part, every part of the body of of the body has a connection with the fourth, fifth, and sixth dimension. Um. Uh, seventh is another thing, but uh, until the sixth dimension. Each part of your body is connected with entire divinity. And, and, uh, any point you, you touch, any pleasure you feel is felt in all those dimensions. Um, so, um, sometimes we believe that if we feel something here, for example, in the sixth dimension, I, there are some beings that, um, well, here in this third dimension too, but, uh, suffering. Why do we have to suffer? And the suffering that we feel as individuals, when you put all that together as a suffering, there are beings in the sixth dimension that feel pleasure because they don't understand the amount of, um, of, of suffering as something bad, but as a conjunction of energy that is discharging in the body like some people love to suffer where there are beings that live because of that suffering that we create. And there are others that can feel the joy uh, very high. So, so 
anything, our body is like this machine that whatever you touch, you are modifying other realities. Like when you understand why your knee is hurting and suddenly you understand that this is connected with all your fathers and grandparents and all everybody. And when you do something with your leg, you heal all your history and just by doing this. And um, it's a complete complex and, and an incredible machine that the spiritual realm has created in order to be able to, to live their dreams, our dreams. Uh, so, um, like this planet, this planet was also for that. So, um, talking about the feminine and the, and the masculine energy, uh, both energies are within every human. Both energies are in every one of us. It's, uh, and biology just accomplished to manifest it physically and um, to manifest other things like keep going with evolution, like having kids and so on. But um, when we discover that that potentiality is within us, it's not in tools outside and that in every part of our body, we have the ability to connect with all that. So we will discover really the divine within, uh, which is not something hidden in a flesh suit. It's, uh, it's the flesh suit that embodies the spirit, the divine. Um, and uh, when we see the body as something separate from the spirit, it's because we have been living in cultures that made us believe that we are trapped in a body, that our essence should be free from our body. Mm. Uh, if that would be like that, why not to kill ourselves right now? Why not? Because the system was prepared to live, not to die. Mm. And um, because the spirit wants to live. And to die is just another step in life. But it's not the main one. Because when you die, you immediately are born again. Uh-huh. Taco Bell's delivery meal for There's two because cravings are better shared. Only available for delivery. I didn't know that that's was... surprising, but and that's the problem oh, for those who want to die. I don't know if you want to go to heaven or something like that, <laughs> but that's only in your mind. <laughs> when you die, you are born again. Uh, immediately, um, but your mind thinks that that process is eternal. So that's why you can enjoy kind of a heaven or a hell, whatever you want. But actually, energy is transforming constantly in the matter. So positive, negative, positive, negative. It's a constant. Well, that, that's the. I mean, that's the paradox of upon death, you're transcending the third. You're not no longer bound in the third dimension. At least accessing the fourth which is the dimension of timelessness mm-hmm. so in the dimension of timelessness it's both it's both eternity and immediate and both yeah. of those are the same so it's a, it's a very interesting paradox but i just want to shift it back to one important concept and this was the idea of how we have judgments about pain or we have judgments about what we feel but if you start to shift that 
and look at those like, all right, these are just different notes on a keyboard or different synths in a, in a symphony. I remember once in uh and I was in a, in a polyamorous relationship and it got really hard at certain times and it was incredibly, I was incredibly jealous and pain and in pain and suffering. And I remember one point I had this realization at one of the most difficult times for my sweetheart was with someone that was really hard for me, for her to be with. And uh, I remember thinking like, you know what? Like this feeling is so strong. It's such a strong feeling. I have like a deep appreciation for this. And one day, and I was actually driving the cars and passenger seat. I was, had my hand outside the window and I could feel the wind hitting my hand. And I was like, this is like so much wind, like so much energy hitting my body. And I was like, I wonder if one day, you know, I'll miss being able to just feel this, even though it's terrible. It's like, I don't like how it feels. No. Like there's a beauty to feeling this much energy, you know, and that little subtle perspective shift changed how I approached it. There was like this little twinge of appreciation. And we can do that with, with anything just to say like, oh, this is a lot of energy that I'm feeling. This is, this is beautiful. And, and it's kind of this warrior poet mindset that I've always kind of had. Like the only thing I don't want is to feel nothing, to feel numb, to have everything be muted and gray. Like as long as I'm feeling something, like really feeling something, feeling really deeply sad or deeply in love or deeply in joy or deeply in laughter, like that's, that's living, you know, and if we can just kind of gently remove the judgment about this is good, this is bad and just be like, no, I'm here to feel like I'm really here to feel. And that's why we decided to live here in this right. third dimension. Uh, otherwise we would be in the seventh. Yeah. Um, we have a part of us living in the seventh dimension, not feeling anything and feeling everything at the same time. Um, the lighted ones, uh, they are holding the meaning of everything. Um, but they cannot have any meaning if we don't do stuff. So it's us or the part of us in the third dimension that are able to, to give all these memories and all this information to the entire universe of how to live. And it's all about this perception of things that changed completely everything. It's not a good energy or a bad energy. It's how we approach that energy. Um, because, uh, for example, people is scared of an, of an earthquake, for example, uh, or earthquake can kill people. Yeah. But, if there is no earthquake, we wouldn't have this amazing view. But not only that, we wouldn't have evolution. And an earthquake for Earth is us doing this. How many have died right now? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I'm relaxed. So, um, <laughs> so the. the there is no bad or good for the universe. It's releasing of energy. Yeah. So what we put as as bad energy or good energy is really a point of view, a perception of our morality. Mm. And uh, the universe doesn't have morality. I'm sorry if you have. <laughs> but but um, morality is something related to the place where we live and where we were born. Mm. Um, is the point of view of one place. That, that's what means morality. It comes from the word morate. It's a place where you live. And it's how the people see from the place you live. So if you move and you change your place, you change your morality. You change the way you see the things. 
and the universe doesn't have a place. So it doesn't have morality. So it's not good, no bad. It's just how you approach to the energy. How do you want to leave that energy that you are experiencing? Yeah. And if we have, we have the ability to, you know, access and adopt perspectives from, from these other, when we really understand them. And I think, I think we underestimate how much choice we have and how powerful we are to be able to adapt this. And so if we, if we choose kind of like I did unconsciously, if we choose, I was almost adopting a sixth dimensional perspective when I was really suffering and in that pain to say like, Ah, oh, there's something beautiful about this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like we have the ability to do that all the time. And sometimes it can manifest in physical form. In my talk with Vailana, we'll talk a little bit about the, you know, what we call the Black Sutra. And this is a whole map that we created, but this is how we transmute the sensation of pain into the sensation of pleasure. It's like, okay, we're going to use this energy and mix it with this energy and it's going to multiply but with our own mind able to change that energy into a different type of energy like we have this power to be able to do that and so it just depends on how we approach it we can approach a cold plunge and be like oh my god it's going to be cold but you know as Wim Hof says cold is an emotion like this is our idea this is a sensation and we shift our mind about it we just shift it like no and adopt this other purview this other perspective and then all of a sudden it's exhilarating from the moment like from the drop and this is the power we have as creators. Like, like we can create far beyond what we thought that we could create. We can change things that we think are immutable by our own psyche. Yeah, maybe I can't, you know, sing this umbrella up into the air like maybe some of the ancients no, no. could. <laughs> but eventually, <laughs> but I can change the way I look at a certain sensation or a certain energy and actually change it. Mm-hmm. Like actually change it. Yes. Um, some uh, recurring question is, is there a free will? Like, we can we choose? Um, I always answer that no, we don't have free will. Of course not. Uh, but there is free will, which is very different. There is free will. But for those who remember that the body is a projection of the spirit and not the spirit is a projection from the body. Um this would be like this. Um, the spirit was able to manifest the body by free will. But the body has matrix and patterns. So it is manifested through so many links that it's really difficult to, to untangle all the links that, that made up the, the matter. So once you are inside the matter, there is no free will as a person, as a personality, because the personality is a program that doesn't have free will because it's not the spiritual. So me, Matthias, I don't have free will. The only way I can, I can have free will is when I connect with my higher self mm-hmm. and I, and I let my body be what it is supposed to be. So I am not ruled by someone else. I am connected with my real self that is using this. The problem is when I want to have free will being Matthias. It's like, uh, like telling to the car, you can go. <laughs> and the car won't move <coughs> because it needs many things from this being yeah. to be moved. So 
I don't know if it happened usually to you that uh, bad things happen when your ego is in control, <laughs> usually. Um, and that doesn't mean that ego is bad. The ego is really useful. It's like the fuel for the car. So without ego, you can do anything. But ego can't drive. Ego is the fuel for driving, but it's not the driver. Understand the difference. So it's not about leaving the ego away. No, it's, it's don't put the fuel in the, in the front seat, you know? <laughs> um, so, uh, when we let the ego locate in the place where it belongs, which is the fuel for everything, but you leave your higher self being in control of the car that is the body, um, suddenly you have free will. You can choose, you can feel, you can decide because it's not your personality in control. And that takes a long time to, to work on because it's not that easy, of course, because, um, sometimes we believe that we are living the present. For example, we say this is the present, but it's not. From the point of view of the fourth dimension, we are living in the past because Everything that I am doing now, for example, when I speak, I do this. Why? And maybe you don't do that. Why? Because I'm Argentinian, Italian. So when I speak, if I don't do this, I die. <laughs> But it's my body. It's, it's my body saying you have to move now. So um, it's my grandfather, my grand-grandfather, my grandmother, everyone saying... This, in order to explain something. Um, so, um, so I, I, I don't, con I can't control. I don't have free wheels. So, uh, uh, when I speak, I move. Uh, it's, it's my family moving. So it's my past. So I'm living my past right now. So my body is living in Italy in this moment. Um, so, um, because of this, um, we have to, go and heal our history, uh, see our parents, where we come from, to heal the energy, the feminine energy we have inside, the masculine energy we have inside, to heal our history, our our culture, our perceptions of religion, of spirituality. We have to do so many things to teach again to the body that is a tool that has been receiving all these data in order to work. Uh, but if I... I'm willing to be free and to manifest and create by myself and not by others. Um, I have to connect with something bigger than just me. Uh, I, all this is the fuel. I am, I am able to speak a lot because in my fuel, there is Italian and Argentinian blood that makes me speak a lot. <laughs> and sometimes without any sense. Um, <laughs> that's what we do. <laughs> down there uh, so um, so th that's a tool that I have received from the past that is not free that is something that conditions me to be what I am uh, but I can use that that sometimes can be a problem for many people I can use that uh, to be useful um, from my free will leaving my higher self be in charge of the situation And sometimes I've heard that some people say, but I, I don't want to leave 
that people um, be in charge of me. And that's the mistake that we do, that if that people is someone else, like if someone in the universe is different from us, and actually we don't. As you said, uh, that I explained to you yesterday, everything is an organism. Uh, if if the cells in the intestine doesn't match with the cells in the heart, if they don't work together with the cells of the brain, so the body dies. And if every cell of the body wants to be the heart, like few people want, like we want to go and live in the fifth dimension, the heart of everything, well, that's a heart attack <laughs> for the system. <laughs> uh, too many people being enlightened. We need people working in the kidneys like this <laughs> in mm-hmm. Earth. Uh, people working with the shit. Um, <laughs> otherwise we die. Mm-hmm. So, um, we need cells living in these realities too. So, because we are an organism, it's not like, oh, but they live better. They have to deal with many things. We have to deal with our part, but we are the body. So, uh, whatever we do here, even if it is very low in energy, is useful for many other beings in the body, uh, which is the universe. So um, it's about how you decide to live from your ego, trying to survive, or from the higher self, using what you have created as a tool. And now you understand why I was so excited to have a chance to talk to Matthias de Stefano. <laughs> Um, all right, we have uh, we have 30 minutes for questions, and obviously you guys will now be faced with the task that I was I've been faced with for the past few days. What the hell do you ask a man who can give you an answer to pretty much anything? Um, so, but let's do it. So we're going to put a microphone up over there, and really, you know, I just encourage people who really feel guided by this, uh, guided from a deep place, to ask uh, ask whatever question comes through, I will let you know, too, that I am going to have to immediately run off stage at 2 o'clock to make it to the sound check for our album release tonight. So I love you all, and I'll say goodbye right now. But let's uh, let's go for 30 minutes here. Hello. Hi. Thank you. <laughs> if you could give one technique that every human on the planet would do every day for a month, what would it be? Breathing. <laughs> um... <laughs> Breathing properly. <laughs> that would be, uh, there are many techniques for breathing for sure. There are many, but that balances everything. Uh, different ways of, of breathing. Um, is the, is the best technique to balance any hormones, uh, thoughts, the spirits. Basically, I was telling yesterday that, um, um, spirituality comes from the Latin word spirare, that means breathe. So the only way to become spiritual is by breathing properly. <laughs> so I guess that it would be become aware of your breathing every day. Do you mimic a type of breathing that I could copy? <laughs> Please. A copy? No, it's always through the nose, not the mouth. Um, for the mouth is other things like releasing energy, but with the nose is always from here and try to count as many numbers every day one second more like 
one, maybe you can, and then how, until how many you can, the farthest you can count when you are breathing in. And then you hold the air the same amount of time mm-hmm. of those seconds. And then you release through the nose the same amount of time. Mm-hmm. So start with four or three and then every day add a new one. Mm-hmm. And, and always from here, not here, like. Perfect. Thank you. And if there's time at the end, could you tell us whatever your favorite story or myth is? Story or myth? But I want to give other people a chance yeah. to ask questions. Okay, but so there's time. Yeah. For the love of God. A, a final, a final of story time. <laughs> um, you know, just to briefly sum up for the podcast, you know, it was a beautiful way that we drew all this intergalactic cosmic conversation <laughs> together. And he said, look, there's three things, you know, Listen to what your body wants to eat truly. Understand that if you want to see more clearly and be, you know, have more light, eat food that has been touched by light, the fruits, the plants, these things. If, you know, if you really want to connect with your spiritual self, breathe, you know, through your nose in the way you describe. And if you want to raise your vibration, fucking laugh. Like oh. laugh. And those oh. are the, those are the three things that, uh, <laughs> that he mentioned. So just thought I would mention that and, uh, and give you guys the cliff notes before the, uh, podcast comes out. But I thought that was just really beautiful. All right. Um, so I have found geometry and, uh, different dimensional spaces to be very useful in talking about spirituality. Um, it's partially because I have a, background in physics and mathematics. Mm-hmm. Um, I did my PhD related to space time. Um, and when I get to talking about our current reality, I usually get stuck on whether to refer to this as three dimensions or four dimensions, because there are a lot of reasons to think of time as just another space that it, or another dimension that is intimately connected to the three spatial dimensions. Mm-hmm. Like, um, so a lot of physics actually happens in four dimensional equations rather than the three dimensions. Um, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that, like whether this is a, whether you think of this as a three dimensional reality or a four dimensional reality in this moment right here, we, this, like a time slice is three dimensions, yeah. but the full thing uh, past and future included is four dimensions. Yes, uh, we are actually already living in the four dimension completely. Um, but our brain hasn't been uh, adapted to perceive the four dimension. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's why we only perceive the third one. But actually all the reality is living through uh, four dimensions. Um, of course, we cannot say there is a third and fourth and fifth and the second, like, like separated because all of them are together. What I would say is that we live in a multidimensional uh, reality in which our, uh, our present time is living in the fourth dimension, but our evolution is, are, is able to perceive only three. Um, but many of us, we are already evolving to perceive the fourth. That's why we can remember, we can feel different things and so on. So um, I guess that science should look into spirituality 
to see what is coming next. <laughs> Sometimes. I would really like to get some of my mathematician friends to kind of look at the mathematics of different dimensions yeah. and how that might relate to some of the stuff you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but four dimension rules. <laughs> that's, that's what I've been feeling, but like a lot of people only think of this as 3D. And like yeah. I talk to them and I'm like, oh, in this four dimensional space, I, I've been jumping back and forth in the way I describe it. Yeah. Uh, it's, is that, it, it, there's a lot to talk about it, but, uh, actually is that is, uh, we are living in a time of fourth dimension right now, but we can, most of the people cannot perceive it. Mm. Thank you, bro. Thank you. Check, check. Love your talk. Um, Thank you. you said that the only way to really get free will is through the spirit, through something bigger than you. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the best practice to connect with something bigger than you? Uh, um, I guess that try to do or go and practice things that you would never do. <laughs> and break your head until you don't know who you are. <laughs> Welcome to like for service Sedona. <laughs> Good job. Yeah. Or or go to India without insurance. <laughs> <laughs> Level two for service <laughs> India without insurance. <laughs> Something like that. That that's why a lot of people goes to to India to seek spirituality to find the higher self. India, um, um, India represents in the planet, uh, as an example, India represents in the planet the intestines of the planet, uh, which means that it tries to get all the shit out of you, so you can only take the essence. <laughs> so that's why all the territory is is doing that process. But you can do that just by changing. Uh, for a moment, your life as um, something unexpected, like you were saying about ayahuasca, for example, like it's something that breaks all the the ego, the control, everything, to crack into you and and allow you to speak with your real self. Mm-hmm. So it should be stuff that makes you forget who you are, <laughs> basically. Got it. Yeah. Thank you. Hi. Thank you for your talk. It was awesome. Um, my question is, is when I was younger, I had, I was in a life-threatening car accident and I had experienced this feeling. I think it was when you were describing the dimensions of like feeling everything or like knowing everything, but not having anything at all. And my interpretation of that was that I had an out-of-body experience, but now I'm like, huh, I don't know what I would call it. So (laughs) I'm just curious, like, how would you describe that and like what's going on with the body or the soul like when you do experience something like that? Mm-hmm. Well, the the body, the, the existence basically is a um, conjunction of data. Is That's why they call it the matrix. But it's not because it's like a program. It's like a network of data, information, all connected one to another. And so when you feel a hit of something, which is, for example, death, um, all this data creates like a expansion of wave, the, uh, a wave of expansion that, that moves everything and disconnects some data from another's. So this creates the, the feeling that you are expanding, uh, because really you, 
you, your body doesn't end here. It can, it follows, it continues. So when you feel the, the, the heat of something, everything like expands and suddenly all the information that is around in your magnetical field, um, which is past information, future information, anything kind of moves so fast that you in one second can see all your life going through like, um, and many other information from other levels of your consciousness that were there, but not connected with your core. Um, so what happens when you have this experience is that your body expanded into outside of your magnetical field and you started to connect with information around and in other levels that you don't usually do because you're focusing what you are. Um, and, and that's why it's so confusing and no time and everything, you, you start to see geometries and, and, and weird stuff. Uh, and when you die, basically it happens the same, but it continues. It's not, it doesn't come back like a like this, but it, con- it continues. So the matter starts to spread in a different way, which is degradation, but it's spread. And, um, and the, the soul spreads more and the spirit expands more. So, uh, it's like a wave, uh, when, when it's happening. It's not the soul coming out of the body. It's like a wave. Thanks, fans. That's why you start to connect with data, information and stuff. <laughs> Just a casual, complete explanation of a near death experience. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> uh, one, I love you so much. So great for your work. Two, thank you for answering questions about my young trip to India that I didn't even know that I had. <laughs> great. Um, and my real question is because I've heard you talk about your memories from other incarnations, I'm curious to know from this lifetime what you're doing right here, right now with us in a future incarnation or in another present moment. What would you want your legacy from this lifetime to really be? And what would you be sharing with people in that future gathering on a microphone, being interviewed? What's alive in your heart about this moment now? Uh, well, I, I, what I am doing right now, um, in, in this lifetime is trying to connect some data that was disconnected and, in some levels we need for that to be connected again so we could restart the system for this new time. Uh, so I describe myself right now like a, a electrician. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but for the future, I mean, um, what do I expect? I, I, I love pedagogy and I love education. Um, more than anything. And, uh, that's why I, my, my life brought me to answer questions and try to explain stuff. Um, so I would, what I do here besides my other task, being a portal. <laughs> he dropped that on the podcast yesterday. He's like, well, besides my main job, which is being a portal, I really like to teach. I was like, I just let it slide for a little while. I was like, I can't hold it any longer. What did you just say? So, so that, that's my other job. But, um, but, 
my right now what I'm doing is is for me is education, which is not educate people to know stuff, but educate means actually educo, educare in Latin. That means to bring what is within outside. So it's that's the meaning of education, and so it's trying to help remembering uh, everyone what you already know, but you just forgot. So I would like that in the future, people could um, uh, could use all this as, as something, as a basis for for what they have come to do, like a map. I'm trying to leave a map. <laughs> yeah. You're doing a pretty damn good job. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So grateful for your presence here. Um, we met briefly in Egypt last year, and I've been dying to ask you these questions. Okay. And so as Egypt is the throat chakra of the earth, and you've been speaking about the ley lines that are overlaid over this planet, what is the holy trinity, the matter, and the pattern of the matrix of Egypt, Atlantis, and the stars, specifically Syria. Mm-hmm. What is the link, you mean, um, between them? Um, all the mother civilization that lead, lead us here was Sirius. Um, we call it Inna. And um, Sirius was, is the place where the main civilization used to guide uh, towards planets that were awakening. <clears throat> so, um, in between Orion and Sirius, there is um, um, a thought of the universe as a place of harvesting consciousness, uh, data. As much data you can re- harvest the, the best for the universe. So, they were looking for planets that were awakening. So um, Sirius was kind of the place that led other civilizations to go to this kind of planet, and one of them was Earth. So Atlantean civilization was one of the first ones uh, that has been molded by entirely other beings from, from the stars to make this planet into a portal uh, for that information and for many others that were trying to connect with these experiences here. Um, it's a long story, but uh, basically Atlantis, uh, Atlantis spread along the planet to seek for those specific spots where every temple and pyramid would download information from Sirius and um, Pleiades and um, Orion. Um, so that's why all the pyramids were built in that way uh, along the planet and because of the links and information that Sirius gave to us. Thank you. The mother civilization. Thank you. I have some sense that death, both the final crescendo as well as the many preparatory opportunities before that, have more possibility of being pleasurable and productive. And I'm curious if there have been existences in which this were true, and if you can support us in remembering how to facilitate this. To facilitate what? Death, Death being more pleasurable and or productive. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
many many ancient cultures did that because uh, I remember that in Atlantean culture when we were born or our kids were born, we used to say to them, uh, "Welcome to life, the path to death," and and the whole life was a preparation to die. So we were like, um, like happy to wait for death because it was not something taboo that you shouldn't speak about or no, don't, don't speak about death. It was like, yeah, you remember that you would die <laughs> and that when you die, it would be amazing because after that you will expand and feel and all that. I'm just going to say that that's changed at this moment. I would concur. Yeah. We're going beyond so, that place. We were raised from our childhood to not to fear death because death was an expansion for the spirit. And the only way in which we can die with pleasure is if we live with pleasure. Because in the moment of death, everything that you have lived and your body have lived expands. So the other reality that you will live is accordingly to the vibration that you have in your body. That's why we had to live a plenty life, a happy life, in order to expand death. And when people were trying to, were, were about to die, I remember some priestess doing like this tantric massage to the body, uh, making them feel pleasure, um, uh, singing songs, uh, um, dancing, celebrating, everyone was dressed with colors. Uh, it was not like a, like a goodbye. It was like, see you later. <laughs> and it would be great. So, um, and uh, of course, some, they took some, uh, plants medicines. So, so the transition would be, um, uh, a trip, basically. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I'm in. Sign me up. (laughs) That's a good way to die. That's the way. That's the way. And it's just one of those interesting things because it makes, of course, perfect sense. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, Laura Huxley wrote that one shining moment where she was leading Aldous through his death. And it's such a touching piece to to encounter. But he was on, uh, I think he was on LSD and might have been another medicine as well. And she's just encouraging him. But it was at least this glimpse in a different way. But what you're describing, when that becomes within the culture and you understand that the pleasure of death is woven with the pleasure of life and how to to sing and to have a, a massage and energy, even sexual and all of the energy pushed in and the medicine and then the hymns and, and make this a joyous transition. Yeah. Like, of course. Yeah. Like, of course. Of course. When my, when my when my grandmother was dying, um, I, I created a portal in the hospital. <laughs> I put all crystals, songs and colors and DNA, uh, rainbows everywhere. And all the nurses wanted to be in that room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I put some stuff below the, the bed to create a portal so she could go faster and, and everything. And it was happy. The room was happy. So that was the, the, the goal. So to go happy. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's like to lower energy and you're trapping the other ones yeah mm-hmm. makes sense yep hi thank hi. you so much for your service uh, my question is how would you instruct 
or guide our generation to heal generational womb trauma and not just for those who have a womb, but mm-hmm. for those that came from a womb. Who, who came from a womb? What, what, sorry. All, all people. All people. Men and women. How do you heal the womb in all, in all people? The womb. The womb, the place. Ah, of, yeah. Yeah. Womb. Um, well, um, men has a womb uh, called prostate. Prostate. How do you say in English? Prostate. Prostate. Okay. Um, I don't know if you if you know, but male are a malformation of a woman. Sorry. <laughs> Commercial Ronald. The Arthurian people, the Indian people, and the Syrian people came to this world to teach and give humans the key to open your eyes within. Anunnaki claim themselves like those protecting humans from the species. Um, uh, the universe, the universe only signs feminine, <laughs> only signs the uh, feminine organisms. And then, uh, if the if the evolution needs to make a reservoir of uh, of information, they create masculine. Uh, so basically, um, all the masculine organs are a malformation of of the feminine organs. So that means that we have them too. Uh, we have the ovaries in our testicles. We have um, the womb in our prostate. So, um, and a very large clitoris. A very large what? A very large clitoris. Depending on who. <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so the thing is, um, that, um, we are all women in origin. So we just have to reconnect with that memory because we all have been women and we all have been men. So, um, the, um, uh, one of the things that I guess is important to, 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 to do is, is to speak about it with the child, with the children. Uh, why? Um, because sometimes we don't speak about these things like menstruation, about, uh, uh orgasms, about all these kind of things. Of sexuality, of the of the womb, of of uh, clitoris, all these kind of things. We don't speak with with our kids about that, so they don't know how to handle that information. Uh, sexuality is uh, starts inside the womb, not when you are a teenager, and um, um, it's something that needs to be normal, normally uh, spoken, not not only when it comes the time. Um, so they can recognize what is sexuality, what is abuse for something, for, for example. Um, and, um, is something that, for, for example, in ancient times, we, we had the first sexual class when we were seven years old. Like, 
touch yourself, know how you are, the limits of your body, <coughs> all these kind of things. So I guess that talking about the traumas, talking about the conflicts, and not only in therapy, but I have this problem today, I have this, or how, how do you have this, or how do you, I don't know. Just talking naturally about that uh, could help to the, the body to recognize, oh, this is not something that I have to keep to myself, so it doesn't create any trauma. Um, this regarding the future, of course. So we could heal and release those tensions in, in the womb. And conceptually also, we are in a time that, um, the women, um, the feminine energy is coming back to power again. And in the ancient times, it was a matriarchal society. Um, uh, it was a matriarchal society that is kind of coming back uh, and it would be like that in the future. So um, the thing is uh, that society start to speak about the matrix as something bad. For example, we, when, when someone hears about matrix, you think about bad things like, oh, the control and so on. But matrix mean, means mother and also is the origin for the word Womb, matrice. So, um, is the, so it's something that conceptually, uh, we have to talk more that is the womb of the mother, is the creator, is the, is the energy that we have all inside and that the men also have this womb inside, but a little bit weird. <laughs> so just talk about that, talk about sexuality with kids. Mm. And we have about four minutes left, so we'll see if we Sorry. get through one or two more questions. <laughs> no, it's been amazing. Answered a lot of questions. So I heard something one time that resonated. I just want to know your opinion or thoughts on this. Is that human consciousness evolves at the rate of our technology? Yes, yes, of course. We uh, in the last in the last fifty years, uh, we have been much more aware than in any other time, and. Um, uh, there are some things that we don't recognize that because when we think about Atlantis, Lemuria, we think, oh, they were very high and they have these connections and this technology. But, uh, no, they, they, they were riding donkeys too. I was, I was, <laughs> I was saying that yesterday. Um, the, 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 we are different. So we are now evolving in, I asked once to my guides, why now is the time to create this reconnection of the planet, to create the age of Aquarius? Uh, it's because of, I don't know, some special things happening in the center of the universe. And there was one master that said, no, it's because you have the internet. <laughs> <laughs> my question has to do with deja vu. Uh, it's the sort of the familiar feeling and intuitive gesture that has, like, this has happened before. Uh, what in particular creates the similarities or groups that provide the deeper sense of understanding? Uh, yeah, it's um, basically uh, our brain is designed to um, look for the same data all the time. So it is, um, it can um, look for an answer quickly. 
like patterns. So, patterns, yeah. So everything in the universe is, works with patterns, and nothing that will happen is different from what happened already. Yeah. So it's just the same pattern repeated in a different way. So our brain is trying to look for those patterns so it can say, oh, I have an answer for that. So that's why déjà vu is like a evolutionary solution for us to adapt faster to the future. So, Thank you. Yeah. Any more mysteries of the universe we want to explain to you? <laughs> Last one, probably. I don't know. <laughs> okay, thank you so much. Uh, throughout my plant medicine journeys and studies and whatnot, I've become pretty fascinated with the mechanics of dimensionalities as it pertains to our mind-body-spirit complexes. And I was curious on your perspective because in my studies outside of experience, I don't know whether to describe this as contradictory information or whether somehow both are simultaneously true paradoxically, but do you view the soul, our mind-body-spirit complex, as something that's simultaneously aware throughout multiple dimensionalities and densities or something that's on a path of evolution and as we reach certain apex points, we kind of ascend into the next level? Well, all the experiences that you have um, when you open your consciousness, if I understood the question, um, um, are just tiny little slices of the truth, as I said at the beginning. So uh, it's not the truth. It's how you can perceive all this reality. So it's a process of evolution to connect with the different multidimensionality, which is never a correct truth. You cannot say, oh, this is the truth. So um, uh, that's why you should never stop wondering, basically, because the, the key to every answer is a new question. Mm -hmm. You could never have a last answer. So that's why... Um, uh, every answer will evolve according to your own evolution and perception of your experiences. So the universe will change also in the truth according to what you experience. That's why we are creating God at the same time that God created us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All the time. Thank you. Well, we, we may not ever have a last answer, but uh, this will be the last question for tonight. Thank you, gentlemen. I would like to share in Eric's question of what is your favorite story or myth? <laughs> favorite story of what, you said? Favorite story or myth. Or myth. Story or myth from a different time in a different life in a different place. Oh, uh, from the past. Yeah. Um, or the future. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no. Uh, myth that I remember that is not from now, or you mean yeah, like some one of the myths that you know? Like one of your favorite myths that that you know that we don't know, a story that that we aren't told in this reality, but a story that you know that you really resonate with that you think is a powerful story. Well, I, I guess that the um, the story of the blue ones. The, the, the when we when we were in, in Atlantis, they they told us many stories about the blue ones that today we have in many cultures, like in India, in Mexico, you have these blue beings like um, gods and goddesses. So so for us, our main uh, tradition was to become one of those blue ones that they said they came from the from the star of Sirius and. Uh, 
they um, they brought here something that we call protikta. Protikta was a cube of energy that um, that holds the energy of of a of another galaxy that entered in a war with a, with a species called Yakut. And they were trying to reach the energy of the core of some of these worlds. And these blue ones took them inside a box and brought it to somewhere that nobody would go uh, because it was a low-frequency planet, which was Earth. <laughs> so nobody would come here because the Yakopti would die just if a human left because we had so much energy and they were so low in energy that if a human says, ha, like this, they have a heart attack. <laughs> so they would never come here. <laughs> so um, so the story says that they, through Sirius, they ask where is the best place to keep this energy that can transform everything into divine again, into matter, uh, into the essence of the matter. So they said, well, we have a, pro- a pro- um, planet that is evolving and that you can keep it there and they will adore this and they would never touch it. So they brought this here and they h- hide it in the Atlantic Ocean huh? uh, in some islands and they built an entire population called Tabadar that w- was protected by the blue ones to take care of this energy that was blue and only them could take care of this and it was in the hills and the mountains and then the humans started to create um, something around until the blue ones said it's time to share this with the humans so they started to share this and created Atlantis wow. and then the energy that they were using there made the civilization grow up and they were guided by these blue ones to build everything that we know today so, um, and they say everything started because of this um, blue cube that is hidden in Atlantic Ocean, uh, waiting for for us to be aware and know how to use it. Yes, sir, yeah. uh, so, so the story said that we have to be ready, prepare, and laugh more. They said to the kids, we have to laugh, we have to to love in order for take care of the blue cube that keep us all connected to the universe. Uh, it was the, one of the stories. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, brother. Thank you, Tiago, for coming as well, wherever you are. I think you're over here somewhere. And uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you, everybody. We have uh, with the most impressive unofficial start for the Fifth Service <laughs> Summit of all time. Thanks for tuning into this video. Make sure you hit subscribe. Follow me at Aubrey Marcus. Check out the Aubrey Marcus podcast available everywhere and leave a comment. Let me know if this video resonated or what else you would like to hear from me in the future. Thank you so much. And thank you so much. We went a bit over time, but that's okay. I'll just say you're speaking about the blue cube. And this may sound totally off the wall and fantastic, yet it is connected with Metatron's cube. Yeah. It is called the Tesseract, the Space Stone, one of six Infinity Stones that 
make up the universe. This is not a joke. It's not a sci-fi story. It's about time, though. It's about time. <laughs> and I'll just say, uh, Jack Kirby and uh, the folks that made the Avengers, there's more to this than you know. To be continued, huh? To be continued. Okay, everybody, we're going to take a bit of a break here, and we'll be back with music from the stars. And uh, Richard, who will bring news from the stars in another way. And all of our friends, Tanya, Gabrielle, Kate Pacha, etc. See you for a moment now. Namaste. Stanley. Oh, it's, it's playing. Listen, listen carefully. We're not quite done, Richard. We're there. One more.
big run. It's going to cost my ascendant. We got uh, Mars the 29, Sagittarius. Just came across Galactic Center. Jupiter still at 6 Pisces. Saturn at 15 Aquarius. Uranus is at 11 Taurus. Neptune at 22 Pisces. Pluto at 27. 27 Capricorn. 27 Capricorn and Venus is at 11 Capricorn. I think that uh, this this Pluto Sun Mercury thing is a, is a driving uh, driving energies manifestations indicating the uh, European condition. Or maybe the maybe the China Taiwan condition, China Taiwan Hong Kong condition, or maybe even the Australian condition. Their government's gone really weird. I don't know what else to say about things right now. North Node into Taurus, so it's finally made it out of Gemini. Woo. All right, let's go listen to Katpacha. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. Yeah, wonky is the name of the day. Go ahead, Ron, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> with a weekly Bailey report. And yes, uh, this Bailey report is for Wednesday, uh, January 19th. But I want to go back to the full moon. Do you see this alignment here? This is, we have the full moon, which is the, the earth moon in alignment with the sun. But opposite that sun, We've been having this sun conjunct Pluto, uh-huh. the god of the underworld, which I will be talking about extensively today. If you've been listening to the failure report, you will know that there was an alignment not that long ago, okay, between what you see, the Earth, Venus, and Pluto. There's Earth, Venus, Pluto, and then we come around, and there is a Earth, Mercury, Pluto, and then we come around, and there is another Earth, Mercury, Pluto alignment, right? That is going to be coming up, and we we come around, and the there's another alignment coming around. You can see these different alignments. And where are all these alignments happening? With Pluto. 
this God of the underworld, all the way around to March 3rd, we're going to have a Venus-Mars-Pluto conjunction. Mm-hmm. And so this is what it looks like from outer space is when all of these alignments happen. And, and of course, uh, if the moon doesn't show up so good on this, you know, in this program, but, you know, if, if we back it, let's bring it back to where we are uh, a little more closely today. There's also, you can see, if we just go around... You look at, there's Pluto, Saturn, Jupiter. You can see how populated, okay, you know, this side. Look at all the planets yeah. are on one side. If we go out here, there's Ceres, which is an asteroid, okay? But, you know, if you don't count Ceres, there's like nothing out here all the way along the ecliptic. And the first planet that we come to is Mars, okay? <laughs> and this Mars, let's go back a little bit because you can see that, you know, Mars is what we call the, the leading planet, the focal planet happening here because if we go clockwise around the whole belt along the ecliptic, Mars will be leading the way you know, right on through this time period. And that is very, very powerful. And, of course, all of this energy with Pluto. Now, the other aspect that we had is Uranus just went direct, okay? And that, I'm I'm not going to show you so much easily here, okay? But I want to read you the Sabian symbol for the degree of Uranus going direct and the, and the way that that happens is you, if you draw a line between the Earth and Uranus, it spends about six months, about half of its time. You see, as the Earth is way back over here, draw a line between the Earth and Uranus. And keep drawing that line. And as the Earth comes around, you'll see that that line is going to be going backwards through the constellations. Right? Draw that line through Earth, Uranus, Earth, Uranus, backwards, 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 until it comes around to right now. And then as of now, you draw this line from the Earth through Uranus, and it will start going direct, right? So it looks, it appears from Earth that Uranus is now going direct, and it will go direct for about half the year until what? It comes around to about here, right? And then the same thing will be happening again. So these outer planets appear to be going backwards, appear to be going retrograde is what they call that, okay, for approximately half of the year, every year. So it's really big when, and you know, Uranus, Neptune, or Pluto, or even Jupiter really, uh, you know, does that station and changes direction. It's almost like it's, you know, still the day the Earth stood still. Well, it's the day or the week that Uranus stood still, and it is at the 11th degree. Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to read to you the Sabian symbol for the 11th degree of Taurus. 
So that is Uranus stationing. And then we come around to Mercury, which is stationing as the Earth moves forward. Let's go back to January 19th. Okay, by next Monday, okay, we'll draw that line through Mercury. And as Mercury passes us, it conjoins with the sun. We have a sun-Mercury conjunction happening on Sunday. And then on Tuesday, Mercury goes direct and uh, retrograde. And it's going to go retrograde for three weeks where that line is again going to be going backwards, and then it will station and go direct. So what's going on in this whole time period is that all of these interactions with the sun, earth, Venus, Mercury, are all being watched over, being shadowed in a way by Pluto. We had Venus come around and station to go retrograde conjunct Pluto. We had Mercury pass its conjunction. Here, we just had, you can see here was a, a, a Mercury-Pluto conjunction, right? And then Mercury went all the way up into Aquarius. Now it's going back, and we're going to have another Mercury-Pluto conjunction. You can see there it is right there coming up. Hard to get this in perfect alignment for you. You see this Mercury-Pluto conjunction. There it is again, right? And then we're going to keep going back, 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 and we're going to have a Venus-Pluto conjunction. Only this time, Mars... Which, by the way, on Monday leaves Sagittarius and goes into Capricorn. By March 3rd, Mars will have caught all the way up to Venus and be in direct alignment with the Earth, Venus, Mars, and Pluto. Yeah? So you can see March 3rd is a day that you want to mark on your calendar also. So today's in today's report, I want to be talking a lot about what is going on with Pluto and the underworld and this kind of initiation process that we're all going through with all of these personal planets <laughs> being in opposed by the lord of the underworld, Pluto. Okay, hola everybody. I am going to try to pull this off. This has been a little bit of a challenge because uh, it's been raining, so I was out at the cenote. I went out to the cenote to show you that the, the cenote is the entrance to the underworld. Very powerful, powerful place. It is these underwater, well, the, the under, the water from underground comes up into these beautiful, amazing pools here in the Yucatan. And I was out at one, but it was raining. 
And so I'm uh, back inside now, and uh, there is uh, construction going on. So we have the pounding <laughs> that is going on in the background. And like I've been speaking about with Vulcan and the blacksmith and the pounding, <laughs> I've got this going on in my head. And it's just like this is like such a Plutonian underworld time of initiation. I am sure that you have felt that full moon moving through cancer. Okay, these last couple of days in opposition to the sun, Pluto, it is this intense initiation. And I really want to talk about this Plutonian, it's death and rebirth, the god of the underworld. What is the underworld? What is the death birth? We have Dionysus that got, you know, uh, his, his body, you know, he died and, and, and was arisen. And Isis and Osiris, there's this whole death, resurrection. And Jesus Christ had this death and resurrection. And Chiron has this death and resurrection. But in most cases... No one returns from the underworld. And by that they mean no one returns from the underworld the same as they went into the underworld. <laughs> so it's really something now over these, uh, over this January, February, and March. First we have Mercury come by Pluto. And then Venus come and station next to Pluto, go retrograde. Mercury come back to visit Pluto again. And then Venus, this time join with Mars, again aligning with Pluto before moving on. This is just like this massive Earth humanity initiation that occurs through a death resurrection process. So let's understand and look at what this death resurrection process is about. The mythology of Inanna, the ancient goddess of love, did her descent through each of the seven gates down into the underworld. And she descended as a brash maiden, powerful, lovely, bright, and glistening, and then went through her metamorphosis, meltdown, hung on a meat hook, brought down to our knees. This is what is in common with all of these initiatory processes and all of this death and resurrection and even if you look at old age, we are weakened, we are humbled, our bodies start to wrinkle and crinkle, and, and we get all aged, and, and we get more frail and more sensitive to our surroundings, and we go within, and we, and we want to withdraw and retract from the activities and all of the energy that life requires of us, and, and we go down into this underworld space of emptiness, of nothingness, of we go into this void where all that, and we let go, we let go of 
our beauty and our money and our relationships and our history and our knowledge. And it's like nothing matters anymore. It becomes the end of what was. And when it comes to our identity, it is the end of who we thought we were. Every mask that we wore, the good son, the good daughter, the good employee, the good boss, the good Samaritan, <laughs> the good healer, the night, all these, whatever we tried to be or tried to present or, you know, put up forth and fluffed up our, you know, feathers and, you know, looked our best and put on our, you know, <laughs> you know, it took the best, uh, you know, selfies. I mean, all, everything. Everything goes away in the underworld, and we are stripped down to our bare, core, naked, vulnerable, scared, inner child. Go, we, it's like this return to infancy, this return to the seed, this return to nothingness, and this is where. Spirit brings us, it humbles us, and all of our notions that we know who we are, that we know what's going on, that we have control, that we are the boss, that you know we have a plan, and screw it all. Mm-hmm. This humbling process is almost like, you know what, shut up. kneel down lay down listen be still be humble prostrate yourself before the great goddess before the mother before source before the creator you are you know little all your artificial intelligence and all your uh, equations and all of your, uh, you know, computers and all of your everything, everything that you have, you know, managed to put together and figure out is but a pea, a drop of water in the ocean of creation. And this is terrifying. Yes, of course it is humbling. (laughs) Of course we, you know, it's like when we take our place, when we see our place, when we own what we essentially, the core that we essentially are, this opens us. And it opens our innocence. It opens our heart to experiencing ourselves as something beyond this physical body, beyond these memories, beyond this knowledge, beyond this material, physical, third-dimensional world. And we experience ourselves as fluid, 
if you see the the paintings and you know if you have you if you've done any medicine okay you know, and you see the serpent energy okay and and then you see the condors you see the and you see everything moving and shaping yeah and you know you see the puma the jaguar is the guardian the jaguar i just found out today yes from Aisha Cosmos that the jaguar can hold its breath for up to a half hour and swim and catch fish out of the cenotes underwater as well as climb up into the trees so the jaguar is this guardian between the worlds of the underworld and this world and the celestial upper world and we know that these different worlds in shamanism okay are different dimensional realms in which our soul spirit exists and it's only in this middle realm in this third dimensional realm that we have time space and matter and that we are far more than time space and matter and until we let go of time space and matter we will not know the core the truth of our soul spirit infinite divine beingness and so it is both humbling but enlightening so we are we are stripped away and we are you know it's all pulled away and you can experience it the ego experiences it as loss because the ego only exists within the third dimensional realm and the ego is terrified of losing control of this third dimensional physical body money finances appearances material possessions control <laughs> but until we do die to that little self die to that that material self die to that ego self we will never know that infinite multidimensional soul spirit self that goes beyond down and beyond up <laughs> it's, it's hard to explain like what goes on in these interdimensional realms even using the vocabulary and the language that we have here in this third dimension because it's a feeling and 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 this feeling is a feeling of unity it's a feeling of love it's a feeling of connection it's a feeling of oneness with all not just material creation but the stars and the angels and the fairies and and all of the beings and just watch a Star Wars movie and and all the different alien life forms and everything that is that is you know even outside of our earthly physical memory existence into other realms and we are connected to all that is 
And then comes the re-emergence, the resurrection, the rebirth into a new life, maybe into a new body, maybe into a new self and a new identity, a new ego, a new relationship, a new job. But until we really fully, wholly, and completely let go of the old, the new is not able to reveal itself to us. So we, the more that we cooperate with the process of Pluto, the more we cooperate and embrace the stripping away, the more we facilitate the rebirth into a new consciousness. So Pluto has been moving through Capricorn since 2008, and it's there until next year, 2023. We're at the final stages now, and and Pluto is the god Shiva, Yes, and the goddess Kali, the destroyer of. And what is it the destroyer of? It's the destroyer of Capricorn symbolizes physical, financial, third dimensional security. It has to do with jobs, businesses, institutions, uh, you know, you know, uh, authority figures, you know, the, the, the authorities in the world are, you know, the powerful, rich and famous. And so, you know, this, and, and this striving for this security in this physical earth world. And it's being turned upside down. So in 2008, we had that financial collapse. And now we're coming through this final stages. Just wait till Pluto gets up to the 29th critical degree Uh next year, yes? This is the final initiation, the final metamorphosis. This shows that the economy needs to go through our whole physical, our connection to, our understanding of our need for, our reliance upon this third dimensional reality for security, it's temporary. It's only third dimensional. And we're these, so we have to reach outside into our other dimensional selves in order to attain eternal, infinite forms of security. And maybe we won't do that until some are pulled away from us, some are taken away from us. So we are dealing with death in many of its forms. Death of loved ones. Death of lifestyles. Death of careers. A a death of freedoms or liberties. It's so many passings away. Of the way of what we thought, of what we held to, of our control. This is a loss of control. We are all experiencing this kind of loss of control over the, over our own course of life. Well, it's ego control. It's just ego control. It's an illusion of control. 
There is a divine source. There is a soul essence. This is what astrology tells us. With, with reincarnation and choosing our chart and choosing our time of birth, there is a deeper, deeper evolutionary intention, a soul intention that has a higher purpose than what our ego is able to absorb, is able to integrate, is able to understand. So we need to go out of our ego mind. And, and, and I encourage you to step outside your mind. And feel. Step into the heart space. Step into the realm where nothing matters but love, connection, union. And feel all of those feelings and, and let go. And there's grief and there is sorrow and there are tears. That's what today's song is about. <laughs> While my guitar gently weeps. <laughs> yeah. With every mistake, we must surely be learning. Still, my guitar gently weeps. And you can see, even, I don't know if you can see close enough, but she has tears running down her eyes, oh. running down her cheeks. Mm. Yeah. The great mother, we have this weeping, we have these tears with this loss. It's the loss of control, the loss of what we have known, the loss of what we thought was real. <laughs> and it brings us deeper, deeper into what is truly real. Mm-hmm. And will last and be there longer than this temporary world, even this temporary body. So we can look at this as an opportunity. And we, and we get there through the portal of feeling. So this is a birth. This is a birth of the age of Aquarius. This is the birth of a new identity. This is a birth of a new humanity. And that's what the mantra this week is about. Yes? That birth is an explosion. As the future breaks through the past, the waters break. We are no longer safe. As into a new world, we are cast. That volcano in Tonga that went off last week, mm. the biggest volcano in the history of Earth that mm. has been recorded. What? The biggest volcano. There may be more bigger volcanoes. Pluto, <laughs> volcanoes. We have that Sun-Pluto oh conjunction. God, know that. Boom, off goes the volcano in Tonga. On the Ring of Fire, which is the whole Pacific, goes all the way up the west coast of the United States, all the way up through Alaska, down through Japan, China. This is the big ring of fire that encircles the entire Pacific Ocean. Very, very powerful time period here. 
physically, emotionally, mentally, psychically. We are in the cauldron of change. The witch's cauldron. We are being warmed. We are being heated. We are being melted. Like I spoke of the melted gold in last week's report. Right? So now we have this even more. And, and it's just like when the baby is born, the waters break. <laughs> And the contractions happen, and we are being pushed. Yes, we're being pushed out of the warm, safe womb of the known and the familiar into the sun is now bursting into the sign of Aquarius. Liberation, outer space. From, from earthly Capricorn and the mountain goat and being on top of the mountain. I just watched this video of the, the guy uh, climbing to the top of Mount Everest. Yeah, and I mean, it's like, whoa. Where do we go from the top of the mountain? Well, <laughs> we get shown that really the top of the mountain is just really only the very beginning as we leave Capricorn and we go into Aquarius. Enlightenment. The opening of the third eye. The movement outside of the dimension of limitation. So yes, we are being cast into a new world. Aquarius and Uranus rule the future. And Uranus went direct. I wanted to read to you. It is the, the, the Sabian symbol for that is uh, a woman watering her garden and watching the flowers grow. And it is that as we water, as we feel, even as we shed our tears, and they could be even tears of joy, but these watery, emotional, feeling, spiritual tears water that seed, which then that seed blossoms into flowers, and the flowers blossom and bloom. So we are cast into this new world, but let us be flowers and know that this new world offers us the soil and the fertility to become even more than we were before. That we are more than we thought we were. That we are more in the future than we are now. We are blooming, blossoming flowers from buds to flowers. So one more time. Birth is an explosion as the future breaks through the past. The water breaks. We are no longer safe as into a new world we are cast. Enjoy the explosion. <laughs> Let go of the shell of your seed and move into the new world. <laughs> Namaste. Aloha. So much love.
the talking stick back to you, Richard. All right, brother. Uh, taking a quick look at next Saturday night. We're going to have um, Moon at 11 Capricorn and Venus at 12 Capricorn. So that's a conjunction in Capricorn. And then we're going to have Mercury conjunct Pluto. Mercury will be retrograde. Venus will not be retrograde. So there's second conjunction and then the sun will be at 11 Aquarius conjunct Saturn at 16 Aquarius so you got you got you got three uh, three conjunctions in a space of about uh, 35 degrees and the and the overall concentration or lopsidedness that we've been watching goes from Mars at five Capricorn to Uranus at eleven Taurus. So that's thirty, sixty, ninety, one twenty. That's uh it's gonna be down to a hundred and twenty five degrees of concentration and I haven't looked ahead yet but it'll be it'll be interesting the uh, once Mercury Venus and Mars get ahead of Pluto oh well, around March 3rd he mentioned that as a key date that'll be an interesting one to look at all right that's all for me tonight. Now I'm going to stay over and out. Let's listen to Tanya. And I'll talk to you all next week. Yes, Richard. And maybe some more, more sunshine this coming week. Oh, I need more sunshine. <laughs> it's it's well, good for the body. It's good for the body. Even if it's cold out, go for a walk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I still got leaves to rake. So, okay, anyway, here comes the best sun. wishes to everybody. Thank you, Richard. Yeah. All right, here comes Tanya, huh? Tanya Gabrielle, Wealth Astrologist. Welcome to Star Codes. This is the forecast where we look at an important astro-numerology event that's coming up. In this case, the change of signs of the lunar nodes, the north node and the south node. Now, this is a big event because it happens every 18 months or so, and it triggers two signs, opposite signs from each other. Taurus is opposite Scorpio. And the length of time is a year and a half, so it's like a period of time to really acclimate to what those signs contribute. And in this case, one of those signs is already very activated, that is Taurus, because Uranus is in Taurus, and that means Taurus will be very much awakened. Uranus is the awakener, and Uranus rules Aquarius. So it happens on January 18th, 
that's when the nodes move backwards, so from Gemini to Taurus and from Sagittarius into Scorpio. And what makes this day so significant is not only is Uranus already in Taurus, but on January 18th, Uranus stations direct. So Uranus is in the sign of the North Node, which is where we're heading. The North, if you look at a compass to the North is where you're heading, South is your past. So this is really powerful because of the synchronistic date, the exactitude of Uranus changing its direction, being at a standstill in the very sign that the North Node is entering on the very same day. So that is going to activate a lot of forward momentum, fresh starts, inspirational breakthroughs in a sign that governs sensuality, your values, security, abundance, peace. And this means that new ground is going to be broken in those areas in your life, financial areas, love, physical security, establishing an inner sense of peace and grounding and creating a beautiful environment. Venus is the ruler of Taurus. So Taurus and Scorpio are fixed signs. That means that they tend to stay on track with whatever they set out to do. And so we're moving from immutable energy, which is very changeable and unexpected for the last 18, 19 months, to more fixed energy where things will take on a certain direction. And so they'll be in these signs from January 2022 until July 2023. And in case you don't know, the lunar nodes are a mathematical point between the sun and the moon. So they're not actual planets. They're not physical, but they are points that show us our foundation in the past and our investment in the future. So the South Node represents our past and what we're building upon, what we've learned, and the North Node represents where we're heading, what we're working towards. The Taurus-Scorpio axis is financial in both senses, not just Taurus. Uh, Scorpio governs the financial connections you have with your partners, whether it's business or personal money coming towards you from others, whereas Taurus is the money you generate yourself. So the Taurus-Scorpio axis invites you to take Scorpio's intuitive sense, this beautiful sense of truth. Scorpio is ruled by Pluto, and we'll talk about that a bit later because this is very important. So the Pluto energy, it digs up the truth. It unveils and reveals what it is that needs to be seen in order for us to feel the Taurian security and peace. So they work together hand in hand. And so with the Scorpio South Node, we are purging, because Pluto and Scorpio, we're purging our past. Uh, this is something we should be doing anyways, but it's really going to bring this role of how we address our past life, not literally past life, though that counts as well, but literally what we've even the past moment, yesterday, earlier today, you know, uh, the last month, the last year, we are being asked to truly not feel connected and 
confined in these patterns, these perspectives that are based on the old habits that are keeping us hostage in, in that sense. Um, but the North Node is not just about the past. It also represents what you have mastered in order to utilize and set forth on your destiny. So letting go is an incredibly big theme with the South Node going into Scorpio. Scorpio is very intense and passionate, sometimes gets obsessive. So all of us will be growing rapidly in terms of moving away quickly from things that frustrate us, get us upset, angry, you know, and moving quickly into peace, which is what Taurus represents. So we have to be at peace with what has changed, what has transformed and is in the process of changing and transforming as we speak and be fully in acceptance of what that ebb and flow really means. And this is where the lunar cycles, after all, we're talking about the lunar nodes, the moon has cycles and those cycles really represent the ebb and flow. In fact, they govern the ebb and flow of the tides in the oceans, in the lakes. So the ebb and flow of life is truly what we're being asked to connect with. And that that means letting go. So not holding on tightly to something that we wish wasn't changing. And so the other thing about Scorpio, where the South Node is moving, is being ruled by Pluto. Pluto rules power and empowerment. So under the South Node in Scorpio, we may also see a shift in power taking place. And that can be obviously personally, but also collectively. So Scorpio is ruled by Pluto. Pluto has been very, very active the last few years, remember the stellium with Pluto and Saturn that began this decade on January 12, 2020. Uh, Pluto now is going to be returning to its original birthplace for the first time since July 4th, 1776 for the U.S. And that's happening in February. So Pluto is very much addressing power and empowerment or disempowerment. So, and this is in relation to government to business because Pluto is currently in Capricorn, which is, which rules those areas, those power structures. And so we may see issues really come to a head now over the last, over the next year and a half where the shift in power is actually taking place in those areas, uh, especially areas where we feel disempowered, where there's power over us, over you, and 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 it looking also choosing to transform with from within because that is where the recognition, that's where the Pluto energy of bringing up what needs to be seen, and then making a decision to not live in a place of disempowerment, right? Power over me. So the North Node in Taurus is really going to help with that because. Taurus is the energy then that we're going to want to cultivate in our lives because that's where the compass north is heading. So Taurus is all about ease, enjoyment, uh, making good practical use of resources, and looking at what we truly value. So our values are coming to the forefront over the next year and a half, 
And the North Node Taurus really helps you to come to this from a place of stability, calmness, security. You're basically making the best of whatever situation you find yourself in. You're making the most of every moment with the North Node in Taurus. So you're encouraged, because this is an Earth sign, grounding energy, to bring more grounding structure stability in your life and also to be at peace with any situations as they come up. So if something unfolds in your life that's unexpected because Uranus is currently in Taurus for a few years, right? To be at peace with that. Be be also at peace with how your life has unfolded over the last few years. This is really going to be important. So not looking back and wishing things were different. It's time to work with the changes that have unfolded in each of our lives so that we can feel more grounded and stable. And so by working through the change and transformation, you're making the most of it. And this is where the placement of Uranus in the sign of Taurus is so important because Uranus is the change agent. Uranus sets us free from the past, especially, but in general sets us free so that we feel liberated to explore wherever our heart takes us, wherever inspiration takes us. Now, Taurus is very much connected to abundance. It rules the flow of money. And so it also rules, of course, pleasure. Uh, abundance meaning, do you feel abundant in general? Is there a sense of just abundance in your life? Do you have pleasure? Do you have beauty around you? And this then connects, so the worth of money, the worth of how you feel is the self-worth, the values. What do you value? How does your self-worth inspire the choices or dictate the choices that you're making, the actions that you're taking? Because connecting to whatever your self-worth is will help you see the root of why you're acting and communicating in a certain way. So with the North Node in Taurus, you can use this energy to become more deliberate about your actions, more conscious. Living with this conscious awareness is basically going to prevent you from falling back into past habits, right? Wishing things were different. So this conscious awareness is, is the key here because when you fully look at, do I value this? Am I valuing how I'm actually responding to this situation or this relationship or this whatever has come up for you in that moment? It is very important because as you value yourself, you will value your surroundings and you will value Earth, planet Earth. Taurus is an Earth sign. And so it it rules also the values we place on the very ground we live on and nurture and till in terms of the beautiful fruits and vegetables that we grow and so this is very much related to the environment as well, sustainability, the, the conditions of our planet, um, pollution. Uh, looking at that, you know, Scorpio is about cleansing. And so looking at how and this brings Pluto into it again. So Pluto is in Capricorn. So we're especially looking at government and big corporation uh, in terms of the uh, the roles that they play in the picture of things regarding cleansing and uh, adaptability and also respect for Mother Earth. 
And because financial flow is also ruled by Taurus, we may notice themes around this both collectively and personally for you. So your attitude towards financial flow, money in general, the value of money, what does money actually represent, that it's actually just energy that you exchange between you and another, right? You and something you're purchasing. It is not actually bad or good. It is how it is being used. So the other thing about this changing of the notes that's important is when the notes actually cross paths with another planet. Now, I already mentioned that Uranus is in Taurus, and so there will be a crossing of paths, and that will happen on July 31st, and I will go into that more as we reach that point because it's going to be a big time in the year. So the on July 31st, Uranus will be conjunct the North Node, and that will bring some unstable energy. It will absolutely lead to major awakening moments, uh, sudden shifts and breakthroughs, awakening to your inspiration, your constant connection to the divine, right? And that will be like really important in order to just navigate those moments around that time. So, and also that it'll be a reminder that the old structures, because Uranus breaks things down, that the old structures need to go. And then the day after that, on August 1st, Mars joins the North Node and Uranus in a conjunction. That's very, very, very powerful energy. It will absolutely create breakthroughs. And so letting go will be imperative around that time. So that's just to give you a little bit of an update on what is coming up. And... Basically, it's just to know that you're making a deeper discovery of your own values and what is truly worthwhile for you, what what you really honor and cherish in a very beautiful, sacred, and practical way. And the discoveries you make are going to bring you a lot of comfort, pleasure, feelings of wealth, feelings of abundance. Uh, there's a deeper awakening of who you are, trusting your own self-worth, changes in possible structures regarding finances and how you see the flow of money in your life. Also because Uranus is in Taurus and Uranus is all about the future and technology, there could be more breakthroughs regarding digital currencies as well with the North Node in Taurus while well, well, Uranus is also in Taurus. And then more solutions that are really sustaining Mother Earth. So getting in touch with that and getting in touch also with your sense of security and looking at the energy exchange between the power structures in a new way so that you feel emboldened, so that those values that you're now really taking seriously, what you value, are being put to use and you move away from feeling disempowered. Uh, so that's really a very big theme and a, and a lovely theme, a very important one in terms of to actually make some changes here on our beautiful Mother Earth and uh, generating a sense of joy and commitment and real feedback, right? Because you really feel emboldened when you take that rein and 
not shy away from what truly is yours. You know, that's your life to live as, as you please. Basically, it's what it is. And so that theme is going to really uh, expand. And expansion is really where we want to head to begin with. Expansion is the key to growth. So as we embrace these empowerment and and focus on what we value, our sense of limitless opportunities and, and just a limitless life, an excited life that's not rooted in fear or rooted in a sense of dread about what might be coming you know, in the future, that all disappears because the connection to a sense of expansion and source is so, so strong. It's basically uh, trusted to the core. So there's no sense of, oh, it's trusted to the core and you don't ever feel abandoned, right? There's a sense of abandonment that can absolutely come when you feel, oh my God, you know, I have no voice. I have no way of being heard. Yes, you are heard. You are heard all the time. And it's just a matter of, of you putting your focus on the frequency that you want. If you focus on joy, you will get joy. You will hear joy in your life. You will literally receive it. If you focus on frustration and lack, if you focus on feeling limited, that's what you'll get. And so this combo of Taurus and Scorpio will really help you to see, well, what is it I value? Because whatever I'm putting my attention on, and we're doing this often very unconsciously, right? So it's like we don't even realize what we're putting our attention on. But this is helping you, especially the Taurus part of it is helping you to ground things so you're really practical, you're really listening to what is it that I'm valuing in this moment and, you know, listen to what's going on in your thoughts, where you're placing your attention. And so this will really be a game changer in so many ways because it simplifies things. Things get a lot less complicated, (laughs) which is good. We want more simplicity and a greater sense of ease and flow. Right. And this is what this nodal change is all about. And I love that Uranus is in Taurus. It's, you know, Uranus rules the Aquarian age of freedom. So this is just such a big moment. And don't forget too that Pluto is playing a big role as well. So we want to really honor what's going on and not be afraid to step up and just feel free to be you. And of course, all with great respect to others, give them that same freedom. So another way to set yourself free and to grow is, of course, to know your own star code. <laughs> what does your birthday mean? What does your birth name mean? There's There are codes that are literally emanating from you and that grow and change day by day, right? And the same goes with your astrology. So if you're interested in knowing more about you, then head on over to the free masterclass at starcodeclass.com. You'll have so much fun discovering your own star code and also the star codes of others in your life. So you're more compassionate towards them, more understanding. 
So enjoy that free masterclass. It includes a handout and so much more. StarCodeClass.com. Have a beautiful week, and I will see you in next week's Star Codes podcast. Bye-bye for now. to go to the conference call here. Moving forward, everyone. Yeah. It's happening very quickly. Okay, what's the number, Rama? Uh, 720-716-7301. And the pin code is 353-863-POUND. Okay, we will see you very, very much in just a moment here, and we'll be back here at the top of the very next hour at BBS Radio, Station 2, best radio in the universe, and as my friend always would say, Ask me what my blood type is, and then I would have to tell him to be, it's B positive. <laughs> so we're all B positive blood types now. See you on the conference, everyone. And back here in an hour. Namaste. BBS Radio. Yay. Rama, tell us. Tell us what that was. This is a song called Yakutia, and it's all these Russian, Mongolian, Siberian people singing about how we can all come together as one people to help each other. Yeah. If you want to get something done, do it yourself. Isn't that what's going on here? Welcome back, everybody. <laughs> yeah. The people have the power. We were just discussing um, in Canada, there's all these thousands of truckers. And on GoFundMe, they raised $1.75, I think, million dollars to pay for the extremely inflated gas. So they, these truckers are going to be driving from... Vancouver to Ottawa. And when they get to Ottawa, they're going to have a whole bunch of people go to Trudeau's house and they're going to camp out. And uh, and then in the Capitol buildings, they're going to just sit there and they're just going to say, "We're uh, you guys got to resign. You had long enough to do, do something and you did nothing but cause a headache for everybody else. So it's our turn. <laughs> Uh, and if there's anything more to that, we're surely to hear it about it soon enough. 
I'm just saying, and there's all kinds of activities that have been going on here in the States today, and there's uh, an, an unending schedule of things that people are just going to keep on getting in the face of this bunch. And uh, there's, I'm sure there's tons of stuff going on all over the world. Yes. Europe, South America, Central America. A whiny kitty. To you again. Okay, so what are we up to here? Um, there was something you wanted to play when we came back, Grandma. Uh, I can't remember. How <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on? Well, we've got all these things you got to just pick one then yeah uh, yeah um i'm getting there it's just the energies are just so uplifting you know it's just wonderful uh you've got your um i think you said you wanted to do this one hold on everybody the one with the Dalai Lama. How about that one, Rama? Okay, that's a long one. The Oracle. Okay. I'll read this. You'll go fetch it. For yeah. more than 400 years, the state oracle of Tibet has been cloaked in secrecy. Yeah, that's 400 years. A strange and mystical side of the Tibet of old that has been carried into the modern world by the Tibetan diaspora. The Natung, as he is known among the Tibetans, is an ancient spirit who they believe is devoted to the Tibetan people and particularly to the Dalai Lamas. So much so that he has been a participant in strategic decisions of state over the centuries. As the Dalai Lama fled the country in 1959, it was on the advice of the Oracle, who gave the precise route and timing to avoid the Chinese troops that surrounded the capital. Through a succession of 13 mediums, the state Oracle has served in this consular consular role. As an old medium dies, the oracle spontaneously reappears in someone else. In the case of the state oracle, the new medium is tested quite rigorously, almost scientifically. Filmmaker David Cherniak was given permission from the Dalai Lama to film events and ceremonies that had never been seen before. And this is featuring the Dalai Lama, the mediums of the state oracle of Tibet. Are you ready? Ready. All right. This is um, 52 minutes. Here we go.
1988, I was doing a film about Tibetan Buddhism in India when His Holiness Khodai Lama suggested that I film the State Oracle of Tibet going into one of his rare trances. I was somewhat surprised and very delighted. This highly ritualized form of spirit possession had been extremely secretive, a very esoteric appendage to the body of Tibetan Buddhism. To my knowledge, it had never been filmed before. The events of that morning were unlike anything I had ever encountered and raised deeply puzzling questions about the nature of self and consciousness, let alone the reality of spirits and their ability to enter our world through the vessel of a human body. strange things happened that morning. Some of them could be filmed, but some of them, well, one of them in particular I've been wanting to follow up on for the last 15 years. What is this thing we call self, this enigmatic and supposedly consistent identity we're apparently born with? My seven-month-old granddaughter on the day before I leave for India. Clearly, her sense of herself is already developing, long before language and the I-word have become part of her mental scenery. She dwells in the present moment, unlike her grandfather, who is up the entire night before leaving, doing the mountains of paperwork modern life demands when you leave it behind for a few months. Far from dwelling in the moment, his sense of self is fragmentary, babbling incoherently and fully dependent on black coffee to maintain any sense of the present whatsoever. At the base of the Daladar range of the greater Himalayas, Upper Dharamsala or McLeod Gange straddles a ridge at about 6,000 feet. It's home to the Tibetan government in exile and the Dalai Lama, whose compound occupies a hill at one end of the town. It is also the home of four oracles, the unusual trance state when a spirit supposedly takes possession of the body of a medium to give advice and predict the future. The most widely known of the four is the state oracle of Tibet, the Le Chung, whose medium resides at a monastery, part of a large complex, halfway between the upper and lower towns. The Nature Oracle I filmed in 1988 is the 14th in a line that dates back four centuries. Tukta Nodup was an ordinary monk in the Nature Monastery when he fell down in a spontaneous trance a few years after the death of the 13th medium. After extensive testing, he was confirmed as the physical basis for Dorji Drakta, the emissary and oracular voice of the Peha, the five nature spirit kings who have protected Tibetan Buddhism since the 8th century, when, as legend tells, they were subdued by the great Indian tantric master, Padmasambhava. Mm. Ah. 
I became the Nichun medium, or rather I was possessed for the first time by the Nichun oracle, by the Nichun spirit, in 1987, on the 31st of March. So I was at that time an ordinary monk of the monastery, and the, the previous uh, oracle passed away in 1984, uh, around April. The scientific worldview is tangible, measurable, empirical. Its realm is space and time. But in the Buddhist great chain of being, there are six realms of existence, and within them, sentient beings can exist on 31 different planes. We human beings exist on the level of gross form. Nature spirits exist on the level of very subtle forms, or are completely formless. So, among these formless spirits, uh, I'm not a human being, uh, some are uh, religious minded, <laughs> some are a non-believer, I'm not very really sure whether there's communist or not, I don't know, <laughs> otherwise I'm quite sure I think they, among these uh, Spirit, I think the Buddhists or Hindus, as well as I think most of the Christians and Muslim. I think so. When the 8th century Indian master Padmasambhava came to Tibet to bring Buddhism to its inhabitants, he found a warlike people practicing a highly developed form of nature religion called Bon. Mountains, lakes, forests, rivers, all had their local deity. They were alive and animated through the spirit's actions. Legend has it that Padmasambhava, or Guru Rinpoche as he's called by the Tibetans, went around the country subduing the major local spirits through his great spiritual attainment and oath-binding them to protect the Buddha Dharma. The Buddha's flash of insight into the ultimate nature of reality. over the last 1,200 years to act as oracles, giving advice on spiritual practice and worldly matters, doing healings, predicting the future, and in the case of the state oracles, advising on public and religious policy. It's related that the Nature Oracle, institutionalized over 350 years ago as a principal advisor to the government, told the Dalai Lama through the previous medium the precise moment and route to take to avoid the Red Army when he fled Tibet in 1959. How accurate are the oracles that are being used by yourself? Mm. Not yet. Many factors involved. Firstly, the spirit itself uh, something 
reliable, of course. Then uh, take as example nature now. But the, the oracle itself, very reliable. Then the medium. On medium, I think there are from birth, you see some differences. Uh, body condition, physical, physical side. Then on top of that, they need certain meditation or certain practice. Then the medium gaining more deeper sort of spiritual experiences. Then entrance become easier and more clear, more reliable. Uh, the negative spirit, then their entering become more difficult. So the uh, medium sort of uh, practice very very important. Eventually uh, becoming more clearer, clearer, and then you can uh, you can trust. I brought his holiness a gift, a scientific version of an oracle, a weather station. With a remote console that measures just about everything, and it's supposed to do forecasting. Though thunderstorms here can roll over the mountains with practically no warning. Two of the household monks help His Holiness's younger brother and I install it on the roof of his residence. They don't listen these two. They think they're enlightened. You know, I always uh, felt that there are oracles everywhere. If you go in the hills of Damsala among the local people. Every village has one. Yeah, but they don't announce it. <laughs> Now, since all our origin is of shamanistic uh, nature, I'm sure you know everywhere. You know there must have been oracles, and uh, in the Western world today, you know, say any country, there must have been. But I think Christianity has a lot to do with abolishing them. Christianity accepted the idea of spirit possession, but sought to marginalize it. If the spirits weren't necessarily evil, they were pagan and to be avoided by God-fearing folk. Perhaps part of the reason for this was the physical manifestations of trance possession, the distortion of the face and voice, often accompanied by superhuman feats of strength, or the piercing of the body with sharp implements. I used to get very scared of trances, and one of the greatest fear as a child is to. Uh, go and approach a what do you call oracle, because most of the oracles are in its wrathful form. Yeah. Wrathful, okay. And that is uh, for a child, it's uh, pretty scary. The wrathful form of the nature in 1988. Without warning, the layman went into spontaneous trance. The two oracles shrieked at one another face to face as if they wanted to tear each other apart. But I was told that in fact the second spirit was paying homage to nature. If that was homage, I wondered what an argument could possibly look like. Suddenly, the second oracle popped out of trance, and the man, unaware of what had happened, was carried off, leaving me with more questions than answers. <laughs> But this was nothing compared to what happened next. I mean, what's really going on in an objective fashion? What's really going on? This is the big question. You're Harvard trained. That's correct. PhD. That's correct. 
How do you explain this phenomenon? Uh, yeah, I'm still trying to work my way through that. The longer you're involved with it, the more magic and mystery seems to be what's really going on. While at any given time there can be hundreds of young Western tourists visiting Dharamsala, most stay for just a week or two and move on, never having looked beneath the surface. But there are also dozens of long-term residents, scholars, students, and teachers, who encounter the magical side of Tibetan Buddhism almost on a daily basis. In one way or another, they grapple with the phenomenon of oracles. Our teachers usually, when they they usually tell us, because Buddhism is so full, it's so vast, and they say, take what you can, and the rest, if you can't handle, or as Lama Yeshi would say, if it freaks you out, just leave it. You know, you can take it and look at it later. So this whole thing with deities and oracles and all this magical stuff, I'm just kind of left aside for the time being. One told me... Um Oh, from now until your death, you will have endless problems. <laughs> How did you feel? <laughs> there wasn't a lot I could do about it. And then I went to see a llama. Yeah, like llamas are kind of higher than oracles. <laughs> I went to this llama. And everybody's like, oh, go and see this llama. I went and saw this llama. And he said, oh, yes, you'll get paralysis, heart problems. <laughs> and he went to that <laughs> I was thrilled. <laughs> when you were up in Tibet, so I guess you were, you were with nomadic tribes, or were you yes, and mostly nomadic people. Sean Vincent Beleza is an explorer and cultural historian, Buddhist who has spent years researching village oracles on the Tibetan plateau. So, what actually is going on? As I said, there are a number of, I mean, a, a number of theories that are churned about, such as a state of self-induced. Uh, Psychosis, where there's a disassociation of normal personality and some other type of personality, perhaps more deeply seated in the psyche, emerges, rears its rears its head, and becomes the the new persona. Uh, where does the old consciousness go? This is a very good question. Where does the old consciousness go? It seems to be displayed. I mean, according to most traditional definitions of trans states, particularly in Tibet, the the the, the consciousness of the medium is displaced, is actually removed from his body, his or her body, and exists somewhere else, exists in a, in a mirror or exists in the ethers, but actually leaves the person's body and is replaced by the consciousness of the deity. Part of the problem lies the currency, the very currency of the trans state consciousness has not been satisfactorily delineated in a scientific fashion. So how can we understand the phenomena of trance, of mediumship, which is based on consciousness, when we don't even have a firm understanding of what constitutes human consciousness? 1988, South India. As the nature oracle tossed out barley seeds to the monks as a blessing, I took my attention off them for just a second. At that precise moment, something I can only describe as a force shot through my body, practically blowing me off the steps. 
Once I'd recovered from the shock, I looked around, expecting others to be wondering what hit them. But no one else seemed affected. I played back the moment. Out of the corner of my eye, I'd seen the plane of his arm sweep past me right at that very second. But what was it that entered me? It seemed to be conscious, like something going quickly through me, checking me out. But why? for the Dalai Lama or for the cabinet of the government in exile. But the Nechun will sometimes go into trance to predict and guide the spiritual welfare of his monastery. People living around Nechun Monastery will hear the certain sound of the, um, the thigh-bone trumpets and the drums being drummed and they will know that the oracle is about to go into trance and so they will run there these trance sessions are usually extremely private. You are very, very lucky if you get tipped off or you just happen to be there by chance to attend one. He's doing a meditation. So there's no set sort of gradual progression of his falling in trance. However, when he himself sits there and he listens to the meditation prayer and so forth, he sort of feels a feeling of anxiety and very small vibrations. First from the finger song and then the heartbeat. The heartbeat increases and then the, and then the vibration comes from the feet and then he feels like a feeling kind of bloating swelling here and then all of a sudden it's like in a snap uh, that he falls unconscious teaching. His, it was in the morning. I was in the audience. His holiness was teaching. And suddenly there was a woman's voice, extremely powerful, singing in the crowded courtyard. And yes, it had the sound of being arias or yes. So 
bodyguards immediately rushed over and did rugger tackles on her and felled her and dragged her out because it was assumed that she was somebody who had got a little over the top. And then in the afternoon, his illness was teaching. He was actually, I think, reading a transmission of a text when the singing started again. And he was reading and just going like this, which meant, leave her alone. What's she like? Petite, extremely pretty, shy, discreet. Uh, when she first came, she had beautiful pink cheeks, straight from the nomad land of Kam. The Tibetans refer to her as Kandro, which is their word for skydancing goddess. Now in her late twenties, she grew up in nomad and Kam, the far eastern province of old Tibet. Like other new arrivals from Tibet, she made her way to Dharamsala, but her story was an astonishing odyssey, even here, where incredible stories are commonplace. When she kept going into trance at audiences for newly arrived Tibetans and at public teachings, the Dalai Lama requested an investigation. In Tibet, there are so many people who are oracles. But the deities who are coming inside their bodies are very small in their power. Supervising the investigation at the request of the Dalai Lama was Kalkajetsan Damba Rinpoche, the traditional head of the Mongolian branch of Tibetan Buddhism. During the investigation, it appeared increasingly possible that through this young Tibetan woman were coming some of the highest deities in the Tibetan pantheon. Primarily a few of the twelve Tenma goddesses who are in the extended retinue of the very highest female protector deity of Tibet, Palthan Lamo. It was a very big job to confirm that she was actually a powerful spirit and very important because his holiness asked for it, you know. And if they would make any mistake in this, it would result in a very bad situation. But how did he actually determine that she was Tema? If you study and practice Pandeya Hamu, you will be able to recognize the Tema Chunyi, the 12th Tema. Actually, there are many realized masters who can see the deities, how they look, what they are wearing, are they riding a horse or a lion or whatever? And when His Holiness asked Rinpoche, so what do you think? What is it? Is it important? Who is coming inside her body? Rinpoche replied, I can tell that there is the Tema. One or two or three of the Temas are coming inside her body. But it would be better to have the Nichung Oracle and this Oracle meet in trance. Because the Nichung can also recognize who is possessing her and make a determination. In fact, when the Nichung Oracle is in trance, if a fake Oracle comes into his presence, he will recognize the phony and throw him out immediately. 
And when the medium oracle came and went into trance, he confirmed that she is indeed real. And that in future, she'll become very beneficial for the Tibetan people. Once the nation's confirmation was accepted, the Dalai Lama requested that she begin intensive practice to keep her body's channels clear of obstructions. She was also asked to keep a low profile out of concern that she would be besieged by people wanting her to predict the future. Regardless of what happens to the self, the person, or the consciousness during trance, the possession affects the body of the medium profoundly. my own experience in 1988 seemed to show, they appear to be able to project something of that intense energy, if not some conscious awareness, at a distance. The trances also take their toll on the body of the medium. Historically, the nature oracles have not lived much beyond 50 years. In the case of the Tenma, she had difficulties even before she first began to be possessed she relates that as a young child she showed a great concern for all life even feeling sorry for the tick she had to remove from the sheep and apparently she showed an early uncanny ability to tell people what was happening in their lives Trances started spontaneously at age eight. Once, while walking on a mountainside, she went into trance and fell down the steep slope. She was unconscious for a week. In her coma, she had a vision of goddesses of light placing her on a throne and offering her garlands of flowers and ritual barley cakes. <laughs> Within a few years, she made her way to Lhasa, the capital of Tibet, where she went into trance on the steps of the Jokang Temple and started shouting for Tibetan freedom. Immediately, a Chinese policeman started to beat her with his rifle butt, but apparently she was so powerful in her trance that she took the gun away from him. Perhaps because the police considered her mad, they didn't arrest her, and when she recovered, she didn't know what she had shouted. She wasn't even aware that Tibet was occupied. She was advised to flee Lhasa and go home. Instead, with no money or food, she made her way south, where she relates that a mysterious old man, half-naked like an Indian sadhu, gave her money and told her to go to where the Dalai Lama lives. It took her 27 days, sometimes going a week without food, to cross the Himalayas. 
Like Nei Chung, the Gedong is a state oracle with his own monastery that he's had to rebuild in exile. Unlike Nei Chung, it's a hereditary oracleship, passing from father to son. While he is called in for official trances, it's usually alongside the Nei Chung because the Gedong oracle in trance does not yet speak. No, still, uh, I'm not. Still not. This, I don't know. It, this is not my trouble. It's not having serious. <laughs> The trouble of the spirit. <laughs> Sometimes it happened. Yes. Because Lamo, the other oracle, yes. he used to his father never speak. The Gedong medium is referring to the third state oracle, the Sangpa, who died a few years ago. Like Gedong, it's a hereditary oracle ship passing from father to son for many hundreds of years. I've met the eldest son of the late Sangpa, Tenzin Chojor, at a party. He's an aspiring photographer who would prefer not to be an oracle. Oracle, I mean, like, you know, you have to put on lots of time in, you know, getting involved with spiritual things. You have to do lots of prayers. And, you know, and photography is also something where you have to spend a lot of time. And it takes time to grow. Why I want to become a photographer is to tell the world about Tibetan people and the situation through my photography. Not because I want to become a photographer and make lots of money from it. But, you know, if it is my destiny to become an oracle, then I would accept it. I screened the 1988 sequence for the Nechung Median to see if he can shed some light on what happened to me when I was practically blown off my feet. Before we can get to it, an unusual coincidence comes to light. It turns out that the layman who spontaneously went into trance was none other than the Sankta medium, and the wrathful shrieking was the very first time the oracle spoke. Standing behind him, unnoticed by me or the camera, was an eight-year-old Tenzin Chojar. Did your father ever talk to you about uh, what's involved in being an oracle? It is a hereditary line. Yeah. Uh, it's unusual that your father wouldn't have said anything. Do you think maybe he thought he might be the last on the line? I really have no idea how my father thought. <laughs> I think the the tradition will keep going, I think so. But it is also, I mean, it's not about my father to decide who is the oracle. You know, it just, you know, I don't know, it just happens, you know. There is a fourth oracle in Dharamsala. Unlike the state oracles that only go into trance for the Dalai Lama or the government in exile, or the Tenma who has the role of protecting the Buddha Dharma, Yudrongma is a village oracle, used for consultations by individuals. But I was asked, so I please want to ask whether I have some obstacles. Phil 
Village oracles are abundant within Tibet and in the traditionally Tibetan areas of India like Spiti and Ladakh. There are no less than 17 village oracles in Spiti, a 150-kilometer long, sparsely populated and isolated Himalayan valley that rises upwards from 12,000 feet and has long been inhabited by ethnic Tibetans. Village oracles up here harken back to the pre-Buddhist Tibet of Guru Rinpoche. They tend to be possessed by lower-level nature spirits and are used principally for healings and social matters. process other than their acceptance by the local population. There is always the potential for fakery and abuse of their authority. Now in a village, someone to go into trance, then the medium becomes of high status. And then along with the ability to go into trance or having the ability to put on an act faking it, it becomes a tremendous source of income. People come and give you an offering and then you do your thing. So it's a business. Actually, they were supposed to be a consultant, consultants in people's spiritual development, not in earthly welfare. While they accept the reality of oracles, a large number of educated lay Tibetans feel some ambivalence about their use in the modern world. But there is a small minority, those who want complete independence for Tibet rather than the Dalai Lama's middle path approach, who are critical of the use of oracles, especially for making political decisions. In a democratic society, the elected people have the responsibility to make decisions and to be responsible. They can't put the blame on some non-existent, nameless and formless being. Even in old Tibet, you know, a lot of the oracles uh, face not only doubt but criticism. Though he used to live here in Dharamsala, the essayist and novelist Jamyang Norbu has moved with his family to rural Tennessee. Even in public, you know, the Tibetan national oracle has been booed in public. You know? After he, yeah, we predicted wrongly when about the British, uh, you know, the invasion, the young husband invasion, and there's 700 Tibetans in one day were massacred. He said that. Um, the Tibetans were not to worry that the heavenly armies, you know, would back up the, you know, the militia and that he would be there to lead the heavenly armies. And of course, you know, he was just massacred. They had Gatling guns. 700 Tibetan you know, militia just slaughtered. And people avoid responsibility by asking uh, you know, the oracle. If you invoke the oracle, then, you know, your hands, it's clean, you know. I, I didn't say that. The oracle made the decision. Oracles are also misused in other ways than for avoiding responsibility and earthly gain. 
Their spirits are sometimes propitiated as enlightened deities, worthy of going to for spiritual refuge. These are mundane sort of spirits. So, should not consider them as a refuge. But unfortunately, due to lack of knowledge about Buddha Dharma, yeah, then sometimes the people, you see, do sort of, say the absolute sort of uh, protector, something like that, ultimate protector, consider or treat them almost like Buddha. That's totally wrong. Feeding place, yeah. And second, protection. Mm. Yeah. Otherwise, there's a lot of small birds you see, together. Then what you call hawk, or sometimes you see they uh, come. So this is the one way protection. The issue of improper use of oracles reached ahead in the 1990s with a seething controversy that culminated in a horrible ritual murder. The beginnings of the Shugden Oracle are murky, going back at least 350 years to the time of the fifth Dalai Lama. What is clear is that at the end of the last century, an influential High Lama elevated this relatively minor oracle to be the chief protector of the Gelug school the Dalai Lama's own branch of Tibetan Buddhism. Despite the warnings of the previous Dalai Lama, many of the Gelugs began to propitiate this spirit as fully enlightened. The problems intensified when the oracle proclaimed that the Gelugs should not do any practices of the other three schools. This led to sectarian rifts and concerns by the other schools that the already powerful Gelugs were using this oracle for political, not spiritual, advancement. The present Dalai Lama, as the political head of all Tibetans, has always been strictly non-sectarian and has therefore practiced teachings from all four schools. The Shugden Oracle's insistence on doctrinal purity, if not a personal attack on him, was certainly a thorn in the side of his policy of non-sectarianism. In other words, it is a fundamentalist group of oracle, and the Dalai Lama necessarily had to say, if you were closely associated with that article, you can't be closely associated with me because my constituency isn't limited just to one say. The Dalai Lama's response was very direct. He stated that the practice of Shukden was a form of spirit worship and was harmful to the Dalai Lama institution and Tibetan unity. Wow. While he could not tell anyone not to practice it, he would ask practitioners of Shukden not to attend his teachings. This request shook the Gelug sect to its foundations. Large numbers of the High Lamas were shoved into devotees, and the practice was even well established among Western students. A profound choice had to be made. A Western friend of mine wrote me, Even today I find it hard to talk about, though I don't feel especially connected anymore. But it went very deep, and the process of stopping is very complex. The spirit has a firm hold. It's akin to the feelings held by cult followers when trying to separate. Huge guilt stuff. While nearly all the Gelugs gave up the practice, some did not. And there were elements in the Tibetan community who were overzealous in how they dealt with those who refused. This led to charges of witch hunts. 
Things reached an almost absurd plateau when the more radical Shugden supporters charged that the Dalai Lama was trying to suppress their religious freedom. As far from the truth as this was, it did illustrate the extremely dangerous mood that was brewing. On a night in February 1997, the head of the Institute of Buddhist Dialectics and an outspoken critic of the extremes of the Shugden supporters was followed back to Dharamsala from Delhi and ritually murdered along with two young assistants. Oh my. He was a really close friend and a teacher. But the, the, the way of death, sort of unpleasant. I've never seen murder. You know, murder is part of human life. People sort of digging knives at other people and cutting their throat and stabbing them all over the place. And the young boys who died with it. But the Dalai said, you can't feel sorry for a man who's had a wonderful life. You feel sorry for the man who killed him. I mean, I really do feel sorry for that. You can't feel sorry for somebody who had an excellent life. But the young boys who died with it. Terrible. The Indian police believe the perpetrators escaped into Chinese Tibet, where they apparently remain beyond the reach of Indian law. It's common belief here that they were supported and funded by the Chinese Secret Service to create disunity among the Tibetan community in exile. Though the Dalai Lama agrees that oracles have often been misused, he feels that to stop their use would mean abandoning a unique part of Tibetan culture and would not be in keeping with the Buddhist middle way. Religion, also sometimes misuse. That I think a little bit extreme. Uh, uh, if you entirely rely relying on oracle, extreme. If you entirely dismiss this, that also extreme. When you personally use oracles, what do you use them for? Two types. Mm-hmm. Like uh, annual sort of meeting. Uh, one, one, one category is something like annual meeting. But then uh, some important questions or matters comes. This is the annual kind of meeting. It's the first time the Dalai Lama has ever allowed it to be filmed. He places me at a safe distance so I'm not in the way, but recalling that flash of enormous energy passing through my body, there's a tingle of excitement mixed with a definite sense of familiarity, and I can't help wishing I was right in close. Watching the sense of self disappear like this brings a certain fascination. The Nei Cheng is the principal state oracle, goes first into trance. He's followed by the Gadol, the oracle who does not yet speak. The Dalai Lama believes it may be because of his physical condition. He contracted tuberculosis when he came to India from Tibet. But once he disappears into trance, Whatever possesses him makes a mighty effort to get out a few words. Finally, the Tenma is brought in. While she's not a state oracle, she is a protector of the Buddha Dharma, 
the vast body of Buddhist thought she's been earthbound to support for the last 1,200 years. Looking at this face, it dawns on me that whether we try to interpret this experience from a Western psychological perspective as some dissociated or transpersonal state of human consciousness, or see it like the Tibetans as a window onto a consciousness that is completely non-human, that ultimately we are witnessing the self disappearing within an experience of such depth and subtlety that any explanation for it will necessarily come up short. Although it's perhaps worth noting that the Tibetan explanation engenders respect for the experience, while mainstream psychological science treats it at best as anomalous and at worst as abnormal. What did you learn? Uh, no particular sort of points to, to ask them. This year, uh, we will contact with Chinese government, so this should be successful. And then, me personally, visit different country, so any, some serious obstacle, they are not. They all say, okay, no problem. Then one occasion, the Nijum Oracle, much so moved, he asked me, I should live long. All right, like, human being, very much emotion, nearly, so crying. And then, Tama, Similar sort of response, and some poems expressing again for my long life, prayer or some request like that. Whatever oracles are, for the Dalai Lama they are not special. They are just another input into his decision-making process. We are human being. <laughs> These are oracle. We are. Uh, more important, we have more responsibility. <laughs> I usually ask them their suggestion. Uh, if something, uh, according to our common sense, or oh, this is definitely only one to choice, then yeah, we take decision. But if there are few choices, we feel dilemma. Then ask different views, or sort of, what's the day? I mean, different views from different people as well as different oracles. That usually I do. And then finally, usually I do the divination. But these things, you need some meditation. Uh, in my case, firstly, uh, I remember Buddha, then Ramasambhava, then Ramasambhava, uh, then Mahakala. After a lengthy sequence of meditations that culminates in the Buddhist view of interdependency, the Dalai Lama does a traditional Tibetan divination. In the Mo or Dobal divination, balls of barley dough are wrapped around pieces of paper with choices written on them. They are then rolled around inside a bowl. With the mind in a meditative state that directly perceives the interdependence of all things, the ball that first escapes the rim sometimes becomes a speaker of truth. Otherwise, this 
Interesting. There's all these cosmic um, communications about things going on right now. It's a very interesting time. Yeah, my understanding about these beings is 
They are primordial energies called anima and animas. Animas, yes. And Padma Sambhava, um, Sarat Kumara is kind of in charge of that stuff. <clears throat> I see. Ancient eternal and supreme days and I'm just a mouse squeaking. <laughs> You're just a mouse squeaking? I'm trying to understand the nature of the universe. <laughs> Have you discovered it? No. Okay, well, mm. um, our simulated multiverse. Mm. Okay. You want to do that one? Um, or Eruda, City of Gods. Yeah. You want to do that one? Yeah, Eridu. Eridu. Eridu, mm. City of Gods. Okay, let me read this. Yeah. How much of human history has been hidden by the sands of time with so many new discoveries of ancient structures like Gobloteki, Tepe, and the, and the lost city of, how'd you say that? Eridu? Eridu. Eridu. That's up there somewhere, what, Palmyra, place like that? It, it's, Near, yeah. Uh -huh. Mesopotamia. Our understanding of human history is changing. Author and researcher Matthew LaCroix joins Regina Meredith for an in-depth discussion on the looting of historical artifacts from the cradle of civilization, lost secrets of Mesopotamia, cuneiform tablets of Sumer, and the connections between cultures of centuries past. From Atlantis to Eridu, and from the Anunnaki to the Nephilim, LaCroix de details how uncovering and fighting to protect lost writings and structures of the ancients can rewrite our timeline of humanity's origins and our destiny. Okay, this is 43 minutes. Let's do it, Rama. Okay. It's coming along. city of Eridu in Mesopotamia is the most ancient civilization. I'm an objective person. I don't just create a story because it sounds good and go with it. I go with the evidences. What they found is the greatest library ever amassed in history. 
So the whole notion of slave species doesn't exactly play out the same way. No, in fact, it's opposite. We were created perfect for this planet, but also to be beings that could ascend to a place of enormous power and potential. And we really are a shadow of our former self right now. To me, it's the ultimate crime. I agree with you. And for you, it just breaks your heart. This doesn't make any sense. If you have discovered something that profound and ancient, why wouldn't universities all over the world have been all over this? Literally, cuneiform records are tablets are like sticking yeah, out of the ground. It's, just, it's, it's so, so sad. You wait to think, well, somebody else will do this. Not Maybe necessarily, they, they haven't. In 2003, my blood boiled when I learned that American military troops ransacked the ancient Iraq city of Ur after we invaded Iraq, spray-painting the ancient artifacts. Ur was considered at the time to be the most ancient city on Earth, home of the biblical Abraham. Now, however, it appears that a nearby city named Eridu is even more ancient and laden with cuneiform tablets telling of our ancient history. And guess what? It's being openly looted of its treasures by local intruders for profit on the black market. Our ancient history lost once again. Matthew LaCroix is as incensed as I was over it, and he's here to tell us the significance of Eridu and what we can do about the looting. This is a big deal. You're passionate about it. And, you know, Matthew, when I saw your, your, you have a documentary that you did on this, and you were able to obtain some photographs that maybe weren't licensed per se of these looters, so it's kind of on the down low. But it really just got me going all over again to see this is happening. And you and I are having this conversation because I want to not only find out about the site itself and what's there, but why, okay? Yeah. So, first of all, let's talk about the city of Eridu and its historical significance. Most people have never heard of it. Yeah, uh, Eridu for me is uh, quite dear to my heart because, you know, one of the focus areas that I've had studying throughout the years has been ancient Mesopotamian history, looking into Sumerian, Akkadian, and Babylonian tablets and trying to piece together this lost story of humanity. Because truthfully, when you go through the records and you look at what are the oldest writings that still exist today, is it, are they paper records? Are they papyrus? You know, what, it, what are those older records? And they, you really find out that they're um, they're what's known as cuneiform tablets, this etched in um, symbols into clay or, or stone. And then the clay, if it's in that case, um, is often fired up and, and, and turned into this hard material that can survive for thousands of years. And the, the ancient Sumerians wrote um, more than 50,000 cuneiform tablets um, over the course of history that have been discovered in various libraries. And we, uh, when we read those tablets, when we try to take and look at every version, Sumerian, Akkadian, and Babylonian, the same theme comes up over and over in every single one. It's mentioned in, a, in at least a dozen tablets, and that is that Eridu is the very first city ever created here on the planet, not something where nomadic hunters and gatherers decided just to group together, but a, a divine kingship lowering from heaven and creating the first civilization. So Eridu is quite dear to my heart. And that's why, you know, Regina, when what you just mentioned about what's going on there, it's truly tragic. It is tragic. And one of the things that's interesting before we go on with this is everybody's looking at timelines, always looking at timelines. We have no idea. The one thing I think humanity needs to be a little bit more humble about is we have no idea how ancient our human history is, right? Exactly. And so some will say, okay, well, Lemuria, Lemuria was a half a million, million years ago. Others will say, well, we know Atlantis was at least a quarter of a million years ago, up to about 12,000 years ago. 
But you're saying that in your opinion, that the ancient city of Eridu in Mesopotamia is the most ancient civilization. And so describe that. And, and it's, and I want to get into this a little further because this is where nuanced thinking comes in. Yeah. Um, you know, and listen, I love to speculate on Atlantis yeah. and Lemuria Mu and try to figure out where that fits into the timeline. Yeah. And we have some clues, you know, based on Solon and, and based on Plato's descriptions of it. But in the end, the only date that he gives for, for Atlantis is when it was destroyed. Right. He doesn't actually say when it was first no, created. Not at so all. we have to try to backtrack and look at some of the evidence. And what I'm end up funneling down my, my path is that I look and say, well, we have evidence to show how old Eridu is. So that it gives us a little bit of a, a, a ballpark to try to create a timeline. And not only that, but there are other cities and tablets mentioned that have distinctions on events like this great deluge, this catastrophe, of right. potentially like the Younger Dryas, and how there were cities that existed before and then cities that existed after. And really what we find in that is that take some, for an example, take like the Sumerian king list, the, one of the most well-known of mm-hmm. all the cuneiform tablets mm-hmm. that people, when they go down this road, they study and they it blows their mind because the Sumerian king list gives this accurate record of ancient kings that ruled in these early Sumerian cities. And what it says in there as the, as the preface for the beginning of it, it says, when kingship was lowered from heaven, kingship was in Eridu. And so we look at that and we say, okay, does, is that verifiable with other tablets? We look mm-hmm. at Eridu, Genesis, Uruk, list of kings, and we find the same mention over and over again. So we know that that's the first city, but how old is it? Right. And that's what we, we get into some interesting aspects of when you, uh, when you add up like the Sumerian king list and you try to figure out, well, the kings rule for these, these reigns and then this is when it was first created. You get like a 200, 250,000 year old right. story. And, and Eridu right. is the center of that story. Yeah. So there we go. We're talking roughly quarter of a million years yeah. just there. Not what the uh, Wikipedia entry says. No, certainly not. (laughs) I'm not funding Wikipedia anymore, actually. (laughs) But this is interesting because I think it's important to understand for all of us that what I've come to understand over the years, that many of these ancient cultures, as far as we can see, were concurrent. So you have Egypt as an ancient culture that's developing. But what stage of development? We don't know at any given stage. Most of those pyramids are in exams. The early ones are gone. I mean, they're buried, right? And so it's the same with this, but at least you have something because of the king's list. Yeah. So so let's just play with the notion that it could be 200, 250,000 years as a city. Okay. That makes us a much more sophisticated species than we thought. Yeah, it changes (laughs) changes the entire narrative. You know, it changes this this doctrine we have of, of... Civilization only being 6,000 years old exactly. and everything fitting into that tight little neat um, area of time, it just doesn't make exactly. any sense, right? Mm-hmm. You look at the er- erosion marks on the Sphinx enclosure exactly. and you really can just prove what you say. Look, we know that there wasn't enough rainfall during this time period in history to be able to create that erosion. Right. So we therefore have to look beyond that. Look at the alignments with Leo. Look at the Sphinx. Look at the Great Pyramids alignments with Sirius and Orion and try to understand, well, when did they align? Right. And, and how does that play into Eridu and ancient Mesopotamia? And as we're going to go along, you can find out that they're all connected. Yes. Okay, so this is at the confluence of the Tigris and Euphrates River. This is the cradle of civilization, this valley. And near this, and in fact, up north from it, is uh, Gobekli Tepe. All this starts tying together now that they've 
dug there and see the sophistication of what was left behind there. So we'll go into a little tale about that area. But it also appears that one of the, you said the King's List, once you're able to read cuneiform, and Billy Carson told me you can actually read it. Yeah, I'm studying to actually learn how to read it myself. I love it. Yeah, it's, yes. not, it's, not, a diff, it's not an easy task. No, <laughs> not at all. And you rely on a few translators that you have a lot of respect sure. for that are consistent. I think it's fair now to bring up, before I go here, Zechariah Sitchin's interpretations, because that it, there are two schools of thought on that one. Yeah, and um, so the more that I dug into this, you know, like a lot of individuals, most will start with Zechariah Sitchin because he's very well known. His books have reached so many people around the world. And that's where I started my path. But I quickly realized that, you know, because I'm an objective person, right? And I'm not just, I don't just create a story because it sounds good and go with it. If I go with the evidences mm-hmm. and I became very, very interested, almost obsessed with that story of this ancient um, Anunnaki Mesopotamian story. And I wanted to know if what he was saying was accurate. And as I go, I went along, I realized, well, not everything he was saying was, is, was completely accurate. You know, he, he had some aspects of truth in there, but then there was a lot that I disagreed with. And so I went back to the books and I said, well, I want to look into the history of who first translated these tablets, who these Assyriologist experts are, and then who's verified each other's work. And it truly, you get this, you get a story that goes back to, um, really beginning in 1849 with Austin Henry Laird when, um, University of Oxford, they came down to the Iraqi area and they were looking for ancient libraries and ancient cities. And what they found was in the ancient city of Nineveh in Iraq, which by the way was destroyed by ISIS and is no longer there any longer. What they found is the greatest library ever amassed in history, even more important than the library of Alexandria, which was burned by down by the Romans and most of those records lost. But the difference is that no one, most people have never even heard of this library. Right. And, and that library Spell is called. Spell it out for people who sure. want to. Yeah. It's, so it's the Royal Asher Bonapal Library and A-S-H-U-N-B-A-N-P-A-L. And he was this um, really unique individual in history where a lot of these kings and rulers during this, these time frames, they were conquerors. They just conquered other, other areas and they, they wanted great wealth and power. But he was a different kind of ruler. He was a ruler who truly wanted to protect the legacy of history, the information of history. He was a high priest. He was a scholar. And so he used his power to send out armies to every part of the region to go amass and find these tablets, which had, were already ancient during his time period. Right. And, and what was his time period? Uh, well, that's the thing. We're trying to recreate the timeline of right. history because that doctrine of 6,000 years is truly something that we have to – Move everything in a sure. different place. Um, he probably lived somewhere around four thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. So he had he was dedicated to preserving history and knowledge. So um, that was discovered in the mid eighteen hundreds. And so let's talk about what happened with that information. Okay, because it was rediscovered. Yeah. So Austin Henry Laird found more than fifty thousand cuneiform tablets in this ancient library that had been burned to the ground and actually helped preserve the tablets even better because of the heat. Mm-hmm. And they were buried under layers of sand and they found they found them and they and they looked at these tablets and they had absolutely no idea how to read them. It was unlike any language they'd ever seen before. And if and if you study Sumerian you learn that it's what's known as a language isolate. There's nothing that's shared by it. It's unique in its own. It doesn't even use an alphabet. Mm-hmm. It has just enormous amounts of different characters related to words that you, you combine to, to, to figure out what the story is. So for more than 20 years, these tablets remained 
unknown for what they were. It was a language that had died out and had not been spoken by for thousands of years. Right. And so these tablets remained for, for more than 20 years until a man named George Smith um, in, in 1875 finally cracked the code and figured out how to actually read it. And the first tablets that he translated was the Epic of Gilgamesh. And he, he realized that here we have a story that talks about origins and the great deluge and these different kings and rulers at different times and all these incredible aspects. And from there, um, individuals like Samuel and Noah Kramer and Stephanie Daly have come and confirmed his his translations to try to get this piece, this story back together from the past. And so what was it in the Sitchin story that you did not resonate with in particular? Yeah, there was a number of terms and, and ways that he interpreted things that um, just were not very accurate. If you go back to read the records, for instance, uh, he talked about how we were created to mine gold and and toil in this place is like a, almost like a slave species. But in really what you find is they don't talk about gold mining or anything like that at all. They actually talk about how the ancient Ajiji, a subset of the Anunnaki, were trying to create infrastructure here. They were, it actually talks about how they were laying bricks in pure places and the Ajiji were building temples and they were clearing lifelines of the, the river channels. So that was what I think some of the confusion over mining was because they were clearing river channels of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers so that they could have an extensive agricultural system to create the blueprints of a civilization. You have to have certain criteria and certain things to be able to create a civilization. And they knew that. Right. And that was what they're, they were, they were doing there. But the story going forward on where we came from and how we're associated with that was just quite a bit different. Right. Okay. And so the whole notion of slave species doesn't exactly play out the same way. No. In fact, I have a great objection to the term slaves. Yeah, I, I do as well. In fact, it's completely, really the opposite is that we were, we were created, um, by some and almost like perfection in the universe, how we were, we were created perfect for this planet, but also to be truly like beings that could ascend to a, a place of enormous power and potential. And that power and potential has been forgotten in us. And we have, we have lost our way over such a long period of time. All these catastrophes that have come and reset us back and having to relearn everything again. And we really are a shadow of our former self right now. Right. We just have to wake up. Remember, right? And that's what you're trying to help people that's what do. I'm to do. Well, that is interesting because even in the world of UFOlogy and some of the people who've written books back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, a little there was a little more sanity around the subject in a certain sense at that time. Um, it has been said that there are at least 400,000 humanoid species just in our galaxy, and so. If that's true, it appears that this form that we have now and the form the Anunnaki came in, and we see slight iterations of longer skulls, of fewer fingers, and so forth yeah. here and there, but it appears to be a form that's quite um, diversely capable. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like, um, you know, we don't know all the different species that exist in the universe. No. We only have this little glimpse of, you know, this might be this, this might be that, but yeah. one of the things we know for certain is we were created in their image. Yeah meaning that they looked like us. And mm-hmm. you can see depictions and murals of them. They're much taller than we were. And I think really that's where the whole story of the Nephilim comes in with these giant kings ruling. That's that's the the image of them. That's what they are. We are like a child of them created in their right. image. So we're just another iteration of a humanoid species. Exactly. Basically, exactly. which is highly functional. We have opposable thumbs. That's okay. right. <laughs> okay, so let's get into Eridu and let's talk about some of the gods sure. because this starts, to me, it's fascinating 
when it starts crossing over into biblical characters. That's right. So let's get into Unlil and Inki. Many uh, of the people watching this right now, our audience, have heard of them. Yeah. But go ahead and tell it the way you understand it. Okay, so when you look at ancient Sumerian records and you and you look at the history of it, what you find is that this archetype of what these gods are portraying is not just based on forces of nature or the planets. They're they're real in real beings, they're deities that seem to have a very significant role in our story. It seems that our story begins with them, as I said, with the creation of us. But but that creation came after the first cities the first city was created. So Eridu existed before even mankind was created. And it may even be where the biblical Eden is along the, the ranks of the Euphrates and Tigris rivers. Mm-hmm. That area was much different um, 10 plus thousand years ago than it is now. It was much, it had more water, it was much more lush, and now it's more of a desert. But we have to remember, you know, thing, the, the only constant is, is change, you know, climates change, things change over time. Mm-hmm. And so the way that the, the Sumerian stories really start is that basically, there was this need to create a uh, steward, someone who could manage the infrastructure here, someone who could be do the role of the Anunnaki, because they decided that um, based on the Ajiji's revolt and not wanting to do that work anymore, that we would be created to alleviate the toil of the gods. That's the term they use. So that we would be the ones doing all the things here and, you know, building temples and, and bringing whatever they needed to um, for, for those temples. And what's amazing about Eridu is that's where... If you look at the creator God who created mankind, Enki, meaning uh, Lord of the Earth, E-N means Lord, and Enlil, his uh, his half-brother, who in, in a lot of the ancient stories really opposes how we were created. He he was he, f- he felt quite threatened that we were uh, created in too much like their image and that we would as- uh, basically ascend and eventually become even greater than he did. So there was a lot of tension between the two of them. And so that's really why um, it really weaves into why this city is so important, because Enki, the creator of mankind, along with his sister uh, Ninma, that was where it all began. That was where first civilization first began and our story first began right there in Eridu. And if you if you so if you look at the history of Eridu, you find out that there's an ancient city of Eridu and then there's the, the, the ziggurat of Eridu right next to it. And that site is where all of these issues are today, where mm-hmm. it has been deliberately ignored and and deliberately left to the wolves so that this site can truly just disappear in history and never be known. It's fascinating. It is fascinating that all the attention has come back around to the same area, the points of conflict. Um, so what's interesting to me also, there are a few things. I'm going to throw the other part, the, the uh, metaphysical part into it. Uh, you're doing the research on all of the physical evidence you can find. And that is that in far memory uh, experiences of people, in other words, those who can go back into other times, um, one thing that's been noted is genetic manipulation and genetic engineering around the planet and these projects where yeah. they're humans were genetically engineered for whatever purpose regionally was needed. And that holds up with hundreds or thousands of people who've gone back in time and now documented through their own experience without knowing anything about it. Wow, that's interesting. They were doing some genetic work on us. And so this keeps popping up randomly. So that that overlays with the physical evidence of what you're talking about in the cuneiform uh, tablets. The other part to me that's fascinating in all this when you're trying to interpret it is that um, I I believe in the wheel of incarnations, you know. So um, 
people who were there at that time are certainly around now. We keep coming back. So there are people who actually were probably authors of some of those cuneiform tablets. Who knows? Maybe even you, um, that are authors of these that are back to interpret for that very reason because they can. The other, if I tried to do it, I'd probably never be able to do it. But if it's already in you, if that information is already in you, these people, I believe many have come back to help reveal our history to us. Yeah. Um, that's, that's what I like to think too. And I, I feel like this incredible need to help this site. Yeah. Um, is something deep within me and I, I, it's hard to figure out what that is. Well, you were born to do this. You're obsessed and it's wonderful. I'm so happy you are because you're so clear in your research and you're so clear in your articulate, articulation of it, uh, rather than going in as a rah-rah for somebody else, you know, to uphold someone else's story. You're really trying to cut through and find what's true for all of us. Yeah. And you know, the, really the way that it hits home to me is not only the significance of this site, and we're going to get into some of the other things that, that play in as well with the star yes. connections and all those things. But, you know, to see images, like you mentioned, that I've saved and, and shown it, like in, in the other documentary that I've made, to see people just walking up and finding most ancient records of mankind. Yeah. The, the libraries of our story sitting, sticking out of these, these ancient temple walls and out of this ancient temple mountain and people just finding them and just showing no respect, yeah. taking them and going to steal them and sell them just, you know, for money. It's, um, to me, it's the ultimate crime. Oh yeah. It really yeah, is. I like, agree with you. And for you, it's, it just breaks your heart. It, it really does. It actually, it, 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 it hits home and that's why I created that campaign called Campaign to Protect Eridu mm-hmm. so we can help bring awareness to this site because honestly, it, it, you like to think, well, somebody else will do this. No, maybe, maybe they won't. They haven't. Right? Exactly. They haven't. So, so I'm, I'm doing it and, and others are, are helping to bring awareness to a lot of these organizations that have de- decided to ignore this site and forget it. And if we get enough support, enough awareness about these ancient sites, we can protect them and get those ancient records and have them studied so we can understand our story to an even deeper level. Okay, so you talked about a couple of temples, one regular kind and one regular sided uh, pyramid, but also the Ziggurat temple, right? Which is different in nature. Now, one of them was dedicated to the underworld, and people don't really understand what that means. As They think often, oh, does that mean Satan? Uh, what does this mean? So let's talk about the temple connected with the underworld that's there. Okay, so the there's two sites at Eridu that are important. There may be more. We we again that area hasn't really been uncovered very well, so right. we still have so much to find. But you have the main city of Eridu itself, mm-hmm. which is the only area that's ever been excavated. Mm-hmm. It was excavated for subsequently for late late 1800s, briefly up through um, 1946 to 1948. We'll okay, that's interesting. Okay, um, but what's important is that we look at the ziggurat of Eridu, known as it's also the, the the main name if you were to look in ancient texts, it's called the E Abzu Temple. Okay, so that's the E. It's named after Enki, and it's his temple because the interesting aspect when you really look into the tablets is that the Anunnaki seem to take up different roles in our reality. That was really it's the thing that's echoed throughout all of them is that. Like Enlil, um, god of, you know, lord of the sky or the heavens, and then Enki, lord of the earth, he was designated to become a ruler in the underworld. Now that, there's some serious connotations that yeah, the, there are the religion a lot had. Of misunderstandings. Yeah, later on about this being the place where the hell is and yeah. all those terms. None, those terms aren't real. That's, that's just, a, those are scare tactics and fear-based things. Really what it comes down to is you think of the earth as a realm. 
and you have higher dimensions, lower dimensions, you have the surface where the physical reality is, then you have everything underneath us. And that's what's, what's is called the underworld. Now, just, you know, if you look at the ancient Egyptians, they were obsessed with the underworld. That was where they figured that incarnation and, and reaching higher states of energy was, not to mention you could go down in and connect to potentially the gods in, in ways that you couldn't above. It was a different kind of energy mm-hmm. going down to the center of the earth, having the aquifer systems and the, the connections that they had with the pyramids and all those systems. The same thing is true, though, in Eridu, but it's a little bit different. Because the E Abzu Temple is called that because it's literally the temple of the underworld. That's what that that's what that name breaks down to. And when you look at depictions of Eridu in that ziggurat, with the way that they had um, artists rendering from descriptions before you know it it collapsed and became what it is now, you saw ancient temple openings in multiple places that went down in, mm-hmm. and we don't know where they go. Mm-hmm. And that's what's really interesting is that ziggurat mountain where the temple's been eroding, mm-hmm. where those tablets are, that's never been excavated by archaeologists ever. Which is insane. It's just completely insane. There are, not only are those treasures uh, on, on the mountain, mountain itself, like the tablets and the, and the clay pots, but there may be literal underworld entrances that go down to who knows where. Right. And that's very exciting to think about. It is very exciting to think about. We can go a couple of different directions. One, just to, again, lay down a little bit of framework historically. One thing that we didn't mention a bit ago is when they started doing excavation, and you have photos of this in your documentary, there is a laden with seashells. That's right. So the city was buried after the end, uh, due to the inundation. It was yeah. buried. That's, and that's another piece of the Under evidence, water. Yeah. right? And you say, okay, well, the Sumerian king list is... Some people could add up dates wrong that may be suspect, but what about when you get physical evidence like this, right? Where you look and, you know, you can see some of those images I have on that documentary where the, because this mountain was never excavated, it was almost left in place. And there are literally, like you said, are seashells strewn across the top of the mountain, which you, you think, well, how could something like that even happen? And you really look at the, the deluge stories that are in these tablets carried all over and you really find that there were catastrophes in Earth's history where things like maybe the Mediterranean Black Sea and the Persian Gulf had these walls of water that came through and destroyed mm-hmm. everything. And I, and I think that that's the ultimate proof for how these seashells got laid in that spot mm-hmm. and how it proves that this city is older than the flood. So, yes, exactly. So that takes us back at least 12,000 years. Exactly. Anyway. Okay, now let's go to the above part. They had alignments that have become well-known at other uh, famous sacred sites as well with the stars, with a constellation. So let's talk about their alignments. Okay, so the first place to point out, so when people start looking at these ancient sites and the significance of what they, how they play for why they were built in, in a certain locations they are, there's a couple things to consider. The first is that there seems to be this, this line around the earth that's known as a 30th parallel. Mm-hmm. It's this location between the middle of the land masses and the and above the equator where it was very important for them to build right on that line. Mm-hmm. Now, that's just one of the things that's very interesting. Like, for instance, you look at where Eridu is, you you look at, you go west, you look at where the Great Pyramids of Giza are, you go, continue just to the east, you look at the ancient city of, like, Persepolis and Iran and Nashi, Rostam, and then you keep going over, like, Angor Wat and all these places. They're all found right on this 30th degree parallel, but there's more. There's also these ley line connections on the Earth that correspond exactly to the same locations, too. And there's even others as well as we get into star alignments. But as I was saying just now before when I mentioned that, go to a place like 
like the Great Pyramid, uh, Great Pyramids of Giza, right? Look at how those pyramids are aligned. And then you, you take some of the work like Freddie Silva and Graham Hancock and Robert Schock and mm-hmm. all these great minds. And they noticed and identified that, hey, wait a minute. Not only are these pyramids aligned to Sirius and Orion during a certain time period of history mm-hmm. to show how old they are, but they're also aligned to the three belt stars of Orion. And we see that in Teotihuacan as well. But what we also see it is in other new discoveries that are being made. For instance, uh, you had Freddie Silva on your show recently. He was discussing the connections with Gobekli Tepe with the Great Pyramids. And that was a fascinating connection that I thought was very helpful for identifying some other, some of these other connections. So what, what Freddie was talking about that was so brilliant is that when you look at Gobekli Tepe, its original name wasn't Potbelly Hill. It was Portisar. And Portisar means umbilical cord of, of Osiris. And Osiris was, um, one of the ancient connections it had was the, it had a deep connection to relate to the Orion, the stars of Orion. Mm-hmm. And that was like a symbolic way to connect uh, Osiris. So, so if the three um, pyramids of Giza are aligned to the three bell stars of Orion and Gobekli Tepe is, is the umbilical cord of Orion, mm-hmm. then what else is connected? And I started to really look at this. And one of the really significant connections I found was when I was looking at star charts and I noticed where Orion is, where the umbilical cord is with Gobekli Tepe, how everything aligns and thinking about the law of correspondence as above, so below. And the fact that it seems like everything's being built here to mirror the heavens and to mirror the cosmos. To mirror their heavens. Exactly. And what you found was that, that the river of Euphrates river and potentially even the Tigris, they may have had a very different flow direction back in the day. And it looks like when you connect Gobekli Tepe at the headwaters with Eridu down at the Persian Gulf and all the other ancient Sumerian cities in between, you get an exact mirroring of the Eridanus constellation. And Eridanus is what connects to Orion and the stars. Mm-hmm. It's a star connection. Yeah. And it's their star connection. That's right. That they, they created it to not just mimic, but bring, as you say, below where they are familiar with from above. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it uh, it looks like they were creating that heaven on yes, earth heaven here. On earth. And furthermore, even the stars of Eridanus may exactly correlate to where these cities were built. That's yeah. why Eridu has such a similar name to Eridanus. Yeah, exactly. Well, and if you take the notion that we've had periodic pole reversals through time, of course the waters are going to run a little bit differently. Everything's going to reconfigure itself. So the fact that there's even this much history that's this well-preserved, if indeed we're talking about a culture that could be a quarter of a million years old, is phenomenal. Yeah. We've even gotten this far, really. Yeah, right. So... Now, let's talk about what happened in 1948. Um, I just find this so peculiar. Um, let's talk about it. Okay, so the University of Oxford um, and a couple other, like the Iraqi Museum and a few other institutions, they went back to Eridu after an extended period of time of not being at the site. There was work done in the late 1800s, and they were in the city of Eridu excavating, and then that kind of stopped. And then they they went down and they revisited again the site in from the years 1946 to 1948, and they found tablets. There's even one displayed in the University of Oxford yeah, today, right? They found information. It's not like they went there, they didn't discover anything, and they decided to move on. They found tablets, displayed them, identified, the yeah, right? They displayed, and they found where the first city on Earth was, and then poof, they just abandoned the site that 
the site itself has been ignored and the last time it was excavated was 1948. And then all of a sudden there must have been some kind of a memo <laughs> brought down, right? Where, hey, let's, um, let's leave this site alone and not touch it ever again, basically. I just don't understand that. Not on any, uh, logical level. This, this doesn't make any sense. If you have discovered something that profound and ancient, why wouldn't universities all over the world have been all over this? Why wouldn't governments be trying to stake out their claim? Yeah. Why? Well, I mean, now, okay, the Americans went into Iraq yeah. and we're not a very well educated population. It's certainly when they went in there with the notion that, uh, the people, the native people there, the Iraqis are primitive people with primitive yeah. art and yeah. primitive cities. It was a very primitive way to view yeah. people in another part of the world. So we weren't respectful. We talked about that in the beginning. Go in and just start trashing the joint. Let's talk about some of what was trashed and also how the Americans started essentially uh, taking over those areas. Okay. So the first place to start is why did this happen? Yeah, you know, well, how could this be? There's got to be a reason, right? Well, there's, well, that's it. There's two major reasons in my mind. The first reason is, you know, this city being as old as it is, specifically mentioned as being the first city, right? And having that evidence there for it, it would completely change the narrative of human history. I mean, we would have to completely rewrite this whole story, yes, right? Course. So you have that issue right there as well. But I think there's an even deeper issue. And I think it gets into religious context. Because of the way that Enki became demonized in, in religion, he was the serpent. That was his symbol. He was the serpent god or the metamorphosis that eventually became the dragon, like you see in a lot of ancient cultures. But that's why you see this influence of, like in, in the Americas, for instance, Kukukan to the Maya, Quetzalcoatl to the, to the Aztec, Viracocha. These are all serpent gods of wisdom and knowledge. And what happened? Well, later on, they were conquered by the mighty eagle, and this became a demonized uh, place, right? Enki became this Satan figure in the underworld. That's why when you look at um, the trident and then the pitchfork, the trident was one of his, his original um, symbols that he had with him in, in, during ancient Atlantean times. And then it became inverted to the pitchfork and this, right. this, this hell devil figure down there. And that's because... He became a threat. He created us in perfection. He was, he was the creator, crafty creator god of, of our history. And he became demonized because it goes back to the, the story of the Garden of Eden. He is the serpent that tempted Adam and Eve to eat of the, of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. And remember, there's this god figure in that story that didn't want that. And I really think that I've, uh, you really look at the parallels of that story that that god figure is Enlil. If Enlil it, how did he gain that degree of prominence and control? Well, it's a complex story. Even though Enki is considered his title as Lord of the Earth, right. Enlil ended up being in control of, of most of the story here. Most well, of the we're art. talking Old Testament stuff. We're talking about yeah. kind of pitiful gods, really. Punishing yeah. and pitiful gods yeah. that would have you, you know, kneeling before them exactly. and begging for crumbs. That Old Testament stuff, which I never believed, even at yeah. five. So that doesn't make any sense. But how did that take hold? It took hold of all the major world religions. That's right. And those are the Abrahamic religions exactly. that, came, that came after that. And you feel, I, I feel like if you look at those parallels of that jealous God, Enlil, who, who in Gnostic texts like the Nag Hammadi, he talks about how his name in there is Yaldabaoth. And he is he's a jealous God of humanity that is so jealous that he casts us down in the lowest form of matter. Right. That's a quote from that. Right. And that same figure is also, I believe, Yahweh mm -hmm. in the Old Testament, right. who is, like you said, he's, 
He's an angry, jealous God that demands sacrifice and oh, all these God, things. Blood sacrifice. And, but that's why Enki became demonized because he took over religion as this powerful figure. And Enki was this evil serpent, underworld, hell, all these connotations. That's why one of the reasons why I think the site has also been abandoned. And so at this point in time where knowledge can can and information can flow freely around the planet, why continue to keep the roost going? Yeah. Um, what, what's the point? <laughs> it's like they're trying to hold on to scraps as long as they possibly can, even though so many in the world are, are discovering that this is an ancient city or the first city, and you're, you're, they're literally like outraged. I have a lot of people who have commented on that documentary and on this information, just a complete disbelief that something like this is happening to one of the most important, if not the I most important, sites in history. Yeah. I think that's why this show is so important, talking to you, because we can bring that necessary awareness to protect our, our story and all the most important archaeological places in history. Okay, we have the, the, the governments, the academic world, we have religions who might all resist having a new story of our history emerge. But as I was pointing out earlier, it seems like that time is now closing, that that window for them. And maybe you're, like you say, do a little bit of pillaging and raping on the way out the door while you can is still going on. But tell tell us your vision of what that story would bring to humanity by way of our own empowerment, if it were allowed to get out. Yeah, so there's a tablet called the Myth of Adapa, and it discusses how Adapa was not the first man created, but the first perfect man created. And he lived in Erdu. Mm-hmm. And it, it discusses how he lived there, and he was one of the great sages. And they called these sages the Apkalu. And there were seven great sages around the world. And Enki, um, basically his... Um, and, his incarnation as a king there was known as Nunamid. And they had this perfect story created where humanity was reaching these higher states of consciousness. And then of course the whole thing fragmented and language was, was, mm-hmm. was, was injected in and all these different divisions of humanity. We all became, you know, at, at almost at, at odds with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really all started there. And that's where not only the perfect man, the perfect, the perfect human was created, but it was where essentially these um, divisions of the gods really began. That's where the conversations were. That's where they decided to create these aspects of um, above and below of our reality so that they can create this. Um, I guess some would, some would wonder, you know, what exactly they created here. Is it a control system or is it more of just a way to manage mankind? It's an interesting aspect, but I think that the possibilities of what we could discover in Eridu if we were able to go in and excavate it are literally endless. Well, if it's all the whole notion of created in their image, then that means we're quite capable. Yeah. And I think that's really the story right there. I think that the institutions and religions of the world do not want us as human beings to know just how incredibly capable we already are. Yeah. And imagine if we had our memory back, how incredibly capable we would be. How angry we'd be at what happened, right? (laughs) Exactly. And capable. So uh, just a little bit, how can people... Uh, become involved in in helping with this effort to uh, preserve Eridu. I mean, are you looking for are you looking for institutional help? Are you looking for GoFundMe campaign? What are you looking for? What would you like to see in an ideal outcome? Yeah, and I'm really um, in that documentary. I put a number of names that people can contact. I, I didn't include email or phone numbers because I was going to leave it open to people. I didn't want to just be like call this number yeah. and all that stuff. But I wanted people to reach out in their own creative ways that are nonviolent so that we can 
um, overwhelm this this system to bring protection to this site. Um, UNESCO, all the way to the University of Oxford, um, the Iraqi Antiquities, the head of the Iraqi Museum. Um, I could go on and on. There's so many institutions that control um, this, this archaeological doctrine that if enough pressure is put on them, that something can change. I mean, that's that's the only power that we have is it's the people here, right? Man. To truly use our voice to to make to make change. And I, the, what I see envision here is if we were able to get enough people to make enough noise, you know, especially like doing mm-hmm. this discussion with you mm-hmm. right now, we can we can literally change the future. This site could be preserved and not just studied by one institution, but what if it was studied by a collaboration of every archaeological organization in the world because we're all humans we're all people we need to all understand our story and where it began and i I envision something like a project eridu where it you know the public demanded not only protection but maybe complete openness and awareness where we found another tablet and then they just show the new translation and everyone's maybe excited to find out what comes out on like a you know a monthly or six month basis and like something to keep up with it this could be an exciting thing because it's, I want to I don't have you understand, um, Regina, the significance is that you can't see a site like this anywhere in the world. And what I mean by that is if, when you study our ancient sites, most of them have at least been identified. You know, there are some under the ground that are not known yeah, about, right, like in right. the, the jungles of Guatemala right. for sure. But places that are exposed on the surface that are known, they all are at least partially excavated and somewhat protected. This site is like completely abandoned. Yeah. And it's been, and not only that, but like I said, the ziggurat of Eridu was never even touched. And it just right. remains sitting there with all these records just sticking, literally cuneiform records are tablets are like sticking yeah, out of the ground. It's, just, it's, it's so, so sad. I know. <laughs> it's like, how could this, how is it possible this has happened? But I think we've kind of looked at a few of the motives, maybe yeah. a few of the motives, but nonetheless, I agree with you. I think the time for secrecy, that kind of shadow ownership is yeah. over, be it the Americans or the Iraqis controlling it. This is something that belongs to all of humanity. Exactly. I agree with you a hundred percent. And I'm glad if you were there then and back now, or if you just came here for the first time, however it rolls, I'm just happy you're so Thank you. completely devoted to making this happen. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. I really, I love what you're doing. My pleasure. It's a, it's a passion of mine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you can go to thestageoftime.com to see how you can take part in protecting Eridu. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. <laughs> create a video game that's indistinguishable from physical reality. And so it's very possible that something similar is going on in the world around us. Who is the creator of the simulation? Some people say it's 
aliens. It's future versions of ourselves. There are others who say it's God or pure consciousness. Is it kind of sad to think we're living in a simulation? We can look at the challenges in life and realize that perhaps we set up those challenges for ourselves as ways for us to level up the soul. If any civilization anywhere in the galaxy ever reaches the point of creating simulations, then you and I are more likely in a simulation than not. Well, welcome to Beyond Belief. And you're going to hear a story tonight on the program that is just going to make you go, oh my gosh. Rizwan Burke is a successful entrepreneur, investor, video game industry pioneer, independent film producer, and best-selling author. In his latest book, The Simulation Hypothesis, an MIT computer scientist shows why artificial intelligence, quantum physics, and Eastern mystics agree that we are living in a video game? And you believe this, don't you? Yeah, well, I believe it's more likely than not. And, you know, based on my experience and how we build video games, uh, you know, I started to investigate uh, the weirdness of quantum physics, and I realized that there's no good explanation for some of that weirdness. But it turns out, within video games, we render the world just as you need it, and that's why we're able to build entire video game 3D worlds like World of Warcraft or Fortnite or The Sims. And so it's very possible that something similar is going on in the world around us. Whereas Elon Musk believes we're living in a simulated matrix as well, doesn't he? Yeah, and he made the point that 40 years ago we had Pong, which was the first commercially available video game. I used to play that game. Yeah, it was just two squares and a dot. And today we have virtual reality and augmented reality. And the reason I got interested in this whole idea of the simulation was related to Pong. I was actually playing ping pong in virtual reality. So I put on the headset and I started playing this ping pong game. And at the end, I forgot I was in a virtual reality game. So I tried to put the paddle down on the table and lean against the table. But there was no table. Huh. Just like there's no spoon in the movie The Matrix, uh, that's when I realized that our technology was getting good enough that someday we'll be able to create a video game that's indistinguishable from physical reality. And I call that the simulation point, uh, which we're on track to get to. Who is the creator of the simulation? Well, that's the the big $64 million question. Uh, Some people say it's aliens. Uh, there was a professor at Oxford who wrote a paper about this back in 2003 named Nick Bostrom, and he, he thinks it's future versions of ourselves. So he thinks we're in what we call wow. an ancestor simulation. Like if we created a game of ancient Rome, they would be like our ancestors in a way. There are others who say it's God or pure consciousness outside of the matrix. So all the religions, not just any specific religion, but pretty much all of them have been telling us that the physical world is not the real world, that there's another world out there beyond this. Uh, And so that's yet another theory of what's outside. Do you believe this is probable, possible? I believe it's probable, like more than a 50% chance uh, that we are inside some type of... Those are pretty high odds. Well, yeah, and you know, as I studied the different religions, I realized that they were telling us the same thing that modern computer science... Uh, and that modern physics is starting to tell us uh, about the nature of reality. What if somebody or something shut this game off instantly? What would happen to us? Well, this depends a little bit on what I call the NPC version or the RPG version. 
So NPC means non-player character. And those are the characters inside the video games that are just AI. You know, the bank teller or the right. bartender or the orcs that you're fighting. And then there's the RPG version or the role-playing game version. Those are the characters that we play. So if you right. and I were in a game, that we would have avatars within the game. And so what happens when you shut down a game if you're playing like World of Warcraft or if you had a virtual reality headset on? You take off the headset and there's still you outside of the game. But the problem is in something like The Matrix, if you remember, Keanu Reeves and Morpheus and the others, they had those wires that connected into the back of their right. brain. So they forgot that they were inside a video game. They didn't realize it. Now, on the other hand, if we're just non-player characters, if we're just AI within the game and you shut off the game, then those characters go to sleep until you can restart those again. Interesting take. Now, Elon Musk is working on Neuralinks. He wants us all to have computer chips in our brains. That's right. So in my book, I lay out the 10 stages of technology that we would need to develop to build something like the matrix or reach what I call the simulation point. And stage seven is brain computer interfaces, which is what Elon Musk are. is working on. So if you, if you saw the video, he had, he was able to teach a monkey to play a video game using a joystick. Then they disconnected the joystick and they just read the monkey's brain signals as he moved this joystick around. And using the brain signals, he was able to play the same game we've been talking about, Pong, with the two squares and the dot. And so we're getting better at being able to read uh, our brain signals. But we can't write to the brain yet, so we can't do what they did in the Matrix just yet. What are quantum physicists saying about theories like this? Well, quantum physics has you know one or two major mysteries, one of which is called quantum indeterminacy or the observer effect. And the best way to explain it is the idea of Schrodinger's cat. And there's this cat who's in a box. He's a 50% chance of being alive after an hour and 50% chance of being dead. Now, we would say, common sense tells us, the cat is alive or the right. cat is dead. Can't be both. Uh, and when you open it up, we'll find out which one was true and the other one wasn't true. But what quantum physicists tell us is that's not right. The cat is both alive and dead. At the same time. At the same time. It's what's called a superposition state. It has both values until somebody opens up the box and looks at the cat, until it's observed. And so huh. this is a mystery that can't be explained within quantum physics. Uh, but as I said earlier, this makes perfect sense if we live inside a video game. Because we, if we play a video game, I only see what's rendered on my computer and you only see what's rendered on your computer. Just like we might think we're in the same room, but it's just our avatars that are in the same room. And I can only see what's over there, and you can only see what's over there. What was it, Riz, that got you thinking this way? I mean, you just didn't wake up one morning and say, we're living in a matrix. No, it, it really took the development of the physics engines and uh, the graphical engines of our video game. So, you know, I was involved in making a bunch of games for the iPhone back when the iPhone first came out. And those were, you know, not super high resolution. But as the engines got better and the resolution got to 2K, 4K, 8K resolution, uh -huh. it became so good. Uh, in fact, the resolution is no longer the problem. And now it's just about how responsive is it. And so, like, when I was playing ping pong in virtual reality, it felt like I was really hitting a ball, but there was no ball. So as the responsiveness of the engines got better, as the graphics and video games got better, 
that's what got me thinking about how long would it take for us to reach the simulation point. And that's when I started to investigate and, and write this book. Whereas researcher Linda Moulton Howe and I had a chance to discuss the possibilities of ancient religions and how they figured out if we're living in a simulated universe. Let's watch. Professor Campbell thinks that this universe was made to be an entropy reduction trainer for souls. Hmm. And when we were talking about that, I was thinking of Gnosticism and Zoroastrianism, which goes back more than 2,000 years. I'm glad you're pronouncing these words. Well, I tell you, I recommend to everybody to read about Zoroastrianism and Gnosticism, because in many ways, it may be the key to why anybody simulated this universe in the first place. And the idea is that this, when you have entropy, it's energy winding down. It's why this would be a universe where death is the end of everything. Stars, people, the universe. But that there could be many universes where time, the vector of time goes to the past, and that means there would never be death. They would be universes of immortality. Mm-hmm. Why then would this be an entropy reduction trainer for souls? And he is, and he's talking as a physicist. He says, I really do think that what we are underestimating is the importance of the soul spirit as the whole key to everything that is on this planet. Sounds biblical. Well, it has to do with the life force. If in fact the body containers, whether we're talking about ETs, humans, anything Mm -hmm. that is organic life in this universe, there is a life force And in the first law of thermodynamics that physicists live by, energy cannot be destroyed. It is always there reforming. So the soul spirit of any entity would be the consciousness relationship to the projector. Now we're getting into the minds of any creature in this universe would be the interactor with the projector and that the body containers are what would take the soul and spirit around in this universe. But the whole point, the bottom line to everything is trying to live with compassion, with love, with sharing, not hate and greed and jealousy. And that the more jealousy, the more Hate, the more war, the faster the universe runs down with entropy. If we're living in a simulated universe, Ruth, why do we feel pain? Why do we have emotion? Well, some people will say that if they were to design the universe as a simulation, they wouldn't have any of those things. The problem is, if you remember in the second and third Matrix movie, they uh, revealed that the first version of the Matrix was one where everything was peaceful and blissful. Right. And the human mind didn't accept that as a full reality. And so it turns out we may need some element of struggle, just like in an Indiana Jones movie, right? If Indy <laughs> Jones just got the map at the beginning and it said, here's the Ark of the Covenant, go get it. Well, that doesn't make for a very interesting movie. And so when we design video games... We have to create levels and achievements and quests of increasing difficulty. 
And so, you know, the pain and the disappointments and the suffering that are there are built into the game, I believe, as as obstacles or challenges for us to overcome as we level up. How does science contribute to this possibility that we're in a matrix? Well, science is about discovering the rules of the physical universe. Uh, but the problem is when science looks for this thing called matter, right, it's like opening up those Russian dolls. They can't find matter. One inside of another. And the, and yeah, and they just keep finding empty space. And at the bottom level, turns out what physicists are telling us is that it's all information. So there was a famous physicist named John Wheeler, who was one of the last guys uh, who worked with Einstein and Niels Bohr, okay. and the fathers of quantum physics. And uh, he said that in his lifetime, physics went from everything must be a particle, like a solid ball, to everything must be a field, like a magnetic field, to everything is information. And so he coined a phrase called it from bit. And so if you have an it, like this chair, it's a physical object, but it's really composed of bits. So at the bottom level, the only thing they could find were a bunch of questions, yes, no questions. And what does that sound like? It sounds like computer bits. And so even science is turning towards this idea of digital physics, which is that the physical world is one of information. And now we just saw that video where uh, Linda Moulton Howe discussed the entropy and the second and the laws of thermodynamics. Right. But there's a new type of entropy, which is information entropy and, and conservation of information that you can't destroy information. And so, you know, even physics itself, which used to be about the material world, is evolving to be about the information that can be contained in the physical world. Can we control the outcome of this video game we're in? Well, it depends on the type of game we're in. And so when, if you play, say, Dungeons and Dragons, like I used to play, you know, when I was a kid, you choose a character and you choose the attributes, you know, the height, uh, the strength, the agility, and the profession, and then you decide that you're going to go on a campaign or a story arc. And so within that story arc, you can make all the decisions along the way. But I believe that each of us comes here with certain achievements or quests. Like, for example, I knew I was always going to be a computer software entrepreneur. If you had asked me in high school, I said, I'm going to be a software entrepreneur and then I'm going to be a writer. Now, how did I know that when I was 12 or 13? Well, it was just one of those things that I knew. Uh, and so each of us is drawn to different areas, different professions, different people, and I believe that those things are part of our plan or our story arc, but we have the freedom to choose, you know, on the way where we end up. How would you build, Riz, this matrix, starting from scratch? Well, if I were to build this matrix, I would think about the physical world, and then I would think about uh, the characters that we are going to have, and what kinds of challenges those characters might have. Now, uh, this is why suffering and pain are included. Now, if we were in a game like Grand Theft Auto, right, everyone would be trying to steal each other's cars and kill each other. And that's one type of game. I don't believe that's the type of game that we're in or the type of game that I would design, that we are in a game where each of us has a difficulty level uh, and each of us has to overcome that. And then I'd figure out how do we store the information about that game. And in Silicon Valley, we say that information is stored in the cloud, 
which of course sounds like a religious thing, right. but right. it's really how we store information these days in, in machines that can't be seen. You don't know where they are. They're somewhere outside of what you can see on the screen. Uh, and so then you need a way to download information from the player of the game into the avatar. And if you look at the ancient religions, they've basically been telling us, you download into a body, you live that life, you have a storyline, you die, then all of your deeds get recorded along the way. And that you have to review those. People who've had near-death experiences like Daniel Brinkley and others have told us they saw a holographic 360 panoramic life review, which means every single moment of their lives is replayed and they can re-experience it. Well, it turns out we can do this in virtual reality. We can record, if you're playing a game like World of Warcraft or League of Legends or Fortnite, we can record the entire game. Kids do it all the time and they stream it on Twitch, but we can replay it from different coordinates. So you can be your opponent, you could be one of your guild mates, for example, uh, and you can see it from any point of view. And so if these things called life reviews actually happen, then someone has to be recording the information. Uh, and so that's why if I were to design the game, I'd think about the information architecture of this world. Uh, and that's why I think physics is starting to realize that the world is really about information and not physical objects. Who came up with the concept that we could be living in a simulation? Well, it's a very old idea, going back to Plato's cave 2,000 years ago. And the, Ved the Hindu Vedas, which are 5,000 years old, and the idea of maya or illusion. But in modern times, in 1977, the science fiction writer Philip K. Dick gave a speech at, a at the Met Sci-Fi Convention in France. And he said, we are living in a computer programmed reality and the only clue we have is when some variable is altered, some change in our reality occurs. Uh, after that, in 1999, you had The Matrix and The 13th Floor and other fiction like that. But it was really uh, Oxford philosophy professor Nick Bostrom who came out with a paper in 2003 saying, are you living in a computer simulation? And he came up with something called the simulation ah, argument. Okay. And the simulation argument says either a society will get to this point that we've talked about, the simulation point where we can create matrix-like simulations, or it won't. And if it does, it will create lots of simulations, millions of them, because all you need to do is fire up another server. And so if there are millions of simulated worlds and there's only one base reality and we happen to be in a world which is more likely we're in one of these or one of those. And so his basic idea was that if any civilization anywhere in the galaxy ever reaches the point of creating simulations, then you and I are more likely in a simulation than not. Interesting. What do parallel universes have to do with this puzzle? Well, you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson, I think, once said that it's no more surprising that we live multiple times than that we live once. And so... You know, when I interviewed Philip K. Dick's wife for my book, she said he believed there were multiple timelines going on and that all the people who ran the simulation had to do was change a variable and it would generate a new run of the simulation, if you will. And he believed that we had a run where the Axis powers, uh, Germany and Japan, won World War II, and he wrote his novel, The Man in the High Castle, which became a very popular that was a great book. TV series on Amazon recently. Uh, and because he had memories of this other timeline. Uh, and so I would say 
if we could be in one simulation, then it wouldn't at all be surprising if we couldn't run multiple simulations on the same server, because that's what we do. If we're running a simulation on the weather, we don't run one simulation. We run hundreds of different simulations. And so multiverse is very uh, hard to explain from a physical point of view, but quantum physicists say it's another solution to the observer effect or the observer problem that we talked about earlier, which means that every choice is made generates a new universe. In one, the cat is alive, and in the other, the cat is dead. Well, there's nothing in nature that can clone itself. Like the planet Earth doesn't clone itself and create a new planet. It takes a billion years for a new planet to form. But what can be cloned in an instant is information. And every single computer processor that's out there today can take a bunch of bits and clone them very quickly. So if there are multiple universes, it's more likely that they are information or probable universes than physical universes. And then all we have to do to see what's going on in any of them is render them on our computer screen in the same way that you and I happen to be rendering this particular universe or this particular timeline. And that's actually the subject of my next book, which is called The Simulated Multiverse, which is about this idea that we don't just live in a single simulation, but we may have run the simulation. And that's why we experience certain things like deja vu, where we think we might have done this once before. Exactly. On Gaia's Mystery Teaching Show, physicist Dr. Teresa Bullard talks about why so many physicists resist the idea of multiple universes. And that string theory provides some exciting and beautiful possibilities for discovering a unified theory of everything. And string theory is what has opened the door to the multiverse idea in science. How did it do that? Well, it goes back to the issue that string theorists are grappling with. The challenge of identifying the exact geometry of the superstrings and extra dimensions hidden within our universe. They have many candidate shapes allowed by the math, over 10 to the power 500 possibilities, which is a massive number. Each geometry theoretically corresponding to its own universe with a different set of physical laws and tuning. But rather than saying there can be only one right answer, resulting in only one universe, namely ours, string theorists have instead proposed that all of these possibilities are equally probable and likely exist somewhere within a multiverse, meaning there are at least 10 to the power of 500 differently tuned universes out there in the multiverse, maybe even infinite numbers. But this part where they say they're all equally probable and all exist, this is the part where some scientists then claim that this means that there is nothing special about the fine tuning of our universe. We simply find these sets of parameters in our universe because we can only exist in a universe that is fine-tuned for life. But there are many other types of universes in the multiverse. We are just one possibility in an infinite sea, nothing special, therefore mystery solved. Or not. Really, all of this is speculation based on assumptions, not evidence. Whereas what you just said of like deja vu emitting from multiverses makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and in fact, I mentioned the science fiction writer Philip K. Dick, and he made that point that he felt like every time they ran the simulation, they would rewind it and redo it. And in one instance, he believed that they prevented JFK's assassination in Dallas, uh, but then he got 
assassinated in Orlando or in another city. Another and city. so they kept going and they didn't find an outcome that they liked. So they went back to the timeline uh, where he was assassinated in Dallas. And so, you know, this starts to explain uh, lots of things about why we think we might know what's going to happen in the future. And we have hunches and intuition uh, is that we are inside this, this multiple um, set of universes. It also explains fine-tuning, uh, as we saw in the video, uh, because no one knows why the parameters in our universe are just right for life. If it was changed just a little bit, the planets would fall apart, the galaxies would fall apart. Well, it turns out when we run computer simulations, we run many different simulations, and we pick the ones that are most appropriate. So if you think of a giant tree going to infinity, we prune the tree, uh, and then we merge those possibilities and we go forward with the most interesting possibilities. And so that provides a much better theoretical framework for how fine-tuning might work. If we are not living in a simulation, what are we living in? What is this? Well, if we're not living in a simulation, we have to be living in a material world. And there's nothing outside of the material world. But then all kinds of things including ESP, telepathy, near-death experiences, the afterlife. Uh, many of these things can't exist in a material universe. And that's the dominant scientific paradigm, which is why many scientists resist the idea that any of these topics, which you explore in your show, mm -hmm. uh, would really exist. In fact, I've had scientists tell me that they used to be atheists, but after thinking about the simulation hypothesis, now they're agnostic because to us, Anyone who's outside of the simulation would seem to be like an angel or a god or, as we would call it, super users or programmers sure. uh, in computer speak. Is it kind of sad to think we're living in a simulation? Well, it's got a lonely feeling to it. It does, but it depends on the type of simulation. Again, if we were all just random NPCs, like there's a new movie uh, this year called Free Guy – with Ryan Reynolds, where he's just an NPC, and when they turn off the simulation, you know, he just kind of disappears. But if we are players with characters, then we can look at the challenges in life and realize that perhaps we set up those challenges for ourselves as ways for us to level up the soul, if you will. So the part of us that exists outside the physical universe that we've forgotten about actually is still watching us and is helping us to make the choices that might lead us a certain way. So there's a comfort in it because, as you said, inevitably life comes with suffering and pain and challenges. Now, if we say those are just random and meaningless pain and random meaningless challenges, well, that's kind of sad too. On the other hand, if we're in a simulation, we set up those challenges for ourselves as uh, uh, things we can overcome. And so it gives us more confidence to say, okay, I'm going to get through this because this is what I set up for myself despite how hard it is. And my player wanted to get a level up, so he made it really difficult for me, perhaps. That's one way to think about it. What is the downside, the downside, if we're in a simulation? Well, the downside is if people say, well, nothing I do here matters because it's a simulation, right? Uh, so what the simulation hypothesis tells us is this may not be the real world, but it doesn't mean that what we're seeing isn't real within the world. So while we're here, we have to take this universe as a real universe, not just as a simulated universe. Otherwise, 
you know, people would start to do crazy things and use what's called the matrix defense, which was a legal defense that was used by some kid who killed his parents uh, and said, well, I thought I was in a matrix. So you you get the kind of people who think he didn't get away with it. He didn't get away with it. No. Uh, So I don't know that it's ever actually, you know, been used successfully. Um, But that's the downside of going too far down that path. And that works if you're in the NPC version, if it were just meaningless non-player characters. Uh, so it's important to think about the type of game we're living in. And if we're here to be compassionate towards one another and we're here to get over challenges, then that's a very different type of game than being here to kill each other. Now, here's a new ingredient, mystics, and how they view, of course, the nature of reality. Scientist Greg Braden talks about that on our show, Missing Links. Let's go back and look at what our most ancient and cherished spiritual traditions from a number of different religions tell us about the world that we live in. They tell us almost universally that our world has a beginning, and there are different ideas about what that beginning is, but there is a clear beginning in every religious tradition, and that our world will have an end, that it does not continue forever. That is almost a universal truth throughout the religions. And that the events that are unfolding between that beginning and that end are based on natural rhythms and cycles. Our most cherished spiritual traditions tell us that every life has a beginning and every life must have an end. They are not perpetual. They tell us that there are rules to living in this world and that our lives will get better as we learn those rules. Now, there are different interpretations of those rules in different traditions. Some of them are as common as the golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Some of them uh, are reflected in the Ten Commandments that tell us about how to conduct our lives. And in other, other spiritual traditions, in the shamanic traditions, and in the Egyptian mystical traditions, they all give us insights into how we live our lives in this world. And here's the key. Every ancient spiritual tradition tells us that beyond the world of our everyday senses, that we have direct access to a guidance and a wisdom that is not part of this world. We have access to an external reality or an external guide. So when we make these comparisons, except for the language, you can see the similarities. Is it possible that thousands of years ago, Our ancestors were trying to inform us in a language of their time, something that they understood that we are only beginning to awaken to the possibility of of happening in our lives, that we are actually in an artificial world, a temporary world that has a beginning and an end, that we're learning something here, and that we have access to an external guidance when we need that access. We can't tell the real from the illusion. And as a matter of fact, the Sanskrit word maya, the word itself, maya, actually means illusion. This is a fundamental concept in the Hindu tradition. And what I love about the Hindu tradition is that they tell us that it is under the illusion, under maya's influence, that the soul identifies with the body to the point where we cannot tell ourselves as separate from the illusion of this physical world. Under Maya's influence, we get lost in the body's expressions of ego and fear, sex, race, the color of our skin, our belief systems. It's under the illusion of Maya. 
and where this gets really, really interesting is in those same traditions, the idea of enlightenment means to escape the Maya, to escape the illusion. Rizzi's pretty profound, isn't he? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I wholeheartedly agree that what all the ancient religions have been telling us is two main points. The first is that the universe that we see is not the real world. And the Hindus say Maya. Within the Buddhist traditions, they often use the metaphor of a dream uh, and that we've forgotten about the real world. In the Greek traditions, uh, they talk about we cross the river of forgetfulness when we incarnate. So we forget what was there before, uh, which is very similar to this process of being in something like a matrix. The second thing they all tell us is that our actions matter and how we treat other people within the game. That's how we keep score. Uh, in the Islamic traditions, there's the idea of the scroll of deeds. Right. And in the Christian traditions, there's the book of life and the book of deeds. And the idea is that they have these recording angels who sit there and write down everything that they do. Now, that's a metaphor, Right. That doesn't mean there are literally seven billion angels or 14 billion that are sitting there writing on a physical book. Uh, at that time, they use the metaphor of the book, just as the Buddhists use the metaphor of a dream world and we wake up from the world. I like to think that if any of those guys were alive today, they would use a different metaphor. Just as Shakespeare said, the, the world's a stage and the men and women are merely players on that stage. Today, they would say, all the world is an interactive video game, and the men and women are just avatars in this game. Does the Matrix explain UFOs and other kinds of phenomena like that? Uh, yeah, it gives us a framework for explaining these that makes a lot more sense than the simple material world. If you look at UFO reports, there's often a report of an object materializing out of nowhere. Uh, and, you know, when I wrote my book, I interviewed Jacques Vallée, who has been um, investigating this since the days of Project Blue Book. And he told me that there were two things that were odd, out of many, uh, in UFO reports. In some cases, one person sees the UFO, and the person standing next to them does not see the UFO. And so he believes there's a, an element of different consciousness. Well, we do this in video games all the time. Like, if you and I are sitting here, but we're really avatars, then I'm seeing it on my computer, and you're seeing it on your computer. And if I'm at level 2, and you're at level 30... You might see a UFO materializing right here, but I can't see it because on my computer it's not rendering. So the servers make decisions in video games about who to render what to based upon their level and their challenges and their quests. He also said that sometimes UFOs seem to go through physical objects. And disappear. And disappear. And in one case he said they went right through the redwood trees. Well, the trees were still there, so obviously they didn't cut the trees. How could the UFO have gone through the redwood trees? Uh, and then it became a physical object that actually landed. Well, if you've ever played a video game, you know that as you're rendering something, you can move through walls. Mm. And then when it's finally rendered, then you have to obey the laws of physics within the game. But there's a period of time where you can de-render and you can move objects around. And so it starts to explain what appear to be these absurd aspects of UFO sightings. How does artificial intelligence fit into this, Bruce? Uh, well, to reach the point where we can create something like the Matrix, one of the stages I list is that we have to be able to create NPCs that can pass the Turing test, which is a test to, to if you speak to a computer or a person and you can't tell the difference, then you can say that computer has passed the Turing test. And so AI is a way to get characters in the video game. 
Now, some people would say that there's an AI controlling the entire game. And in fact, you know, as we talked about having angels recording our actions, it doesn't make sense to have actual angels doing it. It would make sense to have AI that's running with rules that's just recording everything just like we do on our servers. In fact, they're even called daemons, processes that run on our servers. And so AI can be involved in every aspect of creating and maintaining the world rather than having to create every little thing uh, from the game's creators. The game's creators create the AIs, which then allow us to play the game. Could the Bible have been making reference to a creator who was developing this matrix? I think so. You know, the Bible tells us that in the beginning, uh, God says, let there be light, right? And that light really is the essence of the physical universe. And so, you know, if you think about a computer game, you turn it on by turning on the electricity. What is electricity? It's electromagnetic radiation. This seems to be the one constant in the universe is the speed of light and the fact that light is at the base of everything. And so it sounds more like a video game uh, than a physical reality. And the Bible also tells us that our actions are being recorded and that there are these entities there that are watching us and they're there to help us. And if we look at the, the traditions which tell us to pray, who is it that we're praying to? We're praying to entities that are watching us from outside the simulation. If you remember, there was a movie, uh, Bruce Almighty, I think, with Jim Carrey, Jim Carrey, where, you know, God gave him his powers and he just got in his computer, he could see a list of all the prayers that were coming through, right? Which is maybe a better metaphor than at first. Maybe it happens that way. You never know. All this information has to be stored somewhere. Researcher and author David Icke talked about technology that could be mimicking our own reality. And he said this on Gaia's Escape the Matrix show. So the question then comes, obviously, what is all this computer-like, virtual reality-like encoding doing in our reality? Well, I say it's because what we're seeing with technology as it advances so fast now, is technology mimicking reality because our reality is simulated in some way by a form of technology. And it's been my view for uh, quite a long time now, that the idea that the speed of light is the fastest speed possible, though it's become a basic tenet of mainstream science, I say that's a nonsense. That, I mean, we live in an infinite reality that is all possibility and all potential. So you can't have a fastest speed within all possibility. Because all possibility is all possibility. And I say that what the speed of light is, is the limit, the firewall of the simulation. 
And so they found that when you get closer and closer to the speed of light, things start to go strange, start to act differently, react differently. And things that work a certain way within the reality in general starts to change when it gets to the speed of light. My view is is that this is happening because it's entering the the outer limits of this particular simulated reality, and therefore it starts to act differently. So what do you think of that? In a roundabout way, he too is talking about a simulated reality. Yeah, absolutely, and he's been talking about this for a while, and you know, I think we agree that uh, the physical world is starting to look more and more like information. You've probably heard of 3D printers, and That's 3D right. printers can be used to print, you know, an object, uh, even print a scale of. I'm model. still amazed by 3D printers, by the way. Right, and you can print a model of a car. Well, it turns out they're now printing scale models of the heart and using, body parts, and body parts using actual cells from the person. Exactly. And so, the further we go down that path the further we realize that there is a blurring between what is information and what is a physical object. If you remember in Star Trek The Next Generation, Captain Picard would go and say, tea, Earl Grey hot, and it would render the physical cup, and it would render the tea. Those are two different sets of atoms, but they would be rendered by one printer. And so we are now getting to the point where we can have different types of material, and to print them, and within a decade or two, We'll be able to have replicators like the Star Trek replicators. Are we going too fast, Riz? Are we going too fast with this technology? Well, we're going faster than we used to go. Um, but I do think that it's going to take longer than people assume for artificial intelligence to reach that critical point. Everything else, I think, is moving pretty fast. Uh, whether it's the resolution, if you watch special effects on movies now, they blend in and they look very realistic. If you look at 3D printers, you look at augmented and virtual reality, things are moving pretty quickly. But, you know, that's just a part of the information age that we live in. If we lived 100 years ago, you might ask the same question about are there too many machines? Are these machines being built too fast? The, the telephone and the telegraph and the, the radio, so much change was going on. In some ways, that was an even bigger change than what we're going through today, even though our advances tend to come more quickly. The book, Simulated Multiverse? Yeah, so that's the new book, and the subtitle is An MIT Computer Scientist Explores Parallel Universes, the Simulation Hypothesis, uh, and the Mandela Effect. Uh, and that'll be ready, uh, you know, in this fall. And the idea there is that you may have people who remember uh, events differently than other people, and that's what's become popularly known as the Mandela effect. And so the idea of the new book is that this might be evidence that we are actually not just in a simulated universe, but in a simulated multiverse with many different right. timelines. And time itself. And outcomes. What's that? And outcomes. And outcomes. Exactly. And which, which means that there was a version of us, there's a version of you and I that are maybe not having this conversation here, we're having it somewhere else. Uh, but that there are an infinite set of possibilities. And actually, quantum physics tells us that not only does the observer effect apply to something like a cat, but it can apply to the past. 
So if you think of light coming from a galaxy that's uh, a million light years away, and there's a black hole in the middle that's about a thousand light years away from us, the light has to go to the left or the right of that black hole. That decision has to have been made a thousand years ago. Yeah. Because the black hole is a thousand light years away. The secret is who's the creator of the matrix? Well, that's a big question, right? And I think it's us. You know, why do we play video games? We play video games to have experiences that we can't have to escape. outside. To escape, that's one reason. I can't fly on a dragon and shoot at orcs in, in this <laughs> physical reality yes. that I can do in a video game. Now, the question is, what experiences can we have here that perhaps our souls can't have outside of this simulated reality? And the answer might be physical experiences, because if it's pure consciousness outside this reality, then they can't have the suffering that we're having here. And so that's why the pain and suffering may actually be a key part of this simulation, as well as the ability to make those choices uh, that might lead us down the wrong path or might lead us down the right path. Amazing. What's your website, Bruce? So my website is zenentrepreneur.com. And from there, you can find links to all of my books. Super. Thanks for being on Beyond Belief. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. A lot of experts say that we're living in a simulated world. If we are, what does that mean to our future? I'm George Norrie, and thanks for watching Beyond Belief. This week on Gaia. On teachings of Ramdas. For there is suffering, but none who suffers. Doing exists, although there is no doer. Extinction is, but no extinguished person. Although there is a path traveled, there is no goer. On Beyond Belief with George Norrie. All the religions, not just any specific religion, but pretty much all of them, have been telling us that the physical world is not the real world, that there's another world out there beyond this. Uh, and so that's yet another theory of what's outside. Do you believe this is probable, possible? I believe it's probable, like more than a 50 chance. On Open Minds with Regina Meredith. When we read those tablets, when we try to take and look at every version, Sumerian, Akkadian, and Babylonian, the same theme comes. Commercial. A commercial? Well, it was, yeah. Oh, okay. So we're done with that mm. one? Yeah. Because that looks and sounds like we got back into something we already heard, right? It's 11.34. Okay. So, um, all right. Well, we have a meditation. I don't know if we want to do that, Rama. And then we also have, well, we have... Um, Mysterious <coughs> mysteries of solar <coughs> symbolism. Yeah. And then we also have um Momentito. Did we do we have this well it's it's a longer one. Mm -hmm. It's our our simulated multiverse. Yeah. 
What do you mean, yeah? Do you want to play this? Mm. Mm. Okay. All right. Got a short one here. Mm-hmm. This is, as I said, mysteries of a solar system. <clears throat> the very fabric of our modern modern civilization is encoded with countless examples of solar worship. The sun played a vital role in almost every major major religion and sacred tradition throughout human history. Tied epics and beliefs of the past to the present. Nothing, the sun's alignment with different ancient structures and temples. Noting, excuse me, the sun's alignment with different ancient structures and temples. Esoteric researcher Johnny Enoch explains how humanity remains tied to these ancient traditions through words such as ours and Amen, which relate back to Horus and Amun-Ra, stretching across, stretching across time from ancient Egypt and the origins of humanity to mystery schools of the Renaissance and later eras. Solar traditions and clues left behind connect many civilizations and beliefs. Okay, 28 minutes. Did you find it? Oh. Hunting. We are hunting. Well... I could read I could read Caroline and but you you, you know you can find it while I read how I, I got it you got it yeah all right here we go we got it here we go let's do that To the ancient peoples, the sun was seen as a powerful giver of life and was often depicted in different forms on enormous temples and churches. Our ancestors weren't so much sun worshippers, but they understood that this golden orb in the sky helped grow their crops and kept the wild animals away that lurked in the night. The Persian Magi ancient magicians would often carry around metal mirrors with them to reflect the symbols of God's creative powers in nature. They understood that if we wanted to see the invisible, first we had to use the illusory world as the key to unlock these hidden realities. In other words, they understood the macrocosmic perspective of the sun and its cycles as an archetypical representation for universal light and truth. Just as the old. Uh-huh. The axiom teaches us, as above, so below, 
you might find that a hill of ants in your backyard is just as much organized and industrious as the largest cities on Earth. If you look close enough into someone's eyes, you can see galaxies swirling around inside their corneas. Much in the same way that our bodies are made from the atoms of exploded stars. These minute particles come from around the Milky Way galaxy and travel here along interstellar winds, proving that everything is connected. And because nature was a reflection of the divine, our ancestors would serenade the sun with beautiful poems and songs, like the Mazdean hymns to the sun from the Zoroastrians, or Akhenaten's hymn to the Aten. Whenever Jordan Maxwell and I are visiting Manly P. Hall's Philosophical Research Society in Los Angeles, we have a tradition of standing in front of the Egyptian statue out front and reading its beautiful poem out loud. Thou sun, who has covered the truth with thy golden disk, do thou remove the veil so that I may see the truth within thee and know the meaning of the rays of glory. For the truth which is within thee is within me, and I am that. The ancient Egyptians had many traditions involving sun gods, as Isis, who is also the moon, gave birth to Horus, the falcon that rises into the sky. These solar mysteries have even been passed down into the English language, as the sun rises on the horizon, or the Horus has risen. This is also where we get hours from, or Horuses, because Horus takes 12 steps across the sky, just like the 12 hours during the daytime. Another sun god from ancient Egypt was Amun, as in Amun-Ra, whose name translates to be kept secret or hidden away. This is why all three major Abrahamic religions say Amen at the end of their prayers, as it does not mean make it so, as some incorrectly believe, or rather is more correctly translated to make what is hidden known to the divine. Other solar trinities we find include the Trimurti of Hinduism with Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, or the Egyptian with Osiris, Isis, Horus. This is the same as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or the mind, body, and spirit. These are really just all different aspects of the solar deity with the morning sun, midday sun, and evening sun. We find this three-layered symbolism in Greco-Roman and Gothic architecture as well, using the triptych archway as an initiation doorway. This is a popular design on old governmental buildings and churches like Rosslyn Chapel in Scotland. In my travels, I have found countless sun disks and wheels on churches all over the place, especially when we examine St. Peter's Basilica at the Vatican. The reason that kings and queens were appointed crown is because it resembles the coronas of the sun. This is also why they carried a scepter with an orb at the end of it. This is because they are mimicking the sun or the supreme ruler of the kingdom of heaven. That makes our sun the ruler of our solar system and the planets and all of nature are its royal court and subjects. We see this on the Statue of Liberty, which says on the bottom of it, that it was a gift from the French Grand Orient Temple Masons to the First Masonic Republic, which was America. Not only is Lady Liberty holding the torch of illumination, but she is crowned with the coronas of the sun. Solar symbolism can be found all throughout the Bible and the mysteries. Take the story of Samson, who had his blondish, reddish seven locks of hair 
cut off to symbolize the rays of the sun. We have the line of the tribe of Judah, Prometheus, or the shark-eyed family in India, whose stories are all about the solar orb entering the sign of Leo, where the sun typically became very hot and it makes it summertime in the northern hemisphere. Every astrological age has a solar messiah seated by the mystery schools. Currently, we are in the age of Pisces, so the sun is symbolized by Jesus, who calls himself the fisher of men, multiplies two fish, and encounters two fishermen. But just like Hercules and his 12 acts of wonder, or Mithra and his 12 helpers, Jesus had 12 disciples, which is the sun or son of God with his 12 constellations. Since Jesus is the solar messiah of our age, let us explore why his story is important and who he really was and how this solar symbolism became associated with his story. In my travels to England, I was surprised to learn from British historians and religious scholars at Oxford University that the royal family believes they are directly related to the lineage of Jesus and that he comes from a royal bloodline. Even their symbolism of the lion outside of Buckingham Palace or the royal standard flag also relates to the lion of the tribe of Judah, a name that has also been attributed to Jesus. Jesus, which is a symbol for the sun god or the son of God in Leo. According to the writings of the Greek historian Celsus in 155 CE and the Jewish Talmud, the true identity of Jesus is actually Yeshua ben Pantera, which literally translates to Jesus, son of Panther. And this is who the Vatican and the royal historians truly believe Jesus was and how he came from royal bloodlines. This story begins in ancient Rome, where erotic games were very common during those times. There was a Roman soldier named Panther, who later became an important ruler known as Tiberius Caesar. As the story goes, he had his way with a woman he found attractive, who we later call Mary, which is an Egyptian title for Isis associated with the mother goddess. Not only did Panther impregnate Mary, but she gave birth to twins for him, one being Jesus, and the other was Judas, or Thomas. And by the way, Thomas also means twin. In those days, a Roman official could not claim a child born with a commoner, but he had lots of reason to brag to his friends privately about it, since it was considered good luck by the gods if he had twins. When we go back to the story of Mary and Joseph, we have to examine Joseph a little closer, as his last name was Pandera, as in Panther. We are also told that he was a wealthy carpenter, otherwise known as an artificer, a craftsman, or mason, and he had taken on the duties of raising Jesus. We are told in the Proto-Evangelium of James that Joseph was around 90 at the time when he steps into the picture to help Mary, which is why he never laid with her. Manly P. Hall writes in The Secret Teachings of All Ages, Godfrey Higgins has discovered two references, one in the Midrash Johalath and the other in the Abodazara, the early Jewish commentaries on the scriptures, to the effect that the surname of Joseph's family was Panther, for in both of these works it is stated that a man was healed in the name of Jesus ben Panther, 
The name Panther establishes a direct connection between Jesus and Bacchus, who is nursed by panthers and is sometimes depicted riding either on one of these animals or in a chariot drawn by them. The skin of the panther was also sacred in certain of the Egyptian initiatory ceremonials. Similar to the life of Sir Francis Bacon, who was born Francis Tudor, the bastard son of Elizabeth I, the son of Panther was adopted and raised privately with a great education and opportunities. The historical Jesus was in fact born to a royal family of Roman lineage and was given great opportunities. The story of Jesus, taught by modern-day Christianity, is one of the most ancient and important ones ever told, as it is greatly allegorical and draws from Mithraism, which was a popular religion in those days around Rome. We find this in the ancient imperial sun cults, which were common during those times, and this is the reason why the Roman soldiers had those sun flares on the top of their helmets. One very important secret about the Bible is that the New Testament is far older than the Old Testament, and it is filled with allegorical stories about astrotheology. For example, according to Manly P. Hall, the book of John existed centuries before the alleged birth of Jesus, and all the references referring to the universal mind were replaced by Jesus. The book of Revelation, or the Apocalypse according to St. John, is not only the Atlantis story, but it is actually an ancient book belonging to the Phrygians and is probably one of the oldest, if not the oldest books in the entire Bible. For this reason, much of the writings about the life of Jesus in the New Testament are allegorical, and even the books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are about the four seasons of the sun. There is another version of the story of the life of Jesus that is different than the solar messiah that's filled with arcane teachings and wisdom that we find in the gnostic gospels the pista sophia and the books of the savior please keep in mind that many of these books were destroyed in the early stages of christendom with the council of nicaea and the ecumenical council churches today draw mainly from the gospels and epistles which were added fragments from the anti-nicaean and post-nicaean fathers And since we know that the writings of Flavius Josephus were forgeries, in the Apocryphal Gospels, we find numerous details about his actual life that probably happened. In the Gospel of Thomas, we learn that while growing up in the house of Joseph, Jesus was in fact born with the ability to focus and concentrate great energy and could perform miracles like molding sparrows out of clay that came to life and flew away. In the Arabic scriptures, it describes Jesus as being an astronomer. In the Talmud, we learn that Jesus would have visited Alexandria, Egypt, which, by the way, is where we get the connections to the Nag Hammadi, Coptic Christians, and those areas of Christianity. Of course, there are also many similarities we find between Jesus and Horus. The ancient teachings tell us that Jesus was brought to Alexandria by Rabbi Yahshua ben Barakai. In Egypt, he was said to have studied the occult and metaphysics at the Hermetic College of Ptolemies before returning to Syria. After Syria, it is greatly believed that he would have traveled eastward to be initiated into the mysteries of India. Alexandria was a very liberal place back then, being sort of like Las Vegas, and it became the melting pot of (laughs) Hellenistic and Asiatic cultures. The mystery deepens further when we examine the writings of the French mystic and writer Edouard Chouret, who hypothesizes that a historical Jesus could have been a member of an Essene sect, 
which is a messianic group that taught carpentry, alchemy, and occult practices, otherwise known as a secret society. They would have possibly been originally founded by Pythagoras and based on the teachings of ancient Egypt. His theory is based on the concept that Jesus the Nazarene could have been mistranslated from Jesus of the Nazarites. This could explain why Jesus was considered to be someone of great importance by the Romans, so he was venerated by the mystery schools. But where these stories differ is that according to the Gnostics, Jesus never died, and he went on to live a full life, but in the mainstream version, why are we told that he died on a cross? That is because the Son of God is always crucified on the cross, which is a very ancient symbol and comes from the Egyptian Ankh. It is also a proto-Hindu symbol. As Paracelsius points out, the cross has always been used to show the sun divided up perfectly into the four quarters of the year. One of the greatest examples we get for this is with the Celtic cross, as we can clearly see the four parts of the circle with lines going through it. Another interesting connection we get between Jesus and the other solar messiahs that came before him are the titles he shares with Dionysus or Bacchus, the lord of the vineyards. It was often said that the sun made grapes grow on the vines so he could turn water to wine. This is why we celebrate communion in churches by drinking wine for the blood of Bacchus, which later became the blood of Jesus. Another clue we get about Christianity being seated by the mystery schools is that traditionally we celebrate the birth of Jesus on Christmas or Christ Mass around December 25th. But in the Bible, it says that Jesus was born when the shepherds were minding their flocks in the fields. And if you think about it, it would be too cold outside at Christmas time for there to be any shepherds out there. It says in the book of Luke that Jesus was born six months from John the Baptist, which according to scholars would be approximately at the end of September. So why then are all the solar gods born around the winter solstice? Let's take a moment to examine this very ancient and beautiful story. Our story begins with the sun, our risen savior, the light of the world, as it is closest to the Northern Hemisphere in the constellation of Leo, the Lion King, or during the summertime. Then 90 days or 90 degrees later, he's born into this world from Virgo, the Virgin, who's holding wheat in her hand. So we call this constellation the House of Bread, or another name for it is Bethlehem. The star in the east preceding his birth is Sirius, and the three stars are the wise men that align around Orion to point to the sunrise. After he is born and does his life ministry, he is later betrayed by Judas with a kiss, which we call the backbite of the scorpion in the constellation of Scorpio. Judas betrays him for 30 pieces of silver, but these are really the 30 degrees that Scorpio moves in. He then faces the great scales of justice from Libra, or the state, and Sagittarius, which is the mob, wants to persecute him. At the Last Supper, he drinks from a cup, which some have called the Holy Grail, and this is really the Crowder constellation. We see this illustrated in the famous painting for the Last Supper by the great master Leonardo da Vinci, with the 12 signs of the zodiac split into four groups of three for the triune nature of the sun in its various seasons of the year, you know, like 
winter, spring, summer, and fall. And to the left of Jesus, which we're told traditionally is supposed to be John, is actually a female. This represents Virgo the Virgin. When we look closer at this picture, notice the Son of God, or the Son God, Jesus. In the middle, he has two fish on his plate representing Pisces. Check out the tree of the Son again with the three doors behind him. There's a lot more going on in this picture if you know what to look for. After that, Jesus is crucified with a crown of thorns, or the coronas of the sun, from December 22nd, 23rd, and 24th, which means the sun stays at the same degree for three days before being resurrected and coming back to life on the 25th, when the sun starts moving back towards the direction of the northern hemisphere, when he springs back to life at Easter. The winter solstice story has also been encoded into our megalithic sites around the world. One of my favorite solstice sites to visit in the world is the Newgrange Monument out in Ireland, which is an enormous stone structure built around 3800 BCE or 5,000 years ago. When you visit this site, there is a sun portal above the door that has a cross or a crux-shaped chamber inside, which... Keep this in mind, it was built thousands of years before Christianity, and it has a solstice alignment that lights up inside only for the week of the winter solstice from December 22nd, 23rd, 24th, and 25th. It's a big deal to attend this every year, and people come from all over the world to witness this event. These type of sun portals and solstice alignments can be found everywhere, including at Karnak in Egypt and Chichen Itza in Mexico. If that is not evidence of a global dissemination of cultures and sciences that has existed for thousands of years, I don't know what is. According to Manly P. Hall's Secret Teachings of All Ages, this myth of the dying god originally came from Atlantis. It also serves as part of the initiatic rites of the mystery schools as it is symbolic of the transitioning out of the lower shadow of the false self and being raised to the higher sphere above us or we could call that being enlightened. I'm reminded of a beautiful initiatory passageway for the neophyte from the Golden Dawn that was lovingly preserved by Dr. Israel Rigardi that goes, Inheritor of a dying world, we call thee to the living beauty. Wanderer in the wild darkness, we call thee to the gentle light. Long hast thou dwelt in darkness. Quit the night and seek the day. In my conversations with author and esotericist Jay Widener, he revealed to me that sometime in the early 90s, he met with a wealthy, high-ranking mason from Europe that allowed him to have access to a private library full of rare and expensive esoteric books. The only rule was that he could only read them, was not allowed to take any of them home. It was there that he learned about a ritual in French Freemasonry that is very interesting. Apparently, the initiate is placed in a completely dark room for three days by his brothers and told to lie down inside of a light, tight coffin. The brothers would then take the coffin out to a hill with a view of the east. They do this right before the sunrise. The initiate, who is also blindfolded, is taken out of the coffin and is now facing the east. As the first lip of the sun makes its way over the horizon, the blindfold is taken off the initiate exposing him to the first light and days. 
for the entire time of the sunrise until the bottom of the sun has left the horizon, the initiate absorbs the early morning light. The initiate is then blindfolded and placed back in the coffin and taken back into the dark room. The initiate then spends the next 40 days completely in the darkness, just like the Jesus fast in the Bible, which involves a period of 40 days and 40 nights. Subsequently, this ritual promises long life for the initiate. According to Jay Widener, what is likely going on here is that this ritual is designed to create as much melatonin as possible in the brain. We know that melatonin is a life extender. By going into the dark for three days, the initiate creates a large amount of melatonin in their body. Of course, the pineal gland secretes two hormones, melatonin in the dark and serotonin in the light. Serotonin is also closely connected to NNDMT or dimethyltryptamine, the most powerful hallucinogenic drug on the planet. As the initiate views the sunrise, all of the melatonin that was created over the three days of darkness is instantly converted to serotonin. At that point, the initiate has to be helped up by his brothers because the six or seven minutes of viewing the rising sun is creating so much serotonin that it becomes an overwhelming experience. By placing the initiate back inside the dark chamber, this blinding dose of serotonin is then converted back to melatonin. But now, the melatonin is almost a super melatonin. According to the latest scientific research, melatonin is also what causes our body to reverse the aging process. I suspect that these solar initiations came from ancient Egypt originally, and they probably used an empty sarcophagus in Karnak an empty sarcophagus in Karnak or someplace where the sun would align during a solstice period. We learned about a similar initiation with the death of the Egyptian god of the underworld, Osiris, who is murdered by his brother Set, who cuts him into 42 pieces and takes his phallus off. His blood then trickles down into the ground where the sprig of an evergreen, a tamarisk or an acacia grows, and this is symbolic of everlasting life. He is then brought back to life after three days, when Isis reattaches his phallus, mounts him, and gives birth to Horus, the morning sun. Oh we God. find this story with the death of Attis, who became Adonis from the Phrygians, and in the Masonic allegories with Hiram Abiff, who was accosted by three ruffians and buried at the brow of Mount Moriah. This scene is reenacted by the initiates of Freemasonry. This is also what happens to Jesus in the Bible as he dies for three days and comes back to life after Mary Magdalene visits the sepulchre. The Bible calls the evergreen that sprouts up a Jesse tree, and this is actually where the tradition of the Christmas tree comes from. The sun's power and light has been understood in countless different ways by secret societies. Today we talk about solar eruptions and CMEs, but many of our geologists believe that when we go back to the Younger Dryas Cataclysm around 12,800 years ago, this may have been started by a series of asteroids and solar eruptions causing a destruction on the Earth, including heating up the sand in the Libyan desert, causing it to turn to glass. In many of the megalithic sites I've explored around the world with Brian Forrester, like Tanis and Egypt, it looks like the whole place has been scorched so badly with a hot plasma that it blew the place to pieces. Even the stone has been burnt very badly with a type of vitrification. No agriculture will actually grow on that site, despite being in a rich agricultural area with 
farming communities nearby. The Egyptians have a story that's very relevant to the solar mysteries and the cycles of our sun personified into the goddess Hathor. As the story goes, Ra grows older and the Egyptians no longer respect him. So he asks Hathor to banish the Egyptians who are no longer grateful for all he does in their lives. But she refuses because she loved the ancient Egyptians so much. So he cast a spell on her to change her into the lioness goddess Sekhmet. She gets angry with a furious response and starts hunting down humans and scorching the earth like a CME or a solar flare eruption. After that, Ra felt bad and he wanted Sekhmet to stop, but she wouldn't listen. So he creates two shadows and these are portrayed by two lakes of wine, which as the story goes, she drinks falls asleep, and becomes Hathor again. Oh. But to subdue her after, he gives her a necklace, which is made from gold, silver, and precious jewels, which may in fact be our atmosphere and solar systems with its various planets, telling us that the sun has now come to a more calm or stable state. Mm. Egyptologist Mohammed Ibrahim tells me that he thinks these two lakes represent the layer of shade in the sky that was created after our last mini ice age and helped humans survive during cooler times. According to mystical traditions, the true color of the sun is blue and the orange-yellow color we see is just a reflection of its rays through the substance of our 3D world. Esoteric teachings suggest that there are actually three suns, the spiritual sun, the intellectual sun, or solar as an S-O-U-L sun, and the material sun. Traditionally, this is symbolized in Masonic lodges by the lighting of three candles. It is also taught in esoteric traditions that there are intelligent beings living in the sun, and they have various hierarchies and come and go through that big fiery ball of gas in the sky. Maybe this is where we get the idea of our sun acting as a portal for higher beings. These teachings were later adapted into the idea of archangels or spirits of the light who have beautiful golden white colors and are powerful beings assigned to oversee the progress of our solar system. One thing is for certain, the sun has played an important role in almost every major religion and tradition in the world. If we learn anything from these teachings, it's that no matter how dark it might get in our lives or the world, the sun will rise again. I'm Johnny Enoch, and thanks for watching Mystery Teachings. That was quick. That was interesting, Ustad. You know all that about Mother, huh, Rama? I did not know that about Mother. I've heard stories about Mother and Hathor, but not the way he put it. <laughs> um... I guess I have some questions, Mother. <laughs> oh, well, my. next next Friday we should ask them. <laughs> what can I say? Yeah, I heard it was beer that she drank and not wine. Oh yeah, that's in the Goddess segment. That's, yeah, uh, which so, one of those books? Mm, but, but interesting. Yeah, all things are possible. Okay, so I'm going to do as quick as I can. I'm not, not, not. 
hopefully not going to stumble over my words. Um, but Caroline's got quite a story here, so let's see what we can do. This week's guidance from the Ascended Masters Galactic Spurs Elements, Fairy Elders, Angelic Legions, Archangels, and other divine beings known as the Collective. Greetings, dear ones. We are very pleased to have this moment to speak with you today. Today we answer a question from a light bearer who asks, As you could name one thing that lightworkers could do daily that would take no more than 15 minutes a day that would have the greatest impact on the ascension of this planet and humanity, what would that be? And the collective answers. We would say that in many respects, these, those on the ascension path are already doing the most important thing, which is to be on the earth at this time while earnestly seeking their own highest path. So long as that point of focus and heart-based desire is based on love, in love, all is well. All rivers shall flow to the sea, to the sea of light that is divine love in many forms, in its many forms. You ask for an action that would impact humanity and Earth herself. You got everything right, right for the end. Okay, thank you. How long? How many minutes, sweetheart? In these very tenuous times in which so many feel the stresses of the world, you see much occurring now, which, however it may appear, are the birthing pains of this divine chaos that nearly always accompanies great creation. And so we shall point, we shall point out some things which you already know deep down. For one, you know in your heart mind that none of you are operating in a void in which your own actions remain separate from that of the divine beings and non-terrestrial beings assisting humanity. Your actions, your frequency, your heart mind focus are always supported and enlightened by your connection to your soul family and to your own soul. From there, the network widens to include whole communities of light, light bringers whose earth missions are similar to your own. It extends as well to those in inner earth who are working alongside you in the etheric and in the thought planes where you connect with them, often without consciously realizing it. (laughs) As you know, many of you are at work on the ships in your sleep state, assisting galactic and intergalactic councils in their work to establish peace permanently on your planet and to safeguard it wherever possible in the galaxy as a whole and to encourage Earth's and humanity's ascension. You are at a crucial tipping point on Earth's timeline. So much help has has been called in, and you answered, or you would not be here now. Many of you work within the Earth, awaiting grid line, awakening grid lines, pre-ancient technologies in the pyramids and other sacred sites around and within the planet. You visit these places theoretically, calling into action aspects. Tell me how much time, Mama, for the last two. Um, hmm? How long are the last two pieces? Oh, and hidden 
four minutes in dream Okay. Hidden of Lady Gaia's own deep inner wisdom. And awakening those whose wise pre-ancient beings whose sleeping presence has guarded these sites for thousands of years. Nearly all have awakened now and are assisting your efforts. That's good news. You are receiving great support for this work from so many beautiful beings around the earth and on her. And so now we would say, join the awake state of to the etheric. Realize the importance of your presence on this planet and the constant interconnection of your work within, with even the highest of the angelic presences. Give thanks for all. Give thanks for all you are able to, to do with your own rising vibration as you reach beyond survival-based living and claim independence and full sovereign control of your destiny. Let your earth, earth self know how important they are. Alert your soul, higher self, and soul family that you are are ready to move into the full aspect of your Earth mission in ways that your waking self will become increasingly aware of and benefit from. The other half of this beautiful realization of your own God-Goddess presence is to intentionally call on the support and active intervention of those in the higher realms and those galactic family and friends on the ships around Earth, upon her surface and in inner Earth. Tell them that you require and call forth their assistance, that all of humanity calls out to them now on a higher level, requesting all forms of benevolent intervention. Interventions that respect human free will, yet drastically speed along the SARS full enactment. Thank them for all they are doing now and offer your increased level of assistance say you are ready to stand as a light warrior who protects and guards the principles of a free and independent race uh, independent race of beings who must now be sovereign then open to receive image the earth in the transmuting violet flame of saint germain as you stand or sit up straight with hands open and facing upward or hands over heart as a sign that you are fully dedicated to this mission. And so your affirmation or proclamation to be spoken aloud each morning might sound something like this knowing as you do so that etherically all of us and millions of other light bringers, light bearers join with you. Quote, we call upon the great source consciousness of all that is, the creator source energy from which we come. We ask to be fully engaged in the ascension of our own spirits and consciousness and to move along the ascension path in joy and grace. We call forth healing for all aspects of our mind, body, and spirit that require healing from past and present experiences and conditions on this or that or any planet we have ever lived on. We ask to be engaged fully as light bearers and call forth complete divine guidance, direction, and assistance in our earth missions 
we drew up before birth. We call forth the full assistance now of that divine central source that is pure love, the divine feminine in all her creational power and the divine masculine in all his divine protection. We call forth the assistance of all beings in the higher realms, serving within the office of the Christ, the crystalline energy consciousness, to assist earth at this time. We petition you now, move swiftly with that with the legions of light, to release and dissolve for all time space, all impediments to the full enactment of Masara law. We petition you now, move swiftly with your legions of light to nullify the the effects of all false, false chemicals, all illness, all toxicity, all war and warlike action to which human beings are being, being exposed, whether in mind, body, or spirit. We call forth and require divine healing for all, divine protection for all, divine guidance and encouragement for all upon the earth at this time. We blaze the violet flame of Saint Germain to envelop the entire earth and all her people and all earth systems, experiences and conditions. We petition you now, angelic legions and the galactic forces, including all members of the Ashtar Command, assist earth by surrounding her with those frequencies needed to, to pave the way for Nasara's immediate enactment. And we call forth the power of the archangels, the earth beings, who represent in higher levels the souls of all trees and plants, all rock and soil, all animals, air, water, and ethers. Hear us now. Join with the ascended masters and the power of all our minds and all our souls and break forth through the false shields that have for too long blocked our empowered interventions and intervene on a level such as never before seen on this planet. Pave the way for Nasara's enactment, including complete disclosure of the non-terrestrial and extra-dimensional beings who live on and around her in this universal in this universe, pave the way for Nasara's immediate enactment, including full announcement of the arrests of those responsible for the old false. This is good. Government structures around the planet and those carrying out their orders. Pave the way for Nasara's immediate enactment, including announcement of the tribunals and trials that these ones and their false overlords will now face. Pave the way for the Tsar's immediate enactment by steadying the heart-mind of every child, woman, and man on the earth so that they are not only ready for complete renewal of all life on this planet, rather also ready to celebrate (coughs) and accept the great changes unfolding now in the liberation of earth and her beings and pave the way for our ability to rejoice to give thanks to know that this is so now and evermore that all slavery status upon earth is hereby converted to a 
free and independent humanity, living in free and independent states, nations, and villages. Hear us now. Hear us now and answer in the fullest possible measures. We call upon you, knowing the time is now for these unprecedented benevolent interventions to be accomplished. We welcome you, friends and beloved family members, and we give thanks. We give thanks. We give thanks. And so it is. Namaste. Need I say more? I passed this talking stick with Masara Law all over it with that emerald serpent feathered one leading the way. Quetzalcoatl, here we come. And it's coming to you right now with angels, fairies, feathers, rainbows, crystals, and bird feathers. Here it comes, right, bird? <laughs> I got it. <laughs> and it's there now, yes. Good Good job, Caroline. I love that. And yes, 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 yes. We're all ready. And I think it should happen now. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Right now. And thank you for tonight. Oh, my gosh. Just a lot, a lot. And I do hope you remember, Robin, to ask those questions about Mother. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, it was a good day, and look forward to manana, as it is already. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, lots of gratitude for both of you and for the day, and for all of us, and for Miss Sarah now. And I pass this coffee stick over to you, Mama. Here it comes. Okay. This is Alan Watts, Reality Check. <laughs> <clears throat> Guess we need that. Indeed. Enormous bang millions of years ago, billions of years ago, which flung all the galaxies into space. Well, let's take that just for the sake of argument and say that was the way it happened. It's like uh, you took a bottle of ink and you threw it at a wall. Smash, and all that ink spreads. And in the middle, it's dense, isn't it? And as it gets out on the edge, the little droplets are finer and finer and make more complicated patterns. See? So in the same way, there was a big bang in the beginning of things, and it spread. And you and I, sitting here in this room, as complicated human beings, are way, way out on the fringe of that bang. We are the complicated little patterns on the end of it. Very interesting. But so we define ourselves as being only that. If you think that you are only inside your skin, you define yourself as one very complicated little curly cube, way out on the edge of that explosion, way out in space and way out in time. Billions of years ago, you were a big bang. Now you're a complicated little and we, then we cut ourselves off, like this, and don't feel that we're still the Big Bang. But you are. Depends how you define yourself. You are actually, if, if this is the way things started, if there was a Big Bang in the beginning, 
you're not something that is a result of the Big Bang, on the end of the process. You are still the process. You are the Big Bang, the original force of the universe coming on as whoever you are. So then, let me connect this to the problem of birth and death, which puzzles people enormously, of course. Because in order to understand what, what the self is, you have to remember that it doesn't need to remember it. Just like you don't need to know how you work your thyroid gland. So then, when you die, you're not going to have to put up with everlasting non-existence because that's not an experience. <laughs> a lot of people are afraid that when they die, they're going to be locked up in a dark room forever. And they have to sort of undergo that. But one of the most interesting things in the world, this is a yoga, this is a way of realization. Try and imagine what it will be like to go to sleep and never wake up. Think about that. Children. It's one of the great wonders of life. What will it be like to go to sleep and never wake up? And if you think long enough about that, something will happen. You will find out, among other things, that uh, if I pose the next question to you, what was it like to wake up after having never gone to sleep? That was when you were born. You see, you, you can't have an experience of nothing. Nature recalls it back. So after you're dead, the only thing that can happen is the same experience, or the same sort of experience, as when you were born. In other words, we all know very well that after people die, other people are born. And they're all you. And you can only experience it one at a time. Everybody is I. You all know you are you. And wheresoever beings exist throughout all galaxies, it doesn't make any difference. You are all of them. And when they come into being, that's you coming into being. You know that very well. Only you don't have to remember the past in the same way you don't have to think about how you work your thyroid gland or whatever else it is in your organism. You don't have to know how to shine the sun. You just do it. Like you breathe. Doesn't it really astonish you that you are this fantastically complex thing? And that you're doing all of this and you never had any education in how to do it? Never learned to procure this miracle? Lovely, Rama. That was a good choice. Okay, I just got one little phrase here that Caroline said at the end here. As we speak all of this, actively visualize with joy, equal to the strength of our declaration that every needed form of intervention is happening now. Visualize Captain Ashtar on the screen of our computer and smartphone announcing the SARS full enactment. So mote it be. And so it is. And so it is. National Economic Security and Reformation Act. Now, see you in your dreams and on the bridge. And 
come and join us with Cheryl. This number I will give again. It's, it's 7 o'clock Mountain, which would be 9 o'clock Eastern. So everything in between. Let's do this. This are now gatherings and affirmations. 425-436-6260. 425-436-6260. And the pin code 946-7441-POUNDS. Ahomi Takriyasa. Namaste. Inshallah. Satnam. Satnam. Deep. Thirteen thank yous. Honey in the heart. No evil. And live long and prosper. Namaste. Aloha.